Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, so we've come to the King of the Ring slash Monday Night Raw mega episode. So as usual, I had to enlist the help of a special guest co-host. Joining the Raw Attitude podcast for a fourth time, he is the resident Rob Van Dam of this show because he's Mr. Pay-Per-View. From WrestleMania Salvation and the AEW Rundown podcast, he is none other than Sal. So Sal, would you care to remind the fans about WrestleMania Salvation and provide some details about the AEW Rundown as well? (laughs) What is going on, Henry? How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right until the WWE sues me for using that clip. Oh, it's okay. It's under five seconds. Oh, good. It's good to be back on the Raw Attitude Podcast. I'm a much, much better co-host than the other guy you have from the AEW Rundown, (laughs) who thinks just because he's been on more times, his times are better. No, no, no. It's quality, not quantity. Uh, As you mentioned, I am the host of the AEW Rundown. We talk about AEW, all things AEW, from being the elite to AEW Dark to, of course, their Wednesday night show, AEW Dynamite. And then I just finished up a podcast called WrestleMania Salvation, where where I went through every single WrestleMania. Uh, you yourself were kind enough to guest a number of those shows, and I thank you for that. And no I've started up a couple new side projects, uh, Survivor Series, where I chronologically go through Survivor Series. You, my friend, were just on the most recent episode, Survivor Series 1991, The Gravest Challenge. Mm-hmm. And fun times. Fun times. And then also my NXT TakeOver Salvation Series. Uh, that will be coming back soon. The last episode saw Kevin Owens turn on Sami Zayn and powerbomb him into the ring apron. So, good times, and I'm glad to be here at the Raw 2 Podcast to talk about the WWF before it became E. Yes, yes indeed. How actually, since you're doing the AEW Rundown now, this is your first time being on the show since you started the AEW Rundown. Are you? Would you say you're enjoying AEW so far for the most part? kind of mixed thumbs up thumbs in the middle it's very difficult right now to to judge it because one of the best things i i really found myself enjoying about AEW was the crowd reactions mm-hmm. and unfortunately you know due to the pandemic and who knows when this gets released if we're still uh you know under the pandemic rules but without fans in the building it's it's just not the same true and i think the show the product was much better uh, when the fans were loud, the fans were there. Other, But other than that, you know, obviously everybody's facing that difficulty right now. I do enjoy AEW. I do enjoy the guys they got over there. I think they got some really good wrestlers over there. Some of their storylines have me scratching my head a little bit, but 
they can't all be home runs, I guess. Big fan of the uh, Nightmare Collective. <laughs> yeah, about as much as a fan as I am of uh, Brody Lee's Vince McMahon impression. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, actually, well, as we're saying this, just so you fans at home are, are aware of this, we're recording in late April, so this episode is not due to go up until early July, so it'll be a little while in between. No doubt a lot of things will happen. Maybe there'll be even be fans in attendance by the time this show goes up. Probably not, but you never know. But uh, I will say, on the shows we watch, Sal, if you're, if you're talking about fans being in attendance, both of these shows were wall-to-wall, fully packed, with, uh, with many, many wrestling fans. So would you like to uh, get into it? I would love to. Fantastic. Well, before we get into the pay-per-view, though, there is an episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover. But before we even get into that, there was a dark match which aired even before Heat started. So mark this one down in the history books, Sal. Meat picked up the win over Kurt Angle. So I suppose we all have to start somewhere. But anyway, with that being said, would you like to get into Sunday Night Heat? Video proofer didn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, I know. They they probably have it. Like every now and then, you see the WWE Network. They put up like those those dark match Hidden clips gems. of like Brock. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that one will eventually see the light of day. I, I somehow doubt it. But um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I I was aware there was a dark match. I didn't make note of it, and now I'm very surprised at that result. <laughs> I think eventually Kurt Angle does get his revenge on on Meat at some point, in his debut, perhaps. Hmm. I see. But anyway, let, let's talk about Sunday Night Heat. Fantastic. So we open the show with a recap of some of the noteworthy moments from the past few months, including Shane McMahon helping The Undertaker win the WWF title at Over the Edge, Vince McMahon revealing himself as the higher power, and Stone Cold Steve Austin getting some retribution on both McMahons by taking over as CEO of the WWF in place of Vince's wife, Linda. And tonight, in a two-on-one handicap ladder match, Stone Cold is putting his 50% stake in the company up against Vince and Shane's 50% of the company. So whoever climbs the ladder and retrieves the briefcase will indeed have full control of the WWF. And frankly, Sal, I wish more companies would settle their ownership disputes in this manner. Just give it a fucking ladder match, baby. Oh, sure, like when my company merges with another company instead of going through a couple years of reassignment and contracting salaries, let's just have a ladder match. That's pretty logical to me, I think. Uh, couple, just one note real quick about the intro to Sunday Night Heat. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that the intro video still makes it look like it's a good show. Like, <laughs> yeah. 90% of the highlights were from Raw, but they put yeah. it in the Sunday Night Heat clip. Well, just wait till SmackDown debuts in a couple months, and then Heat is basically like, you know, the C-show. The quality will go down. It's guaranteed. Indeed. Well, and, and so you mentioned the opening credits. So after that montage, we do get the opening credits, and then the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. But I'm not going to list off the offensive signs in the audience just yet. I'll save that for when the actual pay-per-view starts, so stay tuned for that cliffhanger, folks. But we officially open the show with a handful of corporate ministry members heading to the ring, specifically Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, WWF Tag Team Champions, the Acolytes, your new WWF European Champion Midian, and Viscera. And notably, Vince and Shane are actually carrying a ladder with them, in case you somehow forgot what type of match they'll be competing in tonight. And speaking of ladders, near the stage, we can actually see that every wrestler who enters from backstage tonight has to walk under what is essentially a bridge of ladders. So I guess everyone who wrestles tonight is about to experience a whole shitload of bad luck. And also, let's just say, you may want to make a mental note about that ladder bridge for 
later on in the show. Uh, did you happen but, to make note of where we're broadcasting from? I make a note of it uh, when the actual pay-per-view starts. Oh, we'll get into it. But anyway, at the beginning here, uh, in terms of the corporate ministry, there is one thing I had to note here, Sal, actually. So Vince McMahon is wearing a sweatshirt that says WWF Racing Attitude, and this is apparently because the WWF was sponsoring a drag racer named Jerry Tolliver at this time. So I went ahead and looked this up, and Tolliver competed in the National Hot Rod Association, and yes, he did indeed drive a WWF hot rod. The one thing I have to wonder, though, is why Vince was so eager to promote this guy on TV, since Jerry Tolliver's WWF car had Stone Cold's face on the hood, a Stone Cold Skull logo on the side, and the phrase, wanna raise some hell written on it. You would think Vince wouldn't want to support a guy who's such a huge fan of his biggest rival, but there you have it. But seriously, though, Sal, be sure to Google Jerry Tolliver WWF car, because I think that hot rod actually does look pretty damn cool. Is it better than the WCW car? I think it is much better wow. than the WCW car. High Are you talking about the monster truck? No, or no, no, the race car. It? Oh, I don't even—I don't remember that at you, all. Okay, you—you you continue, and I'll—I'll I'll find a picture and send it to you as we're recording. <laughs> oh yes, please do. This, this is breaking news right here, folks. So yes, so Vince grabs a microphone and says that even though the Undertaker and Triple H have been fighting with each other lately, tonight they will be on the same page. And as for the big boss man who was kicked out of the corporate ministry on Monday, Vince is going to give him a bit of tough love tonight on Heat when he forces boss man to compete in a two-on-one handicap match against Midian and Viscera. So yes, Sal, we are really doing a big boss man face turn here, it seems. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah, stay tuned to see how that goes. Uh, so actually, there was two. There was a WCW race car, and then there was also an NWO race car. Oh. I'm going to send you both right now. They they actually were not the same person. I thought for a second he just repainted the car. But uh, no, they were two different drivers. So if the race holds true to real life, that would mean the uh, NWO race car rides the WCW race car right into the ground? Yeah. Would that be right? That sounds about right. They drive them right off the road? <laughs> they crash into each other. I think there are a few too many swerves in that race. Oh. <laughs> uh, specifically once uh, October 99 rolls around. Say, anyway. When a specific guy takes the wheel? <laughs> yes. But anywho, as for Stone Cold Steve Austin, though, according to Vince, when tomorrow rolls around, he'll be just like everyone else in the crowd tonight. Just another employee who dreads going into work every single day. Mm, and we'll Vince see then ends that. his promo. We will. And the important part here, though, is Vince ends his promo by saying he's so fired up about the thought of bossing Stone Cold around that Vince could, quote, fight all night. And let's just say you may want to remember that little soundbite for just a moment from now. And then Shane McMahon grabs a microphone to further taunt Stone Cold. But when he does that, we get a bit of an interruption. Austin 316 says he just whipped your ass. Get this. McMahon 632 says payback's a bitch. Please. Wait a minute. The commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation, HBK Shawn Michaels is here. Michael Rumors and Swirl all weekend long. We had speculated on Commissioner Michaels to make an announcement, some kind of profound effect here tonight in King of the Ring. But this appearance, nonetheless, appears to be a 
Mr. Commissioner, that was just a figure of speech, obviously. Well, figure this speech, Vin Man. Since you feel so good that you could fight all night, I think I'd like to give you a little warm-up match right here tonight on Heat. Uh-oh. Boy, oh boy, this could drastically change the complexion. I don't need a warm-up match. And what makes you think you've got the authority? You. You are the one... That gave me the authority, remember, Vin Man? He's right on that point. I believe it was about a year ago, but that's insignificant now. What I'd like to do is take this time to introduce to you your opponent tonight here on Heat. What in the world is Shawn Michaels have planned? And McMahon family, tonight is the most, and you're not going to screw with it. Nobody's going to screw with it. Screw you, Michaels, and screw you, Shamrock. Screw me? No, Vin Man, it's screw you. If he has to face Shamrock, he is screwed. Of the World Wrestling Federation, you gave me all rights and privileges to book matches as I see fit. Now, if you choose not to wrestle Mr. Shamrock tonight on Heat, I will then make you forfeit your ladder match at King of the Ring later on this evening. Vince has no choice. He's been backed into a corner and by Commissioner turn 100% control of the company to Stone Cold Steve Austin right here, right now. Now that is, of course, unless you can give Mr. Shamrock a suitable replacement. Well, of course, uh, there would be uh, Viscera or, or, or Midian. Well, see, don't you remember? You've already booked them tonight. I'm afraid they're busy. Well, that would bring us to the tag team champions of the WWF, the Acolytes. Well, see, you know what? I really hate to break a team up, especially these two. They're like those two little Olsen twins from Full House. They're just lost without each other. Hey, you can't tell one from the other. There's no, there's nobody left. That's right. It's going to be a family affair tonight here on Heat because the only replacement I will accept is one McMahon for another. Can you believe this? Good, then Shane McMahon will kick Ken Shamrock's ass on heat. I don't believe this. Well, Vince, we'll see about that, but just in case, if there are any 
corporate ministry members interfering in the Shamrock McMahon match, you will still have to forfeit the ladder match at King of the Ring. And I will still give Stone Cold Steve Austin 100% ownership of the World Wrestling Federation. Now, hit my music! So yes, as you heard there, we got an interruption from Commissioner Shawn Michaels, who is now wearing a t-shirt commemorating the fact that his hometown San Antonio Spurs had just won their first NBA championship a mere two days before this episode of Heat. And so, because Vince McMahon claimed he could fight all night, HBK books him into a match on Heat against Ken Shamrock. To which Vince tries to back out, but HBK says if he tries to escape, Vince and Shane will forfeit their ladder match later on tonight, thereby giving 100% control of the WWF to Stone Cold Steve Austin. However, Commissioner Michaels will accept a suitable replacement for Vince in that match against Shamrock, but only if he swaps in Shane instead. And so, Vince does indeed offer up Shane as his replacement, which, naturally, Shane does not seem too pleased about. But then, HBK adds one final capper. If any member of the corporate ministry interferes, then that will also result in the McMahons forfeiting their match tonight, thereby giving 100% control of the company to Steve Austin. And frankly, though, I'm not exactly sure how a commissioner can overrule Vince and Shane, who combine to own 50% of the company, but sure, why not? So, so what did you think of our opening promo segment here? Well, to first answer that question, if you remember, and as is pointed out to us, Vince McMahon himself gave absolute power to the commissioner. He Fair. said it live on TV. Nobody can trump the commissioner, not even me. That is true. Now, as far as the promo goes, first of all, the little lower third when they come out says the corporate ministry but really just looks like the ministry. Yeah, minus Taker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's no boss man. Apparently we know why. There's no Triple, Triple H. H. Yeah, I don't really see the corporate. There's no uh, Pete Gas. <laughs> mm, true. Um, yeah, what what, 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 what is corporate about this ministry? What a, what a fucking disaster that goddamn mishmash was. Well, you should have seen Midian's PowerPoint presentations. They were something else. Nope. I'm good. Uh, also, <laughs> Vince goes on and on and says, you know, Steve Austin will hate coming to work. Steve Austin will, will learn to bow down and beg and all this stuff. And he basically is saying that Austin will have to kiss his ass. Ooh. That's kind of what I took from it. Vince was so close. He did, Only a few years away from coming up with that idea. Yeah. <laughs> someday. Someday. And then when the Heartbreak Kid comes out, it's always great to see Shawn Michaels, which is funny because we always talk about how he was gone for four years, but was he really gone? He was there like every couple months. Yeah, he just, he pops up every now and then when they just want to, I guess, find an excuse to like settle some sort of dispute between Vince and somebody else. Which I'm fine with. It's Shawn friggin' Michaels. But oh, yeah. um, he makes a full house reference in 1999. Oh, that's right. You call them like the Olsen twins, right? Yeah. Uh, Henry, would you care to know when Full House ended on ABC? I would say it was 94. Very close. It was the uh, end of the spring of 95. 
Oh, oh, wow, it even went longer, jeez. Yeah, so it's been four years and he makes a full house reference. Oh, boy. Mm. Why don't Very you just topical. make a Dick Van Dyke reference? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, did, I did like Commissioner Michaels forcing Vince to face Shamrock and then Vince immediately being like, oh, Shane will do it. And why not? Just just offer Shane up, he'll do it. Oh, fuck Shane. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much the message, I think, yeah. And so after that segment concludes, we cut backstage where we see The Rock entering the building while some guy walks behind him holding his bag. So Rock asks the guy if he wants a tip, and the dude says yes. So Rock reaches into his pocket, pulls out a wad of cash, and then motions as though he's about to backhand the poor guy. I mean, what the fuck was that? I expect that kind of behavior from corporate heel Rock, but not the super babyface who's trying to take Undertaker's title tonight. Am I wrong on this, Sal? This seemed really heelish, didn't it? Yeah, so about that. I had made a note of this when when we see Rock come into the the shot here. And he hasn't found his babyface character yet. Hmm. He's still dressing with the $5,000 shirts. He's still treating the people around him like he did when he was heel. Hmm. Now, being the host of WrestleMania Salvation, I watched The Rock from year to year. So going from 15 to 16, when he cut a promo at WrestleMania 2000, it was night and day compared to his heel character. I don't think he's quite found that babyface character yet, but he's going to get there. He's going to get there probably, I don't know exactly when it comes, but I know it's there by the time Jericho gets here. Who knows when that will be? I guess we just have to stay tuned to find out. Right. Well, well more more on that in a little bit. But Yes, but so after our first commercial break of the evening, we go backstage where Vince is ranting to Shane and the Mean Street Posse. There you go, your boys. And amusingly, even though Vince is responsible for booking Shane to face Shamrock, he asks Shane, quote, How the hell do you get into these damn situations? What a dick. What a dick. Right? He's like, Jesus, Shane, you're always getting yourself into this stuff. But dude, you put him in the match. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. And so we then go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and holy shit, Sal, how's this for a Sunday night heat opener? The Hardy Boys, accompanied by Michael P.S. Hayes, versus brood members Edge and Christian, who are accompanied by Gangrel. And I have to say, Sal, this is actually pretty interesting, because the most frequent brood pairing up to this point has been Edge and Gangrel, but now we have Christian teaming up with Edge instead. So, call me crazy, I think they might be onto something here. I think it's possible. And here I, <laughs> I was very surprised when I saw that this match was going to be Matt and Jeff Hardy, the Hardy Boys, versus essentially the Brood, mm-hmm. represented tonight by Edge and Christian. I was like, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah. But then. <laughs> but then I forgot what year it was, and I was very quickly reminded. Yes. But I will say, though, at the start here, of all people... Kevin Kelly actually gives us a very prescient line when he calls this match, quote, a tag team match for the millennium. So got to give him credit there. He knew what was up, even though those teams were pretty low on the totem pole. He could see who the future was. And also, by the way, Sal, how crazy is it that 21 years later, three of the four participants in this match are still actively wrestling on television? I think that's pretty amazing, especially considering all the crazy shit they'll end up putting their bodies through in that time frame. No, it is definitely very insane and given the three of the four that are still wrestling i would have not bet on those three specifically at the okay so i'm a little bit confused you're gonna have to help me here 
Mm-hmm. I know, listening to the Raw at Two podcast, that Edge was brought in as a singles wrestler. Mm-hmm. He then associated himself with the Brood. Kinda. Kinda. The way they played it when he first came when he first came in, it was like Edge had a feud with Gangrel. And it was kind of like they they knew each other, but they didn't say how they knew each other. And then eventually, I think it was at Breakdown in September, Christian just kind of like showed up. And then he Christian aligned himself with Gangrel. And so Edge then aligned himself with Gangrel and Christian. And they became the brood in like October-ish, somewhere around there. Okay. But yeah, there, there was never really a concrete explanation given for it. So then I remember they made an association with the ministry and they... Helped hang the boss man at WrestleMania 15. Mm-hmm. So what has Edge been doing since WrestleMania 15? Just kind of nothing. Yeah, a whole lot of losing. Yeah, ah. I mean they've they've still been the Brood and they've been competing in like the the occasional singles match and tag match, but they've been pretty much just losing ever since. Um, also, I was very upset to find out that our commentators for Heat were Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly. Yeah. What? <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Yep, around this time, sadly, it is. Well, at least they don't do the whole night, but whatever. <laughs> yes, that that's true. But yes, and for all that build-up we just gave the match, by the way, it's literally over in a minute, because this one, before it even gets going, your WWF Tag Team Champions, the Acolytes, just run into the ring and beat the shit out of both teams, presumably resulting in a no contest. And after Farouk and Bradshaw empty the ring, Bradshaw grabs a microphone and calls out, of all people... Billy Gunn. Now, if you recall last week on Raw, Mr. Ass teamed with the Acolytes for a six-man tag team match against Road Dogg, X-Pac, and Kane, and then when Billy got the winning pinfall in the match, he took Bradshaw's tag team title belt, and he walked away with it for some unknown reason. So with that in mind, Bradshaw calls out Mr. Ass and says he wants to face him tomorrow night on Raw. He says that he's going to take Billy to school, and he better... Study hard, because he's about to have his final exam. Because, yeah, when I think of JBL, the first thing that comes to my mind is Professor. So, Sal, what did you think of the Acolytes ruining a great match, at least for now? I was very disappointed in myself, because I was like, oh, this is going to be an enjoyable match. And stupid me, thinking that we were going to get a Hardys and and Edge and Christian classic on heat. What is wrong with me? (laughs) Um, I Stay was tuned. a little bit. I was a little bit surprised though that the match was thrown out so quickly, because it was literally what eighty seconds, not even. Yeah, right around there. <sighs> so I put down stupid acolytes. Um, yeah, but it totally makes sense to me that Billy Gunn would claim a tag team title. I mean, hell, he got the pinfall. Right, and he's so used <laughs> to having a tag team title over the years, so he's just confused. That's a good point. And so, after a commercial break, we get footage from last week on Raw, where the big boss man lost to Stone Cold, to which the corporate ministry responded by beating the shit out of boss man backstage. But more importantly than that, though, Sal, what they actually didn't show from that episode of Raw was the very end of the show, where the boss man actually helped The Rock beat up the corporate ministry, and he stood guard on the ring apron with his nightstick, while The Rock sacrificed Paul Bearer on his Brahma Bull symbol. But anywho... That recap provides a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is the two-on-one handicap match, which was scheduled earlier tonight by Vince McMahon, former corporate ministry member, the big boss man, 
versus Viscera and your new WWF European champion, Midian. <clears throat> that is uh, Vissian versus Boston. <laughs> Vissian. Nice. Okay. Unofficial team name there? Yes. For their okay. many, many, many appearances on Heat, and I'm assuming Velocity Prison. <laughs> oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. So early on in the match, after Bossman punches Midian in the face, he takes a moment to look toward the fans, he lifts his arms in the air, and he plays to the crowd. So yes, Sal, it looks like Bossman really is trying to be a babyface here. Talk about something I had completely forgotten about. And for a little while, Bossman actually does pretty well, given the circumstances. At one point, he shoves Viscera into the ropes, and when Big Vis bounces back toward him, Bossman actually manages to pick him up for a Bossman slam. Very nice. And he then goes for the cover, but Midian breaks it up. And then referee Teddy Long goes over to check on Viscera, which provides Midian with the perfect opportunity to smack Bossman in the face with his European title. Midian makes the cover. Teddy Long turns back around. He makes the count. And yes, your winners of the match are Midian and Viscera, or Vissian, if you will. As soon as the match concludes, though, Viscera hits Bossman with a big splash, and he then grabs his nightstick to presumably inflict some more punishment. However, once he does that, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry run out from backstage to provide some backup. So D'Lo and Sexual Chocolate then clean house, and they celebrate in the ring with Bossman. And frankly, Sal, I was kind of shocked at how amped the crowd got for D'Lo and Mark Henry. And if you think the crowd, after seeing that is ready for a big boss man face turn. Well, uh, just wait until tomorrow night on Raw. But anyway, so what did you think of our handicap match here? It was quick. Seems to be a theme tonight. I will say that I did not necessarily mind the notion of big boss man as a face. Hmm. We'll, we'll get to that later. But also... You know, they could have at least ran with D'Lo and Mark Henry and Bossman as, like, a faction for a couple of weeks. They could have been, like, the Oreo cookie or something. That's one way of looking at it. I mean, they really are. Again, we'll get to what happens on Raw, but, I mean, if you look at the past two shows on Raw, he's literally beating up the, the corporate ministry with his nightstick, and he's he's up with The Rock in the main event. He is helping yep. out The Rock in the main event. And then here tonight... Sir. Yeah, and here tonight, Vince is putting him in a handicap situation, and he's getting bailed out by two baby faces. So, like, really, it seems like they did have designs on a big boss man face turn here. And again, I don't remember this at all. We'll see where it goes in just did a little they, bit. Did they, though? But... Did they really have designs? Or did one person backstage have designs, and then someone else was like, <laughs> Yeah, someone else is like, uh, nobody wants to root for the big boss man, apparently. But, but that's um... not true! Look at the fucking reaction! I know, well... Maybe it could have been for D'Lo and Mark Henry. We don't know. Yeah. You could be looking <laughs> at the real deal now. Going to kick your sorry ass out on the street. <laughs> but yeah, either way, again, you'll you'll see what happens when uh, when when Raw rolls around. But let's just say they, uh, they end up being not too sold on the boss man face turn. Mm -hmm. But so after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where the road dog Jesse James is heading to the ring where Jerry the King Lawler is waiting to interview him. And tonight, Road Dog will face China in a King of the Ring tournament match, and he has a few things to say. Okay. Now, Road Dog, by now everybody knows that your first round opponent 
in the King of the Ring tournament is none other than your former friend, China. We know that. But what, what everybody really wants to know is, what's it, what's it like wrestling a girl? First things first, China is no girl. China is a... CEO and a little profanity is the order of the day, but this is still heat, so we got to kind of, you know. It is Sunday, and I apologize. China, dig this. You think you're going to harness the dog? Well, this time, you're not creeping up from behind like a cheap pair of panties. You've got to walk into this ring and get nose to nose with that D-O-double-G. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, because I am a sportsman. China, I'm going to give you three minutes. Three minutes, all you can do, bring everything you got. Because I promise you this, sister, when the three minutes is up, we're going to start kicking it doggy style. The road dog all business tonight. China's never done it doggy style. So as you heard there, Road Dog says he will give China three minutes to... Wait a second. Did I just hear myself say three minutes? No, sorry, that gimmick hasn't happened yet. My mistake. I was going to say, I wrote down the same note. <laughs> How could you not? How could you not? Seriously. But I was slightly confused, though, because Road Dog, it kind of sounds like he's saying that he's going to beat her in three minutes or less. But spoiler alert, that definitely does not happen. Or maybe he was saying he would let her like get in some shots for three minutes and then he would start fighting back. Who the fuck knows? But anyway, Road Dog gets interrupted by China and Triple H. And guess what, Sal? You're here on a historic night because when China and Hunter emerge from backstage, we get the debut of Triple H's new theme song, My Time. Yes, for the past few months, he's been using an instrumental version of the song. But tonight, we finally get the version with lyrics. So Jimmy hit me with that Triple H or whatever the fuck that guy says. So this was the first night that it be 
that they use the official song. Yes. Wow. Okay, here's something. I completely forgot that there was a point in time that China came out to this song. Yeah, for a while she did, yeah. And then I thought, wow, how did she feel years later when Stephanie started coming out to that song? <laughs> oh, jeez. Not too good, I would imagine. Yeah. I don't... I understand they're trying to put China in the same frame as the men wrestlers. It's weird because Road Dog did all this, you know, hubaloo in the past couple weeks about how he doesn't want to fight a woman. And now he just seems like he's gotten over it. He's cool with it. Although when the match rolls around, he is a little bit reluctant at first anyway. It, it goes back and forth, I feel. Like, sometimes he's, like, hesitant. and then Like, he will, he's hesitant to, like, strike her, but he's not hesitant to, like, power slam her. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, well, actually, on that note, so when when Hunter and Triple H come out, so China basically slaps Road Dog in the face, and then her, Hunter attacks him, I should say, and China then hits a low blow for good measure. Remember that for later on. So they start working over Road Dog until X-Pac runs out from backstage to make the save, and that chases Hunter and China away. And what do you know? We actually have a mini DX reunion with a bunch of its former members involved in this segment. Perhaps a bit of foreshadowing for tomorrow night's episode of Raw, but we'll get to that later too. But Sal, what, what did you think overall of Road Dog's promo? And I have to ask as well, are you a fan of the My Time theme song? Huge fan. Huge fan. Oh, okay, all right. I bought WWF the album, I think it was volume four. It was the one that had a greenish cover. I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the one that had this song, and I would pump this song on my CD player in my car that was actually a portable CD player that I had to use the the gimmick that went into the tape deck. <laughs> yes, I remember, yes. <laughs> um, I love the song. I thought it was such a great song. I was actually sad when he transitioned, originally I was sad, when he transitioned to the game, when that became his official theme song. I liked My Time way better for a long time. Do you still, or are you now prefer the Motorhead version? There's still a special spot in my heart for My Time, but Triple H is the game. That, that song is Triple H, in my opinion. That's fair, that's fair. I think I'm kind of in the minority, because I'm not as big a fan of the My Time song, just because, like, hearing it, in its full length, it kind of it, it annoys me at one point because there's the part where the guy's just like, all your stupid rules! And I'm just like, you sound like a 13-year-old who's like, you know, what do you mean I have to be in by 9 p.m., Dad? All your stupid rules! You know, I didn't <laughs> I didn't ask to be born, Dad. That sort of thing, so... That's fair. That is fair. Yeah. I, although I will say, I guess at the time, one of the things that made it appealing was it felt like a heel DX song. Yes, well, it was the same singer, too. Right. So I think that's what I was like, okay, well, this makes sense because Triple H is, you know, former leader of DX, and now it's kind of like the evolution of the character. Whoops. Wait, that comes later. Sorry. <laughs> right, yes. A different evolution. Yeah, what do you think of that theme song? How's the evolution theme song? I'm not as big of a fan, but that's probably because I really didn't watch between 03 and 05. Yeah, I wasn't really either as well. But but that, there you go. An another Motorhead song for you there, too. Also, I, I think it... You know, because I'll never get the chance to mention this on this show again. The King of Kings theme by Motorhead that Triple H every now and then uses. Yeah, right. Underrated. I think it's underrated. I like it. That is a good one, yeah. Triple H, the only guy who gets multiple theme songs for himself. For Motorhead. <laughs> from, right, exactly. Two Motorhead songs. And so, after some commercials, we then get footage from 
during the break, where Val Venus was jumped from behind backstage by Prince Albert. Now, Sal, in case you need a reminder, Albert is not too happy with Val, because this past week on Raw, Val Venus tattooed his initials on Albert's ass. So, yes, that's an actual storyline, folks. And so we then return live where their fight backstage is still going on. And fortunately, they were scheduled to have a street fight on heat. So I guess we're just kicking right into that match. But instead of staying backstage, they actually go right out into the arena and head down the aisle. So yes, folks, this is a street fight, which takes place entirely in the ring. Guess they didn't quite grasp the concept, though. Although in Albert's defense, he did show up for it wearing blue jeans. So at least he respects the street fight tradition. But as you might expect, the match is over in pretty short order as Val takes Albert down to the mat and goes to the top rope, presumably to attempt the money shot. But Draws runs out from backstage and throws Val down to the canvas. And remember, it's a street fight, so that's completely legal. So Val lands on the mat, Albert hooks his leg, Mike Kyoto makes the count, and yes, your winner of the match is Prince Albert. But then, after the match is over, Albert and Draws continue to beat on Val until... The Godfather runs out from backstage, and he helps Val clear Albert and Draws out of the ring. So yes, Sal, it appears we may have a reunion of the tag team, which may or may not be called Supply and Demand. So Sal, what did you think of this match between Sal Venus and Prince Salbert? (laughs) This is actually a historic match for me as a fan. Hmm. And this is the first time I watched it. And it's historic in the sense that now that I've watched this match, I will never, ever go into watching Heat thinking it will be good again. <laughs> ever. This, this is the one that finally did it for you. I was like, oh, cool, a street fight. Wow. What a street fight. <laughs> a, street, a street fight in the ring. A street fight in the ring with barely any weapons, and it lasted again probably three. No, not even three minutes. It was, I made note of it. It was one minute and 57 seconds. Oh, my God. And that's with it starting backstage and making it to the ring, and it still lasted less than two minutes. Which, the other thing about starting backstage, if they fought around the backstage, all right, maybe that's not, like, as bad, but they just fought just straight into the entrance and then down the aisle. Right, and we don't even have a hardcore match on the show tonight, so it would have actually made sense if they had, like, a bit of a hardcore match backstage. Yeah. Again, this was me, like, thinking... Wow, a street fight on heat, and then going, oh, yeah, that's heat, of course. Indeed. And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our Sunday night heat main event, another one that probably is not going to go very long, your reigning king of the ring, Ken Shamrock, versus Shane McMahon. And one quick side note, Sal, when Shane makes his entrance, Kevin Kelly says that he has an Ivy League education, which is news to me because Shane and I both attended Boston University, so apparently that means I also have an Ivy League education. I didn't even realize it. That's crazy. Now you can put that on your business card. <laughs> yeah, I guess I have to. Ivy League education. And Sal, as soon as the match begins, my first thought here was, okay, how's Shane going to manage to escape this one? And we quickly get the answer, because once Shamrock takes him down and puts Shane in the ankle lock, the lethal weapon Steve Blackman emerges from backstage and smacks Shamrock in the head with a kendo stick, drawing the disqualification. And Sal, just in case you need a reminder, Blackman actually returned to Raw last Monday after a three-month absence and hit Shamrock with a kendo stick that night as well. So it appears that the Lethal Weapon is harboring a bit of a grudge for some reason. And then, once Blackman leaves and heads backstage, Shane actually kicks Shamrock in the ribs for good measure. 
And after some commercials, we then get footage from during the break where we see Shamrock bleeding from the mouth, and you can also see the marks the kendo stick left on his body as well. And we then see Blackman backstage as he calmly takes his bag and just walks right out the door. So I guess his night is over after putting in a solid two minutes of work. Or maybe it isn't. Hmm. But then we go live backstage where Shamrock is down on the ground and EMTs are trying to check on him. But Shamrock yells at them and they run away. And shit, I probably would too. But now Shamrock will have to compete in the King of the Ring tournament tonight with internal injuries. So he's probably not the odds on favorite to retain his crown at this point. So, Sal, what did you think of Shamrock versus Shane and the involvement of Steve Blackman? So first to address Shamrock being the, the favorite or not so much. Uh, I will quote Hollywood Hulk Hogan, not anymore. <laughs> Secondly, I I will say this as much as I as I did not enjoy Sunday Night Heat. At least Shamrock did get a few shots in. I think he even got the belly to belly at one point. So that that was not like the biggest payoff, but it was it was okay. You know, um, I was really I remember at the time I was really looking forward to like a Steve Blackman Ken Shamrock feud. Yeah. But like a like a real one, you know, like oh these guys are gonna beat the shit out of each other, like right, exactly, because these guys have both been played up as like they're two insane badasses. So oh man, what would happen if their paths eventually crossed? Right, right. Also, I did appreciate Blackman just leaving nonchalantly after the beating. Yeah, like I'm a hitman. I did my job. Not a hitman, you know. That's another guy, but. Yeah, I mean, he he does hit men with objects, so yeah, that kind of counts. But yeah, I mean, it's very much in the Steve Blackman character, I would say, to just be like, I'm going to kick his ass and I'm just going to walk out the door as, as, you know, nonchalantly as possible. But so from there, we go back into the arena one more time where The Rock is heading to the ring. So let's take a listen to what he has to say. Just because you're six foot ten, 320 pounds, and you got a 33 pound head, that you impress the rock. That you impress the rock with all your little Mickey Mouse tattoos all over your body. Well, the rock says he's got a little surprise for you and the millions the Rock fans, and that is this. He's going to show them all your two new tattoos tattooed right on your ass. Which on your left cheek, it has a Brahma bull, and on the right, it reads this. Tonight at King of the Ring, The Rock sacrificed me fast, for he laid the smack down on my candy ass. the time to see whether your body can cash the checks that your mouth's been writing. You will find out two things for sure, Rock. One, is you're not half the man that you think you are. And the second, and the most important, is tonight is the night of the Undertaker. So, Rock, you rest assured. If 
So first of all, when The Rock referenced putting tattoos on The Undertaker's ass, my first thought was, who does he think he is, Val Venus? No, you're absolutely right, because we, we just, literally just saw Val Venus do that to Prince Albert, so... Yeah. So somehow in the span of just six days, Val Venus gives someone an ass tattoo, and The Rock says he wants to give one to Taker, so apparently ass tattoos are all the rage in the WWF right now. But anyway, your WWF champion, The Undertaker, eventually shows up on the Titantron, at which point The Rock's Brahma Bull symbol from last week's episode of Raw lowers from the ceiling, and in a very nice visual, after Taker finishes speaking, The Rock's symbol catches on fire, and that is how we go off the air. And hopefully they were able to extinguish that thing pretty quickly, because it's got to be only like a minute or two until the King of the Ring pay-per-view broadcast starts, so put that shit out. But Sal, what did you think of our show-ending promo here? And do you remember the do you remember I should say the brief period of time where The Rock had his own symbol? I mean, I remember it getting set on fire. <laughs> but no, I enjoyed that that aspect of it. I again, I I, I was thinking of Rock Taker like that actually might have sold me if I was in the ability to buy a pay per view back in 1999. Mm-hmm. Then I might have for the idea of Rock versus taker for the wwf championship yeah it's a pretty marquee matchup would vince and shane versus austin have sold you as well yes because austin because well austin's gonna get it you know he's gonna get his his revenge against these these two mcmahons who played this higher power card for three months or three weeks depending on you know yeah. well it, it made a lot of sense clearly right uh no <laughs> <laughs> no not at all yeah, but no, I mean, that it, it, decent ending to heat, I'll say that. Yes, call your local cable company right now to order. And so one final note about heat before we move on. This episode did a 4.1 rating, which was actually slightly down from the previous week's 4.2. However, that 4.1 rating is also a full ratings point higher than what last week's episode of Nitro did. So yes, even heat is doing substantially higher ratings than WCW at this point. Wait, now you Ouch. said he, he got what? A 4.1? 4.1, and Nitro was at about a 3.1 the previous week. Holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think that WWF or E has been 4. Point anything in like 15 years. Oh, no. Not even close. They... I think maybe a couple years ago they were doing close to that, but probably like like this is like three or four years ago at best. Maybe even longer than that. I don't I was know. Say probably even longer than that. But I I am surprised because Heat at this point in time was still on MTV. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, I'm surprised that that got that much interest. Yeah, I figured it would have been like a two. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, do you see the ratings that get put up for tomorrow night's episode of Raw? You'll, they're they're quite substantial. Let's just say that. There you go. But with that being said, are you ready to get into King of the Ring? No, I said, are yeah. you? No, I'm not going to do it. It's gimmick infringement. Yeah. That stable does still exist, though, somehow. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> 
But so it is Sunday, June 27th, 1999, and we are live from the Greensboro Coliseum Complex in Greensboro, North Carolina, in front of what is literally a record crowd for this building, 19,761 fans. Uh, I thought it was 21,000. I think they said that on the broadcast. They but when definitely I up, said that on the broadcast. Yeah, but when I looked it up, it actually said 19761, which, again, is still a record for wrestling for this building, but they still have to elaborate. God, Jesus. All right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, not very like them at all, hashtag 93,000 fans, but anyway. But some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include... Ten episodes of Raw, seven episodes of SmackDown, including the somewhat recent episode from January 17th, 2020, where John Morrison had his first WWE match in nine years, and quite a few pay-per-views, including the first four Starcade events from 1983 to 1986, the first episode of Clash of the Champions in 1988, In Your House, Unforgiven, from April of 98, where Stone Cold Steve Austin had his first WWF title defense against Dude Love, and The Undertaker beat Kane in the first ever Inferno match, and Survivor Series 2001, where we had the blow-off to the uh, epic WCW invasion angle. So we open the show with a bit of a strange intro video featuring clips of John F. Kennedy, Jesse Jackson, and Richard Nixon's speeches intercut with moments from the Austin versus McMahon's rivalry. And we actually get a bit of a nice touch as they dub over JFK's famous speech by replacing the word country with company, as in, ask not what your company can do for you, ask what you can do for your company. So, that's clever. And from there, we cue up the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. So some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include, is this real? I'm on probation. Paul Bearer for president. Let's go bass fishing. I'll get your coffee, Mr. McMahon. I eat boogers. Handle puppies with care. I am a McDonald's employee of the month with almost all the words misspelled. New York Yankees can suck it. A very prescient sign which says Master P equals bankruptcy. My Dixie wrecked. I just stole this guy's wallet. Shane is a pussy. I am orgasmo. Austin, I'll work for beer. Deborah, sell me your puppies. I like fried pig feet. 31 days till Raw is Jericho. Actually, he's off by 12 days. I seen Tupac and Elvis at Kmart. And a simple but efficient sign that simply says, wet cock. So, Sal, were there... Were there any signs you noticed I happened to miss there? Oh, man, you nailed all of the signs I picked up on. I'm so disappointed that uh, I didn't catch as many as you did. I got the let's go bass fishing with bass drawn, specifically what looked like two breasts into the bee. For Nicole Bass, presumably. Yep, the 31 Days Till Raj Jericho I thought was phenomenal. I don't know who that guy was. Or if he was reading the dirt sheets back then, or, you know, counting down the days to Jericho's, non, you know, no-compete clause, or whatever it may be. But, wow, good on that, man, because this was before they even started airing the um, countdown to the Millennium promos. Yes, that's true. Spoiler. Um, Austin, I'll work for beer. I had that one. There were, the only sign, Oh, there was one sign that said, King of the Ring, Badass Billy Gunn, which I thought, okay. Well, maybe. Maybe. 
Uh, and there was one sign that maybe should have said Mick Foley, but it said Vic Foley 469. Oh, okay. I don't know who Vic Foley is, but... And That's, I don't it's know Vic Venom's alter ego. Then that person is wants to be 69, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, the, there were a lot of... Uh, when she was still there, there were a lot of Sable 469 signs. Well, those, yes, those I remember, but I didn't understand Vic Foley 469. <laughs> Unless they were talking about Katie Vick years later, and it's a time traveler, and we caught them. There, there you go. God, God, I hope not. Right. And so the first thing we do, this is this is the way you want to start a pay-per-view off nice and hot. The first thing we do is we go to the commentary table, where our Sunday Night Heat team of Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly have thankfully now been replaced with Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. And we get a recap of what just happened on Heat during the Shamrock-Shane match. And JR speculates that Shane may not be able to wrestle tonight in the ladder match, which seems strange to me because really I think the only moves Shane really took were basically a clothesline and an ankle lock for maybe a few seconds, but so be it. And we then cut backstage where we see that Ken Shamrock is still on the ground, spitting up blood thanks to that kendo stick attack from Steve Blackman. So it appears that he may also have a tough time competing tonight as well. And from there, we then cut elsewhere backstage, again, really starting the show off hot, where Michael Cole was standing outside of Vince McMahon's locker room, and Cole reiterates what JR just said. Shane may not be able to compete tonight, but he hopes to get a word with Vince about this shortly. Mm. And so we go into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a first-round King of the Ring tournament match, X-Pac versus Hardcore Holly. And I've got to say, Sal, it strikes me as pretty funny that they're saying Shane may not be able to compete tonight because he took a friggin' clothesline, and yet here's Hardcore Holly, who literally got a fucking car dropped on him six days ago, and he's walking to the ring like nothing fucking happened. Yep. Although, yes, they, they do kind of walk that angle back a little bit on the show, but as far as we know, going into King of the Ring, Hardcore Holly was indeed crushed by a car. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the visual we saw, so... And speaking of X-Pac and Bob Holly, Sal, it's funny because we discussed this before the show went on the air. I thought I was going to scoop you with this one, Sal, but I'll let the listeners know. The first thing I thought when I saw the match was X-Pac and Bob Holly. My first thought, and this is how you know you've watched too much wrestling, was, hey, do you remember how these guys won the tag team titles together at Royal Rumble 95 and then lost them one night later? That is how you know you've watched too much wrestling. But then, funny enough, before we went on the air here, before we started recording, you basically said the exact same thing. So I think that that stands to reason we have both watched too much wrestling. Way too much wrestling, and I was not even aware that hardcore, I'm sorry, Thurman Sparkplug Holly and the <laughs> One Two Three Kid were tag champs. Like, I mean, I'm sure it existed somewhere in my memory bank, but definitely not anything I would have remembered if not had been for outside influences. So, yeah. And again, like we were saying before the show went on the air, when they won the tag team titles, immediately after that, they do the Bam Bam Bigelow, Lawrence Taylor angle. So it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. But anyway, as for the match itself, it barely goes for three minutes, and our finish comes when X-Pac hits the Bronco Buster on Holly in the corner, which I'm sure that cranky bastard must have just loved. Yeah, bounce your balls into hardcore Holly's face. I'm sure that's a spot he can't wait to take. And on that note, after absorbing that teabagging, Holly rolls out of the ring, grabs a steel chair, and just clobbers X-Pac in the skull with it right in front of referee Mike Chioda. And so your winner of the match via disqualification is indeed X-Pac. But then 
But once the match concludes, Holly hits Pac with a neckbreaker, followed by several stomps to the back of the neck as well, and Holly keeps stomping him until the road dog Jesse James runs out from backstage, causing Holly to retreat. But now, they're playing up the fact that X-Pac has injured his neck, and will that come into play as he goes further into the tournament? We shall see. And from there, we cut backstage, where Terry Taylor flags down Holly and asks him why he just willingly got himself disqualified, and Holly proceeds to refer to himself as the big shot and says everyone else will have to play by his rules. He also says he hasn't forgotten about the big show either, and I would certainly hope not because, as previously mentioned, big show tried to kill him with a car six days ago. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of this match and Hardcore Holly's post-match comments? So... I understand it's King of the Ring. They gotta they gotta move things along. Oh man, just a nothing match here. Just very short, very quick, and then X Pac advances because he got the crap kicked out of him. Like, eh, I didn't Pretty care much. much for it. Also, of course, they pulled this in the first round because they pretty much done this at every King of the Ring tournament. Oh no, how will X Pac carry on? <laughs> how will he be able to compete? Also, also, Terry Taylor? Really? Yes, yeah. Did not see that one coming. If you look at his career, he basically makes a living out of just bouncing back and forth between WWF and WCW just so many times. It's kind of crazy. So did a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think he may hold the record, though. Uh... <laughs> no? Well, look at Ray Trailer. He was the guardian angel for a while in the mid-90s in WCW. True. But, I mean, he, he pretty much only went WWF, WCW, and back. If you look at Terry Taylor, he goes back and forth between both companies pretty, pretty friggin' often. It's kind of crazy. That's true. But, yeah, in terms of this match, I'll say I couldn't help but think of, like, if this was, if this match was, like, four years prior when they were 1-2-3 kid and Bob Holly, like, both of these guys would have been flying around all over the place. But now they're both pretty grounded. You know, X-Pac is still a hell of a worker. Bob Holly is obviously, you know, he's just gotten ridiculously jacked, and he's now hardcore Holly. But just kind of funny thinking of how, how different this match would have been just a few years prior. Well, that's fair. That they, they, Jesus, I went into hardcore Holly mode. But, <laughs> yeah, they, their styles would have been a lot more entertaining a few years ago. And I liked the hardcore Holly character. I just, this match was nothing. Yeah, it definitely gave him something to do as opposed to being, like, just another jobber, you know? Also, was the, was the point of Holly doing this to further his feud with the Big Show? Yes. I see. Yes. Yep, which is funny because I, I, this is uh, this is kind of a moment. The backstage promo is actually a bit of an infamous moment. I know another podcast has made fun of this quite a bit when he says, don't think I've forgotten about you, Big Show. So I, I do have to call that out. I don't want to. I don't want to plagiarize another podcast, but I know a lot of people have mocked that specific promo quite a bit over the years, and rightfully so. So I did want to point that out. But in terms of the Big Show, that actually does provide a pretty fitting segue because after that, those Holly comments, we do go back into the arena for our next King of the Ring first round match, and it is your pay per view poster boy, the Big Show versus Kane. And speaking of that aforementioned car incident, before this match begins, they do indeed show the clip from Raw where Big Show pushes the car onto Hardcore Holly, but Jerry Lawler then does indeed say that the car actually missed Hardcore Holly, which they definitely did not say on Raw. They definitely played it up as though the car fell on him. And oh, just, just by the way, thinking of what happened here, so Big Show pins 
Hardcore Holly after he shoves the car over. So by that logic, was the WWF saying that Hardcore Holly had enough energy to move out of the way of the car, but not to kick out of a one-footed Big Show pinfall? Like, I can't, I can't even. Just whatever. Just don't. <laughs> yeah, I it's can't not, even think about it. I was going to ask you, though, because, yeah, as you mentioned, they, they didn't, best to my recollection, really say that the car did not hit him until tonight. Right. They didn't make it sound like he was squashed, but they didn't try to, you know, change you from that narrative either. Right. I think what they probably did was, like, they initially played it up on Monday as though, like, yes, oh, my God, the car actually did hit him. But then they're like, oh, shit. Well, I mean, if the car did hit him, he probably shouldn't be wrestling six days later. So I'm so, just assuming that was the thought process. That And, Jesus, this guy always makes an appearance on our podcast. Um, that brings up an interesting thing that Jake once said on a podcast where he said, why don't you just take out a gun and shoot the guy? Like, because he was talking about, like, uh, Triple H using a sledgehammer, and he's like, you know, and what planet, if I hit you with a sledgehammer, are you going to be able to come back? Like, you, yeah. you you wrote yourself into a corner. And, yeah, why would Hardcore Holly be able to wrestle five days later, or six days later, as it were, after getting a car thrown on top of him? I assume that was probably their thought process. Like, I mean, we we can just suspend disbelief, but like to have a car drop down you and then and then wrestle like it's no big deal six days later. That's that's a bridge too far. So also, I get yeah. it. they're trying to because they did this very very recently in our in our memories with Braun Strowman. They're trying to show you how powerful the Big Show is, mm-hmm. which is great. But if he's too powerful, then it's gonna be really bad when he loses. Oh, you think he's going to lose, huh? Well, I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he will. I'm just saying, like, if he were to. Yeah. What are you judging that on? All his pay-per-view appearances so far? I was going to say his career in the WWF so far. (laughs) Yep. And actually, Sal, let me ask you a question. Was it ever cool to have not one, but two braids in your hair? Because that's the look that Big Show is rocking tonight. And to me, that doesn't exactly scream unstoppable monster. It's more like... Late night middle school slumber party, if you ask me. <laughs> Two braids fair. in the hair. That is fair. They didn't do him any favors with, with that look. Seriously. Yeah. I think The Undertaker used to rock braids in his hair at one point, too, oh, when yeah, he's sure American he Badass. Yeah. I guess it must have been cool at some point, but I don't know. But anywho, after a couple minutes of action between Big Show and Kane, Big Show goes for a boot, but Kane ducked out of the way, and Show accidentally kicked referee Jimmy Corderas, knocking him out cold, and rightfully so, frankly. And actually, I will call it a pretty nice bump by Corderas, too. And then, with the referee down, true to his word, Hardcore Holly did indeed run out from backstage with a steel chair in order to extract some revenge on the big show. But before he could nail show with the chair, Kane snatched it away from Holly and drilled him with a choke slam, actually getting a very nice pop from the, proud, from the crowd in the process. And after he did that, Holly simply rolled out of the ring and staggered to the backstage area. So I guess he gave up on that revenge plot pretty quickly. And then, holy shit, we proceeded to get the longest chokehold in the history of wrestling. I don't know what the fuck this was all about, but at one point, Kane started choking Big Show, and the spot went on for a minute and 53 seconds. Yes, I timed it. For you horse racing aficionados out there, you could have watched Secretariat's record-breaking running of the Preakness Stakes in the amount of time this chokehold took. And after a while, you can actually audibly hear the crowd starting to get pissed off about it. 
And the spot went on for so long, I was genuinely wondering if someone had fucked up. So I did a bit of research, and what I found out was that apparently Big Show was waiting for some sort of cue from Jimmy Corderas, at which point he would then start fighting back. And, well, needless to say, that cue never came. So eventually they just decide to ad-lib, at which point Kane releases the hold, and he then picks up the chair that Hardcore Holly left behind. And yes, Kane then swung the chair and nailed Big Show with an unprotected shot to the skull. He made the cover. Corderas then regained consciousness. He made the count. And yes, your winner of the match, advancing on to the next round of the tournament, is Kane. So, for those scoring at home, here are Big Show's last four pay-per-view matches. DQ lost to Mankind at WrestleMania. Clean lost to Mankind in the Boiler Room Brawl at Backlash. The Union won their elimination match at Over the Edge, but Show was eliminated during the match, and now he takes a pinfall loss to Kane at King of the Ring. So again, I have to ask, WWF, what the fuck are you doing with this guy? But, Sal, what did you think of the Big Show versus Kane? Fuck that big giant. He's gonna lose. <laughs> yep. He's not uh, one of our guys. Exactly. So, I'm glad you, ta- you told me about the the miscue with Corderas and that there was a reason for the choke because here I thought they actually booked it like that. At least that makes some sort of sense. Now, I will say before then, um, there was a nice double big boot spot that both men hit on each other. Oh, yes. Also, Kane hit a really nice flying clothesline. He did, yep. Uh, and, to, and to be fair, right up into that, I was thinking, oh, this is a decent big man versus big man match. And then the choke. And when we say the choke, we're not talking like Samoa Joe sleeper hole type deal. No, we're talking about Kane's very, you know, traditional one-armed front choke where he puts his his hand on your throat. Yes. And they did that, like you said, it was two minutes, but it felt like five grueling minutes. Because they didn't do anything. They just sat there, and then Big Show went down to a knee, and I'm like, is he just going to pass out? Is that that how this is going to end? Very confusing. Incredibly bizarre. So I'm actually glad you told me that story, because at least it, it makes some type of sense now, but... Kinda? Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not a good match. No, and you can't do a choke spot that long, especially with, like, an Attitude Era crowd where they're, you know, they're used to, like, let's get this on with, let's get this on with. Mm-hmm. That crowd, after a while, was just kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why are we watching this? Yeah, they lost them big time. You could just hear the crowd just slowly being like, what the fuck? Come on, do something. I don't blame him, though, because, like like you said, I'm glad you pointed out the fact that Kane was just literally choking him like like he does with the choke slam. Mm-hmm. But instead of choke slamming him, he's just like, I'm going to put my hand on your throat, and this is going to go on for almost two minutes. So, I mean, literally, Big Show at any point could have just, like, swatted his hand away, you know? But uh, not quite the case. But there is one final interesting note about the Big Show-Kane match here, Sal. Mm-hmm. So prior to this pay-per-view, the artwork for the King of the Ring VHS box actually leaked online, and it said, quote, See the Big Show go through eight men en route to winning the King of the Ring. Which, by the way, yeah, which, by the way, that wouldn't have actually been true. You'd have to go through seven people. But anyway, the point here is that that news was out there on the Internet in advance of this show. So, of course, because this leaked online, the WWF decided to go in a completely different direction and have Big Show eliminated in the first round. And if you listen to Jim Ross's commentary during this match, he talks about Big Show being the odds-on favorite a few times. So clearly they were going for that sort of, like, misdirect there. But yes, apparently the plan was for us to have King 
show. So what do you think, Sal? Would that have been a better result than what we ended up getting later on tonight? Wait, has that been verified, or is that one of those, like, legends? That has been verified, That has been Oh, my God. Yep, because I went back and actually checked it. Because like there, you know, you can go back and check the Observer from back in '99. You can like you could basically read the exact observers from when they went up that week. So yes, it, this was on the internet at the time back in 1999. If I was Big Show, I'd be pissed. I'd yeah. be fucking pissed. I'd be like, you're kidding me, right? Because because you guys don't know how to like keep things under wraps. I'm losing my spot. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that's very okay. So little peek behind the curtain, you were gracious enough to come over and watch the largest Royal Rumble to date at that point, uh, the extra-large Royal Rumble that featured 40 men, right? Oh, yes. So, wait a minute, was it that one? No, no, it wasn't that one. I'm sorry. It was the year following that where we all said the recently returning Chris Jericho was going to win the Royal Rumble. Right. That's right. It was 2012. That's right. Yes, that's it. Because there were all these promos leading up to it, before Jericho returned, talking about the end of the world as you know it, and all these crazy vignettes, and it turned out to be Jericho maybe days before the Rumble. So we all said Jericho was winning. And just because it was common assumption that Jericho was going to win, Vince McMahon decided to pull a swerve at the last second and have Sheamus win instead. Yeah. That was awful. <laughs> And it's kind of a similar situation here, albeit it's not as bad because it's the big show, and I don't know how I would have really felt about Big Show being king, but still, if you're going to course correct just because the internet found out something, that's a bad look in my opinion. Yeah, I wonder too, like, if they had, you know, gone through with that and had Big Show win the tournament, I could see that actually, like, causing a bit of backlash because, I mean, like, if the guy who is, you know, probably the presumptive favorite to win wins if like if the seven foot monster goes into the tournament and just beats everybody that's not really you know too much fun i would imagine from a fan perspective because it's like yeah that was the guy who was supposed to win he's the biggest guy you know it, i don't know if that would have caused any sort of backlash against him but i mean you know i i, I honestly don't know what i would have preferred because like i said big show has just been pretty much a joke for his first uh, couple months here in the wwf because he's you know there are those moments where he, you know throws the car on somebody but when it comes to the actual matches He's not winning. He's losing. So Okay, speaking of which, uh, how was his reaction when he threw the car on Holly last week? Oh, I think the crowd liked it, yeah. From what I could tell, that they were pretty into it because it was a very cool spot. But, I mean, it's it was a nothing match. The match didn't really mean anything. It was just like, you know, the, the whole purpose of the match was to get it backstage so we could see the, the car spot. Right. So, I mean, the fans, the fans for the most part, like, there are those moments, like, when Big Show helps uh, Steve Austin, you know, destroy the Titan Tron and things like that. The fans get into him, but, I mean, like, when you see stuff like this, when he's losing in his pay-per-view matches, it's, it's not impressive. It's not, I would say, a smart thing to do for your big monster heel, let alone the fact that they jobbed him out to Steve Austin cleanly, like, what, six weeks into his tenure? It mm-hmm. was just... You know, it's just stuff like that where it just seems, it seems like they're going out of their way every now and then to just cool this guy off. Well, that's the thing. I'm wondering, right after the, the car flip, if he won the King of the Ring, depending on who was on the other side, you know, would that have popped the fans? Would people have appreciated that? Like, yay, this big show. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I guess we'll never know. Right. Because he never wins the King of the Ring. No, 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 Spoiler alert. 
But from there, we go backstage where Michael Cole is with Vince McMahon, and the chairman says that Shane needs medical attention and won't be able to compete tonight, but we can hear Shane whimpering off screen and saying that he's fine, so will Shane tough it out tonight? I guess we'll see you later on. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, Mr. Ass versus Ken Shamrock, maybe if he's able to compete. And Billy Gunn, by the way, comes to the ring wearing Bradshaw's tag team title belt around his waist. So yes, even though he could potentially be crowned King of the Ring tonight, we're also working this Monday Night Raw angle on pay-per-view. Uh. Hashtag, hashtag character depth. And before Shamrock shows up, Billy grabs a mic and says that he can either come out and get his ass kicked or forfeit, but either way, he's going to beat the world's most dangerous horse's ass. And we then cut backstage where apparently Shamrock doesn't take too kindly to being called a horse's ass, so he throws two EMTs to the ground and walks through the curtain. So yes, the reigning king of the ring is indeed going to attempt to defend his crown. And once Shamrock gets to the ring, referee Teddy Long can be heard telling him that he's in no condition to perform because he's still bleeding from the mouth due to the internal injuries he suffered. So Shamrock protests, but while he's doing that, Billy Gunn gets a running start and drop kicks Shamrock in the stomach, at which point Teddy Long tells the timekeeper to ring the bell to start the match. So, so just to recap that, Teddy Long is telling Shamrock he's too injured to compete, and Billy Gunn then drop kicks Shamrock in the stomach, to which Teddy then apparently says, well, maybe that made him better. Start the match. <laughs> Sal is that type of brilliance that eventually catapults Teddy all the way to the SmackDown general manager position. Holla holla. <laughs> yes. Which, by the way, it's kind of surreal, like, going back and seeing that Teddy Long just started as a referee. I don't even know what, like, precipitates him going from referee to general manager. Is there is there anything in between? I guess he becomes a manager at some point, right? Okay, actually, going way, way back in the Wayback Machine, in WCW, he was a manager. Right. He managed uh, Doom, I believe. I might be making that up. But... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep. And then he was also a referee in WCW, so... I mean, the guy had been, it's kind of like one of those Jim Cornette guys where he's been in the business for like 30 years at this point. Mm. So kind of seamless to make him the GM. He can talk. He always was able to talk. And he always had, I don't want to say a presence. He didn't really have a presence. Yeah, I'd say so. He had a little bit of a, a swag about him, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. Did he do, the, like, was he doing the, the white boy challenges with Rodney Mack before the GM thing? I think he was, right? He was, yes. And actually, you know who else he managed? He managed Ice Train and Scott Norton at one point. They were called Fire and Ice. <laughs> yes, I, I do. I remember that team. I don't remember him managing them, but I do remember Fire and Ice. Also, Long, uh, also a the, fine restaurant. Yes. Teddy Long, the, um, the quintessential man in the wrestling business, you could say. Indeed. But so, yes, we get underway with Shamrock against Billy Gunn. And Shamrock does actually put up a pretty valiant fight, but it's pretty obvious he's in quite a lot of pain. And at one point, he goes for a Hurricane Rana on Billy, but Mr. Ass reverses it into a powerbomb. And when that happens, Teddy Long just calls for the bell. So, yes, that's right. Billy doesn't even pin Shamrock. Apparently, Teddy Long just decides that Shamrock can no longer continue which was already pretty obvious before the match, but he's the one who started it anyway, so sweet Jesus. But yes, your winner of the match via referee stoppage advancing on to the next round is Mr. Ass. And as you might expect, 
Shamrock doesn't take too kindly to that decision, so he then throws Teddy Long out of the ring and down to the floor. But our first semifinal match is now set. Mr. Ass will go up against Kane. So, Sal, what did you think of Shamrock versus Ass? Just when it was starting to get good, Teddy Long stopped the match. Now, granted, he really had no choice. Obviously, uh, Shamrock was coughing up blood, and that was that was actually a good way for Billy to get some heat because, you know, he didn't really win. He just, the other guy just couldn't continue. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't mind it. The only problem I had is that as we are on the uh, third match of the King of the Ring, the opening round has been pretty shit. True. That that's the only problem I really have with it. Yeah, I think that's fair. But but that's a pretty good uh, microcosm of the entire card. Right. Right. So, uh, we'll we'll have to see you know where it goes. I guess. Yeah. Well, on that note, we go to Kevin Kelly, who's backstage with China and Triple H. Apparently, China wanted to be a princess when she was a kid, but tonight she could be a queen instead. And Kevin then asked Triple H about his recent disagreements with fellow corporate ministry member The Undertaker, and Hunter says that he takes orders from nobody. So, hmm, perhaps we still have a little bit of dissension in the ranks, hmm? Perhaps. But that interview provides a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena where it is now time for our next King of the Ring tournament match, the Road Dog Jesse James versus China, who is accompanied by Triple H. And remember, Sal, on Sunday Night Heat, Road Dog said he was going to give China three minutes, but this match somehow ends up going for more than 13 minutes, so I guess Road Dog's comments will forever remain a mystery. <laughs> Surprisingly, though, they actually do a bit of wrestling here at the beginning, keeping it very basic with lockups, headlocks, and forearms, since, you know, China has barely wrestled up to this point. However, China does indeed dominate the early part of the match, with Road Dog not even able to get a shot in on her. In fact, the only time Road Dog manages to land a move is when China attempts to Irish whip him into an opposing turnbuckle, but Road Dog reverses it, and China flies over the top rope and down to the floor. But, thanks to some Triple H interference behind referee Earl Hebner's back, China quickly goes right back on the offensive. And at this point, Jim Ross asks Jerry Lawler what he would do if he was in the ring with a woman, to which the king responds by saying, and I quote, You know what I'd do? I'd knock her right on her ass. That's what I'd do. Of course you would, Jerry. Yeah. So Jerry Lawler, who is currently about to run for the mayor of Memphis, apparently felt like giving his political opponents some ammunition for those campaign ads. Very nice of him. Oh, and JR. Good on JR, because this is is what JR used to be so good at, and he still does it only not as subtly he he fucking buries king about that mayor stuff you know, that's not yeah that's not what a mayor would say king that's not what a mayor would do <laughs> oh my god it's so fucking funny as they go through the night i'm not sure if you were aware but did you know that china trained with triple h at the kowalski school in massachusetts i did know that yeah so she i mean, obviously god knows how many actual matches she had under her belt at this point probably you know maybe like 20 or 30 tops but i i would say china was better in the ring at this point or at least more experienced than even the big show yeah i mean she doesn't look terrible here she like again they keep it very basic but i mean it gets the point across because the fans the fans in in this match were very much into this match they wanted to see road dog fight back but like every time he tries to china just kind of like cuts him off at the pass mm-hmm. and i mean really you know she is dominating the early parts of this match she's she's very much in control so that's that's something you know they they let her uh, have a little bit of shine there 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before I forget, by the way, uh, those campaign ads, would you like to know how they would go? Oh, God. <laughs> how would they go? Well, I think it would probably be something like, Jerry Lawler thinks it's acceptable to hit a woman. <laughs> would you trust him to run your city? Jerry Lawler, wrong for Memphis, wrong for America. There you go. I think that's probably how it would go. Nice and just play that clip. Just play the clip of him saying he'd knock the woman on her ass and boom. Although, by the way, I, I have to say, Sal, he does legitimately finish third in that mayoral race. So he, he actually provides a pretty good showing for himself. Third out of like 12 or 14 candidates, something like that. It's Memphis, ten Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, they're going to be a very large contingency that's going to vote for Lawler. Yeah, he is basically like an unofficial mayor of the city anyway. Right. Has been for years, so... Yeah, very true. But anywho, continuing on, at one point, Triple H takes a chain and punches Road Dog in the face behind Hebner's back. China goes for the count, but it only gets two. And at that point, Commissioner Shawn Michaels then emerged from backstage. So Triple H jumped up on the ring apron, but HBK pulled him down, and he then proceeded to order Hunter to go backstage. Meanwhile, back in the ring, China nailed Road Dog with a low blow... But then she clutched her arm in pain, and as it turned out, that crafty road dog then pulled a metal cup out from his pants. And funny enough, Sal, here in the present day in 2020, Johnny Gargano actually did a similar reveal in his match with Tommaso Ciampa on NXT in April. Remember, Gargano also pulled out a cup and did the old, uh-uh-uh, my balls were actually protected. But really, though, I mean, if you're a wrestler, why wouldn't you always protect them? I don't know. Anyway, never mind. So... That being said, and you are correct, Johnny Gargano just did that angle. There, there's apparently two ways to do that angle. You, you do that angle the way Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae did it, where it doesn't hurt, and, and Johnny just fakes being hurt for a little bit. But then you, Or you do this one where you make it look like China hurt her arm because she forearmed a metal cup. Right. It's a cup. I don't think China... Like, she was rolling around like she broke her arm. Right. Well, that, that cup was made of pure steel. What is it, Lex Luger's forearm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. The same material. Got it. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so Road Dug then nails China with a pump handle slam. He makes the cover. Earl Hebner makes the count. And yes, your winner of the match, advancing on to the next round to face fellow stablemate X-Pac, is indeed the Road Dog Jesse James. And Jim Ross then gives us an amusing call when he says, quote, we can all say we saw China get it doggy style in Greensboro. OJR, just wait a few years until she falls on hard times, but... Oh, Jesus. I will <laughs> say, though, like I said before, the crowd really does eat up this match. So what did you think? Were you as much into it as the North Carolina fans were? This is the match of the night so far. This, this had This had everything. This had, you know, the dastardly heel tactics. This had good storytelling, because that's what China's been doing, is hitting people in the nuts. Mm -hmm. uh, and Road Dog outsmarted her. How do you feel about China about Road Dog not doing the thrusting motion before he hit the pup handle slam as he so typically did? Yeah. Well, at this point, he's only done that a couple times. It hasn't become like a like a recurring thing. It's only been like I think he's only done it once or twice. But um, I mean, you know, probably would have made sense for him to do it. He does want to humiliate a former DX member, so I mean, he probably. You know, it, it wouldn't have been out of place for him to do it here, but uh, I'm okay with him not doing it at all. Uh, uh, it would not have been out of place. However, I wonder if the, um, I don't want to say the censors because it is pay-per-view, but I wonder if people 
would have not appreciated him doing that to a woman, even in 1999. And by people, you mean Triple H, probably? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I don't think so. Right. But yeah, because they were still dating at this point, so. That's fair. Yeah. Actually, no. nah, we'll get to it. Nah, I won't spoil it. We'll get to it. But I do agree with what you're saying about this being match of the night so far. This was I was surprisingly entertained, especially for a match between China and the Road Dog that goes for 13 goddamn minutes. That could easily be a disaster. But again, it was they hit the right beats. There were certain moments like Shawn Michaels coming out and the cup and all that where they mix in like certain things. And again, like I said, with uh, China, you know, working over Road Dog for such a huge portion of it where you're like, come on, Road Dog, fight back, you know, try to try to win the match. So they, they did actually book this very, very well for for what it was between, you know, two people who are not exactly ring generals. So, yes, thumb, thumbs up for this match. So, oh, by the way, you had mentioned Shawn Michaels coming out, right? Did you notice he changed his shirt by this point? Yes, I think I actually note that a little bit later on, yeah. He's not wearing the, the Spurs shirt anymore. Yeah, he's wearing uh, the Shawn Michaels uh, wrestling school shirt. That's right, the the very school that Daniel Bryan will attend just a few months after this. I was gonna, That's what I had in my notes. Michael's taking a break from training Daniel Bryan. That's right, yep. <laughs> but no, seriously, I did enjoy this match. Like you said, Road Dog, obviously an Armstrong knows how to wrestle. And then um, China was great. China was great in her role. And I know that role expands as 99 goes on, but uh, she was really good. Yeah. And, and just again, just to repeat, this is not like um, the portion where China is like an everyday active wrestler. She's had like a stray match here and there. But I think the last time we saw her wrestle was probably at St. Valentine's Day Massacre when it was in like a tag match. So it's been a while. I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that was the last time we actually saw her get in the ring. So, again, we're, we're not quite at that part where she's doing this regularly. So, you know, a, a good showing. A good showing say, so far. We're close, though, because she's in the fucking king of the ring. I mean, like, that's a pretty, you know, there's only eight spots. They could have really put so many other people in there. So they definitely were going in that direction, I would say. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I should say she has been. I think she has wrestled a couple matches on Heat as part of the King of, King of the Ring tournament. But like before that, we haven't really been seeing her in the ring. But right, right, yeah. But so from there, we go backstage where Michael Cole is with The Rock, and it's a pretty brief promo. But essentially, he quote unquote speaks in tongues in order to mock the Undertaker. And his version of speaking in tongues is quote, "Ooh la la, zabada, The Rock kicking your candy ass all over God's green earth." So. Pretty entertaining. I'm telling you, he's so close. Like, you can see it. He's on the cusp of of that guy who just, like, I'm, I'm thinking when when he he does all that stuff with Kevin Kelly in the next, like, year or so, he, he, where he just commands the room. The, here's the thing with Rock right now. Rock is good and he's entertaining. He will very soon become electrifying. Yes. Well, I think we're only about two weeks away from that promo where he basically ends Billy Gunn's career. So, Well, yes, if, the if way he becomes electrifying is basically by annihilating everybody else on the microphone. Yes, burying the shit out of everybody. Yeah, there it is. And so from there, we head back into the arena for our next match. And hey, what do you know? This match got interrupted by the Acolytes earlier tonight on Heat. So we're just going to go ahead and do it on the pay-per-view instead, which is fine by me. Brood members Edge and Christian versus the Hardy Boys, who are accompanied by Michael P.S. Hayes. And on that note, Sal, welcome to the WWF pay-per-view debut for the Hardy Boys. And I don't think they're going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So great, so great. And I don't mean to interrupt you. So great to see the Hardys here. Are we going to just pretend that Doc Hendricks never happened? 
Is that what they're doing here? They did a thing on like uh, the pilot episode of SmackDown where the brood mocked him and, you know, called him Michael and then like did the bloodbath and that was kind of like this transition. Uh, yes. Okay, I do remember that now. All right, all right, I guess that's fine. But it's it's so funny how quickly they drop to hold the whole any reference to Doc Hendricks whatsoever. Yes, he was Doc Hendricks when that SmackDown pilot interview started. But by the end, he was Michael P.S. Hayes. <laughs> they finally admitted it after all these years. Right. And so Jim Ross informs us that whichever team wins this match, they will become the number one contenders for the Acolytes Tag Team titles. So yes, the Brood, who I don't think have won a match ever, can become the number one contenders if they win tonight. Okay then. However, they will have to overcome the hometown advantage the Hardys have. Remember, we're in Greensboro, North Carolina tonight, just about an hour away from the Hardys' hometown of Cameron, North Carolina. And early on in the match... Edge and Matt Hardy were actually going at it for a bit, and I couldn't help but think, oh boy, what a journey those two will end up going on in the coming years, but that'll be particularly in 2005, but another podcast can cover that whole thing. (laughs) But then continuing on, we get the spot of the night as the Hardys go for poetry in motion on Edge, but that crafty Edge, he hops up to the second rope, so when Jeff steps on Matt's back and leaps into the air, Edge fucking spears him right out of midair. And I have to note, this gets a big oh from the Greensboro crowd, which is pretty impressive because both of these teams are very low on the totem pole right now. And hey, Sal, if Edge spearing Jeff from the second rope gets such a big reaction, can you imagine what would happen if Edge ever speared Jeff Hardy from like a much higher height sometime in the future? I mean, a man can dream. It'll probably never happen, but I'm sure he'd get an even bigger reaction. And then the finish of the match comes when Edge grabs Jeff by the waist from behind and Gangrel tries to seize that opportunity by spitting blood into Jeff's face. But Jeff ducks, causing Gangrel to accidentally spit blood into Edge's face. Instead, Jeff then hits Edge with a twist of fate. He makes the cover. Referee Tim White turns around. He makes the count. And yes, your winners and the new number one contenders to the Acolytes Tag Team titles are the Hardy Boys. So, Sal, what did you think of this match? What a treat uh, seeing these guys, you know, when they first started this journey and knowing, you know, with hindsight where they'll end up. This was amazing. This was so much fun to see them. And I was not aware that we were setting the table for the spear heard around the world, you know, um, in just a few short months at WrestleMania. Well, I think that one doesn't come till the 2001 WrestleMania. I like I said, think. a few short 18 months until WrestleMania. <laughs> and it was so, yeah, and you could see the crowd went nuts for it, which obviously planted the seed like, hey, they went nuts for that. I wonder if they would go nuts for something else. Yeah, I feel like that had to be the thought process, too. Like, they were thinking, you know, further down the line, they're like, hey, remember that time in Greensboro, King of the Ring, when I got on the second rope and speared? Do you think we could maybe do something else with that? you think that would work again? Yeah, seriously. I mean, remember that got a reaction when I was just on the second rope? What if we go a little bit higher? How about that? But, yeah, it was it was fun seeing them. And I know that eventually they get rid of, of Michael Hayes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly when, but I'm I'm trying to like, because it's so weird with revisionist history and knowing what stars these guys become. I'm trying to think of how they fit as far as the fans' perspective, even before like the TLC matches. Like, right. were were they getting over, or were people just like, yeah, those guys do like some fun stuff? Yeah, it's funny you mention it because they, I mean, they the Hardys are basically up until 
last month. The Hardys were basically like fixtures on Sunday Night Heat. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, it might have been the episode of Raw before Over the Edge, I think it was. They just threw the Hardys out there against, I think it was Edge and Gangrel just to have a tag team match. And the Hardys were like, this was basically their first exposure on Monday Night Raw in any lengthy match. And they were just doing their crazy moves flying all over the place. And the crowd was fucking into it. And they gave, I think even though... Uh, the Hardys and Edge and Christian, like again, they're very low in the totem pole. I think they gave them like six or seven minutes for that match, and the crowd was just eating it up. So basically, the Hardys have kind of been like coasting off that ever since, being like, "Oh, these guys get a reaction when they come out." Like they're the crowd really gets behind these two crazy dudes. So literally, I think it all pretty much stems from that one match. Where I mean, the the crowd's been with them ever since. You know, like they want to see what the Hardys do next because you know you'll have Jeff just flying over the top rope and taking those crazy spears and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, the fans uh, the fans are, are very much enjoying what they've seen so far of the Hardys. Also, it's really important to mention that, you know, thank God for the Hardys, because what would have happened to Edge and Christian if it wasn't for the Hardys? Mm. Would they have been, like, too much, literally? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And from there... We go backstage where Michael Cole is with your WWF champion, The Undertaker. So Cole asks Taker if he'll be able to withstand the charge of the Brahma Bull tonight, which Taker rightfully says is a stupid question. What kind and of so stupid Taker, question is that? Yeah. But then Taker asks a question of his own, and I quote, What happens when you rip the balls off a bull? And then he just walks away. I, I kind of expected there was going to be more to that, but... Apparently not. He's just going to rip the Rock's balls off, so fair enough. And then we go back into the arena where Vince McMahon is headed to the ring, and he provides us with an update on his son Shane. You are a very rude audience. Very rude. And Vince is from North Carolina. They should be down on their knees, these southern idiots. I believe in the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. But unfortunately... Due to Commissioner Michaels' ruling earlier on, he placed my son Shane in harm's way. More specifically, he placed Shane in Ken Shamrock's way. And unfortunately, Shane will not be able to compete here tonight. Oh, no. I think Daddy Dearest put Shane in harm's way. This is a disaster. Therefore, I regret to inform you that the handicap match, winner-take-all ladder match with Shane and Vince McMahon against Stone Cold Steve Austin will not take place here tonight. Oh, come on. Travesty. That's not right. This is awful. Do it by yourself, Vince. What? Why not? Now, hold on one second there, Vin Man. Wait a minute. Not him again, please. Wait just one second. It seems to me, since I'm the sheriff around these parts, I'll be the one that decides which matches will or will not take place. And you're going to have to wake up a lot earlier in the morning to weasel out of this match, especially when old HBK is on the beat. That's making me start to lose my smile. You misunderstood. In your own words earlier tonight, Mr. Commissioner, you said suitable replacement. Oh, no. I can tell you this. Stone Cold Steve Austin is hiding behind you, and I'm not going to let that happen, okay?
okay? Yeah. Because in this ring tonight, it will be Stone Cold versus Vince McMahon and a suitable replacement. So, so what are you saying? What I'm saying is, after this is all over, that Vince McMahon will be the showstopper. Vince McMahon will be the main event. Vince McMahon will be the 100% owner of the World Wrestling Federation. Now hit my music. No chance. That's what you got. Boy, he did it. You got it. So as you heard there, we get a bit of Sunday Night Raw as Vince McMahon comes out to the ring for some promo time. He says that Shane is unable to compete due to the injuries he suffered at the hands of Ken Shamrock, and so the scheduled ladder match will not take place. However, this then brings out Commissioner Shawn Michaels, who says he isn't going to let Vince weasel his way out of the match. But then, interestingly, Vince uses HBK's own words against him. Remember on Heat, Sean said that he would accept a suitable replacement to face Ken Shamrock, which is when Vince swapped in Shane. So apparently, because HBK used that terminology, Vince can now appoint his own suitable replacement for Shane in the latter match tonight. And I have to say, Shawn Michaels looked a little bit emasculated here in this segment because he was just kind of looking confused about Vince outsmarting him as though there was nothing he could do about it. I feel like we don't usually see the baby faces looking so helpless, but then again, there's a chance HBK might get the last laugh by the end of the night. So, Sal, what did you think of our Vince versus Shawn showdown? Initially, it definitely sounded like Vince um, outsmarted him, which, you know, we typically will not see but if it is going to happen it will always happen in the middle or the beginning of the show never the end of the show mm-hmm. so that was always in the back of my mind but also i put when vince came out hey look it's the genetic jackhammer who would have <laughs> yeah. thought who would have thought in four years time he'd be going one-on-one with hulk hogan at his wrestlemania who would have thought seriously but yes, so it appear it does appear Vince has gotten one up on Shawn Michaels, but I guess we'll see how that goes down later. And after that segment concludes, we move on to our next match, and it is a King of the Rings semifinal match. Kane versus Mr. Ass, who is still wearing Bradshaw's tag team title belt. And I have to ask, since Billy keeps carrying around Bradshaw's belt, does he does he want to team up with Farouk? And if he did, would that team be called the Assolites. Sorry, I'll, I'll just, I'll move on. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Quick funny coincidence I just realized here, though, Sal. At this point in time, Jerry Lawler's about to run for the mayor of a city in Tennessee, but meanwhile, in the ring, there's another wrestler who actually ends up being elected the mayor of a city in Tennessee. So, life sure is crazy, and by crazy, I mean stupid. But anywho. And of course, you mean Billy Gunn, right? That's right, his Billy Gunn gets elected the mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee. So, so yeah, this match uh, is not that great. The finish comes when Billy gets frustrated and proceeds to grab a steel chair. However, the big show then emerges from backstage and snatches the chair from Billy before he can use it. But meanwhile, back in the ring, referee Teddy Long tries to hold Kane, hold Kane back, I should say. So Kane shoves him to the ground, at which point 
Big Show then smashes Kane in the head with the chair, presumably as payback for Kane doing the same thing to him earlier tonight. Although for some reason, JR plays it up as though Big Show meant to hit Mr. Ass with the chair, but he hit Kane by mistake. But I think it looked pretty intentional to me from what I could tell. But anyway, Billy Gunn then rolls back into the ring. He pins Kane. Teddy Long recovers. He makes the count. And yes, Mr. Ass is headed to the final match of the King of the Ring tournament. But Sal, what did you think of Mr. Ass versus Kane? And who do you think Big Show meant to hit with that chair? Big Show came down there to hit Kane. Then Billy Gunn decided to call him a stupid son of a bitch. Just like Chris Jericho. (laughs) And Big Show was like, all right, I'm going to hit you then because you just called me a name. And unfortunately, he still couldn't even do that right. And Billy wins. (sighs) Got all that? (laughs) (laughs) Although I will say, if I were to watch this uh, live in... In the year 1999, there is no way, no way when I look at the other bracket that I'm thinking Kane is going to win here. Right. Yeah, King Kane would certainly be a weird fit. <sighs> yeah, to say the least. Picture him walking around with, like, the scepter and the uh, the little crown. I'm King Kane. Although, actually, his original costume did have a cape, so it's not that far off. Oh, God. <laughs> And so we then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with X-Pac, who is still selling his neck injury from his match with Hardcore Holly earlier tonight. So Kevin Kelly asks X-Pac if he has mixed emotions facing his fellow DX stablemate, the Road Dog, and he confirms that he does. And then X-Pac proceeds to expose the damn business by saying, quote, Road Dog, Brian James, Jesse James, man, you're one of my best friends. And at this point, I bet a bunch of non-Smark fans were probably like, Why the hell did you just call him Brian? That's not his name. So X-Pac then heads to the ring, and once we get his entrance, we cut right back to Kevin Kelly, who is now with the Road Dog, and he also gives a bit of a shaky promo as he refers to his pal as X-Pac, and then he immediately corrects himself and says, I said X-Pac, and I meant X-Pac. So apparently, both of these guys being in DX together for almost a year and a half and neither of them know what the other guy's gimmick name is, so way to go. But anyway, that segues us back into the arena for our next match, and it is a King of the Ring semifinal match, DX member X-Pac versus DX member the Road Dog Brian James. And by the way, Road Dog is wearing a DX t-shirt, which still has Triple H, China, and Billy Gunn pictured on the back of it. Dude... Get a new friggin' shirt. That version of DX has been dead since WrestleMania 15. And honestly, I kind of expected this match to get a good amount of time, since it features two DX members going at it. But no, we only get three minutes and seven seconds of the DX powers exploding. And the finish of the match came when Road Dog went for the pump handle slam, but X-Pac escaped out of it, and when Road Dog turned around, Pac kicked him in the stomach, followed by an X-Factor, X-Pac made the cover, Jimmy Corderas made the count, and yes, your winner of the match, advancing on to the finals of the King of the Ring tournament to meet Billy Gunn, is indeed X-Pac. And immediately after he wins, X-Pac goes right back to selling his injured neck, even though, I repeat, this was only a three-minute match and Road Dog wasn't working over his neck at all. Hashtag continuity. 
And then, in a showing of good sportsmanship, Road Dog gives X-Pac a hug after the match and holds the middle rope open for him. So yes, even though the two remaining DX members just went head-to-head, there appears to be no ill will between them. But Sal, I've got to wonder, with the way the brackets were set up here, do you think most fans were expecting that Road Dog would win this match to set up a Road Dog billy Gun final? I mean, admittedly, we did already get that match at Over the Edge a month ago, and two weeks, on, two weeks ago on Raw, I should say, we had the Dog Pound match between the two of them, so maybe they thought a third time would be too much, but I don't know, I still assume the fans would rather see Ass versus Dog than Ass versus Pac, but I don't know, what say you there? I 100% agree. I would have thought, yeah, Road Dog versus Billy Gunn. The Outlaws explode. I don't know about you, me personally, when when Road Dog held the rope for X Pac after the match, I, I I got a tear in my eye and I thought, What a man, what a joke <laughs> Because this was uh this was not good. In fact, let's take it back for a second. The whole pre match promo bullshit was this is going to be the toughest match of my career. Stop. Mm. Just fucking stop. Yeah. That was a really tough three-minute match. Oh, my God. But that being said, I was kind of surprised. Like, the better story is Road Dog versus Billy, right? Like, why? Yeah, why I think not so. even give us that? But I guess, fuck us, right? <laughs> right. Fuck the fans. They don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, the the theme of this match, by, by this, the theme of this show by the end, I should say, is definitely fuck the fans because uh, they don't go out of their way to send you home happy on this one. Let's just say that. But from there, we get a video montage which takes us into our next contest, and it is the WWF Championship match. Champion, The Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer versus Challenger, The Rock. And I have to say, Sal, this Greensboro crowd has been pretty dead up to this point. But holy shit, they sure wake up for The Rock, don't they? Yes, they do. And before the match could even begin, we get a bit of a strange moment as Taker hands his title to referee Mike Kyoto, And then, when Kyoto turns around to hand the belt to someone at ringside, Taker just blasts Kyoto from behind with a clothesline. Okay, then. So before we even get into that, I made a note of this. I really liked the promo Taker cut earlier when he said, uh, you know, what happens to a Brahma bull when you cut off its balls? Mm-hmm. My only problem was when we went backstage, Taker just appeared so normal. Like, yeah. he, he wasn't in the darkness, he wasn't in the shadows, he just looked like a jobber just standing there, like, waiting to get uh, to get interviewed. I, I, I didn't feel like Taker, he didn't have that presence, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, he needed to have some blue lighting or something. Something. And then he comes here and he just fucking attacks Mike Kyoto. like, what? What did he ever do to you? Yeah. Yeah, that was very strange. And also why, I guess, I guess the bell hadn't rung, so there's no DQ, but yeah. So shortly after that, after he attacks Kyoto, Rock quickly hits Taker with a rock bottom. But of course, because Kyoto's knocked out, Earl Hebner runs down to the ring and Hebner then counts the one, the two, but not the three because Paul Bearer pulls him out of the ring and lays him out with one punch. And again, I'm not even sure why Hebner tried to count because the bell hasn't rung, but whatever. So the match continues on, and Mike Kyoto manages to recover, so we have our regular referee back in the mix, and Taker quickly hits Rock with a choke slam. and interestingly, Sal, he actually does the crossed arms pinfall attempt, but Rock kicks out. And funny enough, I actually appeared on the New Blood Rising podcast with William Rankin a few months ago, and we talked about the Undertaker-Shawn Michaels match at WrestleMania 25, and during that episode, I asked, 
Was that the first time anyone kicked out of the crossed arms pinfall? And clearly it was not, because Rock does it here at King of the Ring 99. Although, admittedly though, Taker only hits him with a choke slam here before pinning him, so it was not a tombstone. Different case there. Of course, yeah, you can't. No, that doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, real One note real quick is that, um, I don't know if you heard this, I felt like JR the whole night was taking shots at WCW. <laughs> yeah, that's that's in character with JR. Because you, you pointed out, Rock got that huge reaction. And, you know, that's when we finally heard the crowd. And JR makes it a point to say, you believe it, folks, 21,000 in, in the Greensboro Coliseum. They've never had 21,000 in the Greensboro Coliseum. Not close, not by a long shot. Right. Wow, JR. You, sir, are a dick. Yeah. He should have just added, like, and they did the first four Starcades here, fans. It pretty much said it without saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, in fairness, he was right. I mean, well, not that this show got 21,000. It was, you know, 19 and change. But even still, it was the biggest crowd to ever witness wrestling in this building. So, I mean, they could have just gone with that and still been accurate. But there's always... You always got to inflate these things. You got to add like the uh, the 5% WWE surcharge, basically, when it comes to the attendance. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, so after that uh, kick out there, we go on a bit of an adventure as both men start brawling up the aisle, which Kyoto completely allows without counting them both out. Or maybe Taker just clotheslined him so hard he forgot the rules. Who knows? But after Taker throws Rock into a steel barricade and suplexes him in the aisle, both men head back toward the ring. But of course, this is the Attitude Era, and the ring is only a temporary detour because they both end up brawling right through the crowd, with Kyoto once again deciding not to count them out. And at one point, Rock appears to ask for a fan's beer, and he then splashes it right in the Undertaker's face, so that poor fan is likely out ten bucks. But then, when they come back over the railing and brawl near the commentators, we actually get a pretty cool spot. So Rock grabs a chair and goes to swing it at The Undertaker, but in the meantime, Taker has grabbed the ring bell, so when Rock swings the chair, Taker uses the bell to basically bounce the chair right back into Rock's face. Pretty funny, but... And also, uh, by the way, no, we do not get a disqualification there either. And continuing on, eventually Rock went to Irish whip Taker, but Taker reversed it, and he accidentally whipped Rock into Mike Kyoto, knocking him down to the mat again. And at that point... Paul Bearer proceeded to pull out an ether-soaked rag and hand it to Taker, but Rock managed to snatch it from him. And, just like Giant Gonzalez did to Taker at WrestleMania 9, Rock grabs the rag and smothers Taker with it. However, once he does that, corporate ministry member Triple H runs out from backstage. And earlier tonight, Triple H said he doesn't take orders from anybody... But he does indeed proceed to help out his fellow stablemate, grabbing the rock and nailing him with a pedigree. Hunter then runs off backstage as Mike Kyoto gets back to his feet. And then we get a bit of a weird finish. With both men down on the canvas, Kyoto proceeds to start counting, but Taker gets up at the count of nine, and he then goes over to cover the rock, but rock kicks out at two. So, okay, so rock gets pedigreed, but he's still in the fight, right? Well... No, because Taker then simply picks him up and nails him with a tombstone just seconds later. He makes the cover, Kyoto makes the count, and yes, your winner and still WWF champion is The Undertaker in just a little more than 19 minutes, according to Wikipedia, even though there was never actually an official bell to start the match. So, Sal, what did you think of our WWF title match here? You would know better than I do. Is there an unwritten rule in in the Attitude Era that... 
for the WWF title, it's no DQ. Like, we don't say that, but we're kind of yeah. going to go with that. It certainly seems that way, yeah. Because, you know, even going back to WrestleMania 15, Vince actually did make that match a no DQ match. But that that's almost similar to what I felt the pacing of this match was. It was a lot of fighting on the outside, it was a lot of brawling, you know, in the crowd and throughout you know, the, the stage and everything. It's, how was this not... You know what I mean? There was like 19 times... First of all, the very first thing when Taker clotheslined Mike Chioda, isn't that a DQ right there? Or because the bell hadn't rung, it wasn't a DQ. So I can assault the referee as much as I want to before the match. Apparently so. Uh, also, good thing Taker is immune to ether. <laughs> yeah, right. And the, I mean, no, he, he went down for it. It just only kept him down for like a couple seconds. I was going to say for like a second. <laughs> and, and also... Why ether? Okay, yeah, this whole and, and then like you said, Triple H doesn't take orders from anybody, and yet he helps out Taker anyway, because that makes sense. Right. Well, they just want to play up a little bit of dissension, you know. Sure. But yeah, did you? How did you? Did you enjoy the match at all? By the way, I mean, it was fine. It was a brawling match. I've always been a big fan of, of Rock, so you know, even though this is twenty something years later, yeah, I was cheering for The Rock as the match was going on, as, as I should be, because he's the babyface. But, again, there was something missing from The Undertaker at this point. Yeah, well, he badly at this point needed to have surgery, and he kept kind of, like, putting it off. Ah, uh, see, so, there it is. Yeah, yeah. And Which also, may also explain what happens tomorrow night on Raw, but yeah. we'll get to that. And also, uh, Paul Bear as, like, Taker's heater? Yeah. <laughs> Just send down some fucking ministry members with them or something. Right, right. Well, they they eventually do. Yes, that's that's, that's yeah. a fair point. I've heard people make the point in the past that like Rock and Undertaker never really have a good match with each other. I thought this one was fine. It's definitely not like a blow away match, but I mean it's fun. It's you know standard attitude era. You're brawling all over the place. Uh, the false finishes were pretty good too, but. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't think of too many other matches Rock and Undertaker have actually had against each other. I'm sure they do. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just recall people saying that Rock and Undertaker just kind of like are not a good match in terms of the chemistry. So I don't know. I thought this was fine, but yeah, but people have said the same thing about Austin and, and Taker. Oh, that, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Well, <laughs> stay tuned for that. But I mean, Highway to Hell, the the SummerSlam '98 match, I think is pretty good. I don't know what the general consensus on that is, but I I think Highway to Hell is 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 quite good for a main the event. Ge the general consensus was that uh, Austin hated the match because he was concussed about five minutes into it. You're right. I know that's that's crazy. When he he goes to he kicks Taker when he does the backdrop and Taker's yep. head swings up and hits him in the face. Yeah, you it, can tell. It hits you can him tell. in the bottom of the chin. Like who the fuck? Like of all the weird things that happen in wrestling, right? You couldn't plan that spot. You know what I mean? I know it's insane. But but as for tonight, as for King of the Ring '99, the Undertaker is still your WWF champion. So after that match finishes, we get a fade to black, and then we go right back to JR and Lawler. So something was clearly edited out there on the network, but I couldn't find out what it was. But then we cut backstage, where we see Commissioner Shawn Michaels ordering security guards to escort Triple H out of the building as an angry Vince McMahon yells, You can't do this! He's my tag team partner! So I guess now we know who Vince was going to choose as his partner, but apparently HBK doesn't approve of Hunter interfering in title matches, so Triple H is hereby ejected from the building. So once Commissioner Michael storms off, Vince pulls out his sweet 1999 cell phone and calls a mystery man. Vince tells that person to get his ass back to the arena, and the dude on the other end apparently agrees, 
But then, with Vince pacing back and forth, the cameraman gets a bit of a bad angle because we can clearly see The Rock just standing off to the side, watching this whole thing go down and looking like he doesn't really give a shit. So, whoopsie. Did you happen to notice that, The Rock standing off to the side there? I did. I made note of it, and I had and I had put down, um, wow, Rock really taking his loss in stride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I mentioned this on the previous episode of the podcast. Uh, the previous episode of Raw, I should say, where Prince Albert gets his ass tattooed. And then, like, when Big Show comes back inside from uh, dropping the car on Bob Holly, Albert is just walking around out in the parking lot. And, like, he, he sees the cameras on him and he just kind of does, like, an oh, shit. And he, like, walks away. See, there's a reason why in the present day all most of that shit is pre-taped. Right. Like, you right. want to get that, you know, right after the match, you go and get your interview or whatever, but when people keep popping up in the shot, yeah, you're probably safer just doing a pre-tape. Yeah. Not good. But so, we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is the final match in the 1999 King of the Ring tournament, DX member X-Pac versus former DX member Mr. Ass. And before the match begins, we get a backstage pre-match promo from Billy, who says that his strategy is going to be to attack X-Pac's scrawny injured neck. And he then says pretty soon he's going to have four words for us, kiss my royal ass. Fair enough. And yet again, I have to mention that Billy Gunn comes to the ring wearing Bradshaw's tag team title belt. He's in the final match of the King of the Ring tournament now, and we're calling attention to his mini-feud with Acolyte Bradshaw. Talk about pointless. Mm. But anyway, early on in the match, Billy Gunn does indeed stick to his strategy of working over X-Pac's neck, and surprisingly, he actually hits Pac with a Famaster only a few minutes into the match. He goes for the cover, and Tim White makes the count, but surprisingly, it only gets two. So Mr. Ass then proceeds to complain to Tim White about his count, which enables X-Pac to nail him with an X-Factor. However, X-Pac is worn down from getting his neck worked over in three straight matches, so it takes him a while to make the cover, but when he does, Billy Gunn also kicks out at two. So Billy then goes to the top rope, but X-Pac gets the better of him by crotching him. Pac then climbs to the second rope, and he seemingly wants to go for a superplex, but Billy punches him in the face, knocking him down to the canvas. X-Pac then slowly gets back to his feet, but once he does that, Mr. Ass jumps off the second rope and nails X-Pac with a flying Famaster. He makes the cover, Tim White makes the count, of the one, the two, and the three. Ladies and gentlemen, your winner and the 1999 King of the Ring, Mr. Ass. And by the way, even though this is the last match of the tournament, and presumably you'd want to culminate with a lengthy contest between these final two wrestlers, the match only went for five and a half minutes, although truthfully the crowd really didn't give a shit anyway, so maybe that was the right call. And after the match concludes, Billy Gunn taunts the crowd by holding up Bradshaw's tag team title belt, and yet again I say, why the fuck is there so much emphasis being put on this meaningless feud when Mr. Ass just won the goddamn King of the Ring? But yes... So it shall be written, Sal, we are now in the era of King Ass. Although you'd never really know it, because we don't get any sort of ceremony, Billy just kind of wins the match, and then on to the next one. Seemed a bit anticlimactic, but I don't know, Sal, what'd you think of our tournament finale and the coronation of Billy Gunn? Where the fuck was the coronation? Not <laughs> I there. was so fucking pissed. <laughs> they didn't even fake a coronation. They didn't even show, like, the throne with the crown and the and the scepter near right, it like right. they usually do 
The whole tag team title thing has been, has been disjointed the whole night. I hate that they ran that angle six days ago on Raw because it just fucks everything up here. <laughs> yep. I didn't like the fact that, that Xbox kicked out of, of the Famouser. At least mm-hmm. have him just get his foot on the bottom rope or something. And Although I did appreciate the second rope Famouser. That was fine, but I don't think X-Pac needs to be kicking out of the Famouser. You know, now that I think about it and given the course uh, over the summer, I know that they thought a lot about Billy Gunn, but when you told me that this was originally supposed to be the big show, it definitely feels like they really didn't have anything really big planned for Billy Gunn. Yeah, I would agree. It just seems like, well, let's just do this to get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. This wasn't even the main event. And, and to be fair, in tradition, King of the Ring should end with the coronation of the King of the Ring. That's, I mean, maybe I'm old school. but Well, then you'd really be sending the fans home, Matt. <laughs> right. And obviously, I get it. Any pay-per-view Austin's going on, he's closing the show. I totally understand that. But there's no reason why you can't make a big deal out of Billy winning this. Yeah, I agree with that. They should have at least done something, but it was just kind of like, well, the match is over, and now on to the next match. There was, yeah, there was no anything of any sort. In fact, was this similar to last year's King of the Ring when when Shamrock won? Did they do the same thing where there was no real coronation? Good question. I think, yeah, I think they didn't really do a coronation because I can't picture Ken Shamrock wearing the crown or, or having the scepter or the cape or anything like that. So I think, yeah, maybe they did set this precedent in 98, because in 97, I'm pretty sure Triple H does do the whole thing where he puts on the whole outfit, but Ken Shamrock does not. No, obviously, in 96, Austin certainly wasn't putting on the cape and all that sort of thing. No, but... no, but Austin went over there, and he cut that promo, right? which is way more memorable than his match, you know what I mean? Or even his tournament. Yeah, agreed. Um, that's the thing. I would have loved if Billy had gotten a promo here. Mind you, he's not the best talker. But the fucking guy just won the King of the Ring, and he's a heel. Right. And instead he gets nothing. (laughs) He does nothing. Does absolutely nothing. Which is actually a fitting summation of how his King of the Ring tenure goes. Oh, or his career. Ah, (laughs) just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, he's still in AEW, kind of. He's Billy and Austin Gunn. The Gun Club. Which, still don't know how they get away with that name. Yeah, maybe it's kind of like how they used to say, Cody and Brandy Rhodes. Oh no, I'm talking about the violence, uh... The violent aspect of gun club. Oh, oh, I see. Fair, fair. TNT was like, we don't care. We just, we really just don't care. Yeah, it's a nice pun. You can keep it. So, so finally, it is now time for our main event, and it is the ladder match for control of the WWF. CEO Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon and somebody. And remember, because Austin beat the big boss man this past Monday night on Raw, there is no interference allowed by anyone in the corporate ministry, or Stone Cold will automatically be awarded 100% of the company. So Vince McMahon enters first, and he comes out all by himself, but he then grabs a microphone, and he tells us who his replacement for Shane will be, and holy shit... Talk about something I absolutely did not remember. The man Vince chooses to be his partner is Steve Blackman. That's right, folks. It appears as though Steve fucking Blackman is about to main event a pay-per-view in the Attitude Era. Or, Or is he? Because once Vince makes that announcement, we then get backstage footage on the Titantron, courtesy of GTV. So we cut to Shane McMahon 
Rodney, Pete Gass, and Joey Abs, and, well, take a listen to what happens from there. So as you heard there, somehow GTV is actually factoring into the main event of King of the Ring 99. In this case, we cut backstage to see Shane sitting in the locker room with the Mean Street Posse and joking about how much his neck hurts. He talks about how he outsmarted Commissioner Shawn Michaels, but then Pete Gass points out that they're actually being shown live right now on a nearby monitor. So Shane and the Posse try to run out the door, but HBK cuts them off. The commissioner then proceeds to walk Shane back into the arena, and HBK also tells Steve Blackman to get to Steppen as well. So it appears that despite several teases throughout the night, we actually are getting our advertised main event of Vince and Shane versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. And speaking of Austin, by the way, you want to talk about a pop? Sweet Jesus, be sure to go back and take a listen to the one that Stone Cold gets here. Absolutely massive. It even causes Jim Ross to proclaim... Good God Almighty, they're on their feet, and he ain't kidding. I mentioned before this crowd has been dead for a good portion of the show, but uh, not here. That's for damn sure. They were loud for rock. They were unglued and insane for Austin. <laughs> yeah, and I actually I do love that Jim Ross pointed that out. Like there there are those moments where Jim Ross kind of like really lets you know that something special is happening. Like when Austin comes out and the crowd is just losing their shit, and he's you know just kind of hyping that 
because, I mean, that, that's what they're doing. They're going crazy. Or like those moments where uh, Jim Ross would say, like, when a pay-per-view is going on, where he would say, like, oh, I wish you could be here with us, folks. You yeah. know, like th- those sorts of things where, you know, there's a reason why JR is the best in the business because, you know, he can put that shit over like nobody's business. And And to be fair... We were joking earlier about Taker's chemistry with Austin and Taker's chemistry with Rock, and people will always say that The Rock's greatest rival was Stone Cold Steve Austin. That might be true, or Triple H, Rock Triple H, I can definitely see that. But Austin's greatest rival, 100%, Vince. Oh, yeah. And that, that was what we got tonight. We got, once again, after taking it away for a little while, we got Vince versus Austin, and the crowd was red hot for this. Yeah, and rightfully so. So, and actually, so just to paint the picture here, a briefcase is hanging above the ring, a, a whopping six years before the Money in the Bank ladder match has become a thing, and a ladder has been set up in the middle of the aisle. So initially, Vince and Shane start walking toward that ladder when the bell rings, but they make the mistake of turning their backs to Austin, so Stone Cold gets a running start and clotheslines both of them from behind. And despite the fact that Stone Cold is outnumbered, he actually gets the better of both McMahons early on, taking turns beating on each one of them. However, the tide turns when Vince starts running around the ring, so Austin chases after him, but it was all a trap, so Shane could ambush him with a clothesline. And from there, both McMahons jump on Austin and start punching him, at which point all three men start brawling up the aisle. And remember how earlier I said there was basically a bridge of ladders set up by the entrance ramp? Well, that finally comes into play. Specifically, Shane climbs up one of the ladders so that he's now standing on the bridge of ladders that's positioned above the aisle. He flips off Stone Cold, so Austin climbs up after him, and Austin punches Shane in the face, and Shane then does kind of like a pretty clumsy but safe fall back down to the floor. It's definitely not the crazy bump I was expecting Shane to take, but that's actually probably a good thing. And eventually, after throwing Vince and Shane into several of the ladders, Stone Cold finds a nearby chain. He gives the chain a firm pull, and yes, that causes all of the ladders to topple down on top of the McMahons. So Austin takes that opportunity to grab a ladder and walk back to the ring with it, but the McMahons do eventually catch up with him before he can climb it. And so, instead of climbing, Stone Cold decides to inflict some more punishment. He positions Shane on top of the Spanish announce table, he sets up the ladder, and then, yes, Austin goes airborne, jumping off the ladder and dropping an elbow right onto Shane, causing the table to break. And then, for some reason, with the ladder still positioned on the arena floor, Austin and Vince then start climbing up opposite sides of it, and Stone Cold manages to push Vince off the ladder, but the chairman lands on his feet, so he then pushes the ladder over, causing Austin to land on top of JR and the King's announce table. But, unfortunately for Stone Cold, though, the table doesn't break, so he just kind of hits it and bounces right off down to the floor. And we then get another pretty animated call from JR, where he just exclaims, Good God! Son of a bitch! Simple but effective. And in a bit of a yeah, and in a bit of a frightening moment, I don't know if you noticed this, Sal, but we then cut to Austin who is lying face down on the ground in a pile of electrical wires with an open bottle of water clearly spilling on the ground right next to him. I couldn't help but think, did we almost just have another death on live pay per view two months in a row? Like how close was Stone Cold to getting electrocuted there like Brell and No Holds Barred? But thankfully though, that did not happen. So back in the ring, Vince sets up the ladder and starts climbing, and unfortunately, one rather accurate asshole fan manages to throw his drink and hit the ladder with it. But before Vince can grab the briefcase, Stone Cold recovers and throws him off the ladder. 
Shane then makes his recovery from that elbow through the table, but Austin grabs the ladder and shoves it into his stomach a few times to take Shane right back down to the mat. Austin then sets up the ladder so it's leaning against the ropes, and he slingshots Shane into it, followed by an amusing spot where Austin just picks up the ladder and then lets it go so it falls right onto Shane's back. Very basic, but the crowd actually gives him a huge ovation for it. So Stone Cold then starts to climb again, but Vince topples the ladder, sending Austin down to the ground, and because the ladder lands near Stone Cold and they don't want to go near him, Shane then gets the idea to sit on Vince's shoulders so he can try to reach the briefcase without using the ladder, but that proves to be a bad idea because Austin gets back up and punches Vince in the face, which of course also sends Shane down to the canvas. I really don't know what the fuck they were thinking on that one, quite frankly. <laughs> and of course, Austin then follows that up with a stone-cold stunner to Vince, followed by a stone-cold stunner to Shane. And so, with both McMahons down and out, it appears that Stone Cold just needs to set up a ladder and climb it in order to retrieve the briefcase. But, well, take a listen to what happens next. Oh, 
Okay, so what you heard there was Stone Cold climbing up the ladder to grab the briefcase, but once he got close to it, the briefcase was actually raised up higher so that it was out of Austin's reach. An angry Stone Cold then left the ring and started yelling at people at ringside, including the timekeeper and the recently departed Howard Finkel. But after getting nowhere with that, Austin goes back into the ring where Vince McMahon is now climbing the ladder. With Austin and Vince on opposite sides, Shane McMahon pushes over the ladder, taking out Stone Cold and his own father in the process. However, that move ends up paying off because Shane is then able to climb the ladder and, with the briefcase now lowered back to a normal height, Shane is indeed able to grab the briefcase. Your winners of the ladder match, and now the full 100% owners of the World Wrestling Federation, Vince and Shane McMahon. The McMahons then run off backstage as Stone Cold flips them off and looks like he's about ready to kill someone, and that is how we go off the air. So in your final three matches, Heel Undertaker beats The Rock, Heel Mr. Ass wins the King of the Ring, and Heels Vince and Shane beat Stone Cold. So clearly, not exactly sending the Greensboro fans home happy. So, Sal, what did you think of our main event ladder match? So, when you mentioned that all three final matches had heels going over, I wonder if that was a fuck you to the Greensboro town. <laughs> You're a WCW crowd. Fuck you! Yeah, so, take this. I demand an explanation of who raised that briefcase. I could give I one to it. you. When we get to Raw, I can actually give one to you. Okay, we will We will wait till then. As far as the match goes, there's a couple things I wanted to mention. Number one, when Blackman came out, I remember thinking, so he's just like Vince's new bodyguard tonight? He's like his personal hired gun? Pretty much. Thankfully, Blackman didn't last, because that would have been just... If I had to watch Steve Blackman versus Stone Cold Steve Austin with Vince in the background, eh... <laughs> you wouldn't have liked a Steve versus Steve feud? Not really. Second of all, I, I I need to to visually set this up for our listeners, for anybody who has not seen this. And it's King of the Ring 99, so it's a good chance you have it. The entrance ramp, or the entrance way, uh, as you mentioned, was ladders set up on the left and right-hand side, with then ladders positioned on top of them, almost like a tunnel. So when Austin is, is uh, throwing... Shane and Vince into, you know, each ladder as we're going down the aisle, it slowly starts to fall, right? Mm-hmm. And then when he pulls the chain and everything comes crashing down, that was a fucking great visual. Yeah. If there's anything on this pay-per-view you should go back and watch, that would be that spot. And when they came crashing down, it did hurt inside. It did. Ask Shane. It really, really did. <laughs> um, so that was a great visual. As you mentioned, the spot near the table with the electrical wires in the water, that was a little bit dangerous. And um, as soon as Austin gave... Now, granted, given the stipulations, I understand the McMahons had to win. There's no way that Austin would own the company, even in kayfabe, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, you're taking everything out of Vince then. He has no recourse at that point. Although you could always do something on Raw with lawyers and, and board of directors or whatnot that you could reverse it the next night on Raw. Well, actually, on that note, I, I don't know how accurate this was, but I do remember reading something about how they were they were initially planning, or it was in the initial stages, they talked about having Austin potentially go over here, and then, like, because they were already in talks about, you know, selling the stock and, like, you know, going public, which they do in a couple months, and they were going to say in storyline, again, this was just kind of rumored, the rumor was that it was going to be, like, Austin who, like, you know, 
makes the company go public as the new CEO, but they eventually kind of, you know, shy away from that and they just have the McMahon's win. But apparently that that was in talks as being a possibility. Yeah, I don't see that really like working. Like in real like storyline terms. Agreed. So I didn't mind necessarily the McMahon's going over. But after Austin hit the stunner, all of a sudden I had this like flood of memories and I went, Oh no, it's this ladder match. Yep. <laughs> to which I, for the time in 1999, was it creative? Yeah, I guess it would be creative for like a Monday Night Raw. Mm. I I don't think that's the way you end the pay-per-view. Well, let me ask you this. Who do you think would be responsible for raising the briefcase? In storyline, you could make a case for somebody like Triple H or... Paul Bear or somebody in the corporate, you know, corporate ministry, maybe the Stooges, like you know what I mean, like something, somebody who had ties to Vince, I guess. Okay, yeah. Well, well, but remember though, if anybody in the corporate ministry interfered, then Austin would interfered automatically in get the it. Match. Interfered That's true. in the match. Nobody said anything about uh, pulling a lever backstage. Good point. Good point. So they they could they could have got away with it. Yeah, the Stooges wouldn't have been an interesting idea. I mean, the, on the previous episode of Raw, though, they got their ankles pilmanized by Joey Abs, but but you never know. I mean, at, at this point, you know, Vince McMahon got his got his ankle snapped by Midian, and he was the higher power the entire time. So so who knows? But that that being said, too, right? Like, yeah, I, I understand the Stooges. So that that works even better because the Stooges weren't aligned with the corporation at this moment. That's so, true. So, you know, we can have Gerald Briscoe doing anything for Mister McMahon. Yeah. You want me to braze the briefcase, Mr. McMahon? But Gerald, Gerald Briscoe, by the way, just recently fired, apparently. Well, released on what I would assume would be a furlough where he probably is going to get brought back at some right. point. I, I should say in the present day, in 2020, apparently, he's right. recently been released. Yeah. Um, also, how fucking... Well, I mean, it would have pissed a lot of people off. But since, you're, since Vince Russo's been frequently doing this the past couple months... Fuck, maybe Commissioner Michaels raised the briefcase. Oh, there you go. There's something. Swerve, bro! He he was rumored to potentially be the higher power, so... Oh, God. Continuation of that. But overall, did you enjoy the uh, main event? It wasn't bad. I, I, You know, it's not going to be a five-star in the Tokyo Dome affair. Mm-hmm. But the fans were there for it, which I appreciated. Like I said, the some of the spots with the ladders I thought were creative and vicious. And to say that those two words in a match with Vince and Shane on the other end, that's pretty good, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think actually this was, to be honest with you, this was my match of the night just because it was it was pretty much nonstop action. And Austin's just so entertaining. Like, it's it's easy to watch him, you know, just beat the McMahon's asses. And you got a, you got a bunch of good spots, like the ladders being thrown on top of them or Austin dropping the elbow from the from the ladder or Vince pushing, you know, Austin onto the table from the ladder. So there, there was a lot of good stuff here, but but very entertaining. And again, like you always, Stone Cold, like, never for a second allows you to not believe the character. Like, you really believe that he wants to just beat the shit out of the McMahon's in this entire match, so... For for me anyway, it was my match of the night. I, I don't know. Do you have a different uh, match of the night candidate? Um, no. <laughs> it, Fair. It, it was match of the night. I heard somebody say it a long time ago. I forget who it was, but when you're over, you don't have to do anything. It might actually right. have been Triple H. You could, you don't have to do crazy dives or or put on uh, you know a twenty minute classic. When you're over, that's really like all you need. Yeah. 
and there was no one more over than Austin. Right. And the angle, I mean, to be fair, the angle actually is pretty good, the Austin-McMahon angle, because, I mean, it's it's carried the entire company. Obviously, they went away from it for a little bit, but then they brought Vince back as the higher power. But, I mean, Austin versus McMahon, you're going to have the fans wanting to see Austin just beat the shit out of Vince. So, you know, I mean, obviously, they don't necessarily go home happy based on that finish. But, you know, I did actually think the match is very watchable. And, you know, even 21 years later, you can go back and watch it. And it is enjoyable to see Austin beat the shit out of the McMahons with a ladder in various forms, in my now, opinion. Let, let me present you an alternative, though. Mm-hmm. We actually go with Vince teaming with Triple H. Right? Okay. Okay. Now, now, granted, maybe my... my ideas are a little bit poisoned because you know in real life son-in-law that whole thing but we go with vince and triple h and you know they they work the match against austin and austin gets a couple hope spots but ultimately gets you know the crap kicked out of him and right as triple h uh sets up the ladder for vince to climb it rock comes down Mm. so then rock kind of like equals the you know evens the odds but then undertaker comes down and there's this whole schmoz thing that allows McMahon to climb up by himself and get the briefcase. Okay, yeah. Not bad, right? That makes sense. A lot better than... I think that's a lot better than let's just pull the briefcase away from Austin like a bad episode of The Three Stooges. <laughs> yep, right. <laughs> well, actually, on that note, Sal, what did you think of uh, King of the Ring 1999 as a whole? Are we being honest? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was fucking garbage, man. Yep, yep, okay. <laughs> so oh, we're in agreement. <laughs> Um, watching this King of the Ring made me, actually, it gave me an epiphany. 30 years into my wrestling watching, this King of the Ring gave me an epiphany. Okay. You know, the WWE has always had its ups and downs, even during the glorious Attitude Era. (laughs) First, me and you explored some ups and downs in our Golden Era last month when we did Salvivor Series, Mm -hmm. and we noticed how... Even though everybody was there, uh, Survivor Series 91 was pretty awful. True. So now we're in the middle of the of the Attitude Era. The, they're crushing WCW in the ratings. Um, 1999, some of my best memories in wrestling. And yeah, it had some really good, awesome, iconic moments. But then it also had King of the Ring 1999. <laughs> right. Pointless. Didn't do anything for Billy Gunn. Like you said, three heels to 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 win at the end of the night. Uh, short matches, half of them ended in DQ. This had Vince Russo's fingerprints all over it. Yeah, I agree. Especially the part about the tag team title being such a major focus when Billy Gunn is about to win the King of the Ring. It's like it's it's something where it seems like you know Vince Russo's like you know everybody has to have a story, bro. So I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this story on Raw and carry it over into king of the ring for no fucking reason whatsoever billy gunn stealing a tag team title it's like that should not be your focus right now if you want to you know have billy win the king of the ring okay fine but you should probably just kind of like drop the whole tag team title angle it just doesn't it makes no goddamn sense but that's yeah. the thing there was no need for it no need for it. we'll find that out later when we you know we'll talk about that a little bit later but the whole thing with the tag title was completely pointless yeah and i'll even say too like it would have been easy to drop this angle because, like, when I watched Raw and Billy Gunn kind of, like, went backstage with the tag team title, it never occurred to me, like, oh, this is going to be a multi-show angle. It just occurred to me as, like, okay, he took the tag team title with him backstage, but he'll probably give it back, right? Because, I mean, we're doing—why would you build up to, like, a heel versus heel feud for starters? Because, 
Billy Gunn and Bradshaw are both heels. So uh, it's kind of like, why are we, you know, what what is the point of this? If so you were I looking to get Billy Heat, all you had to do was have him be like, X-Pac, you were the weak link of DX, and then just have him work his neck the whole match. Have him go. fucking beat him because X-Pac, you know, his neck's all messed up. And again, I just want to be clear. Right now, even though, you know, Bradshaw is one half of the tag team champions, uh, he's not really... You know, he's not JBL. He's not very high on the card. So if you and you know Billy Gunn, Billy Gunn is much higher on the card than he, than he is. Billy Gunn is you know mid card, intercontinental title level. Bradshaw yeah. is significantly below that. So it only this only really serves to bring Billy Gunn down, which you probably don't want to do if you're about to make this guy the king of the ring. So as you as you have pointed out on previous episodes, the court, the the ministry specifically was full of jobbers. Yeah, and I love Ron Simmons. Don't get me wrong, but Ron Simmons, JBL, Midian, Viscera—they're a whole bunch of fucking nothing at this point. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't care if I don't care if the acolytes are tag champs. It doesn't—they're nowhere near the level of of what they're trying to get Billy Gunn to. You don't think it's impressive that Midian is now the European champion because he pulled the belt out of Shane McMahon's duffel bag? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not even in fact the only people on the entire roster that are lower than the corporate ministry right now are draws in a train <laughs> that's that's a good point actually <laughs> yeah this was a thumbs down man this was a thumbs down for me yeah I, I agree this is not good i think this is one of the notorious like stinker e- even during the attitude era where a lot of these pay-per-views the the in-ring is not that great this is like a notoriously bad stinker of a show and i think it does quite honestly live up to that hype but it's not good so a friend of the show somebody who's been on more times than i have and my co-host from the AEW rundown adam pointed out to me that well it can't be as bad as king of the ring 1995 which of course is notorious because that's the one that mabel won right Mm -hmm. and hey mabel's still on the roster yes yes (laughs) he is but i would argue that this was worse because Ooh, there was there was no good matches as far as like the best match in ring was China and Road Dog in the first round. Yeah, and, and yeah, granted, like of, you're said, talking. Are you talking about just in terms of the tournament matches themselves? Yes. yes okay. Absolutely. Yeah, because I would say because I would say Austin and McMahon's was good. Uh, yeah, no, 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 and, and I agree with that. Um, but the tournament matches that you always usually have something really good in the tournament matches, like um. One year, I remember Brett fought Mr. Perfect. Yeah. You know, you get like an Owen Hart versus like... uh, One, one, two, three, kid. Something like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yep. There was nothing redeeming about the tournament. It was full of a bunch of disqualifications and two-minute matches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, none of these matches were long matches. None of the King of the Ring matches. Obviously, you know, the... The Austin Undertaker, excuse me, the Austin uh, McMahon's match and the Rock Undertaker match were were pretty lengthy. Actually, I guess the Road Dog in China was 13 minutes, but I mean that's pretty much it. All the other matches were basically like you know five minutes tops. So yeah, and even the final, yeah, Mr. Ass versus X Pac was like a five minute match. So yeah, it's uh, I I would recommend skipping this. And you know, in terms of the King of the Ring tournament, it's there was really ultimately there's really no point to it because spoiler alert, this does not jump. Billy Gunn into the next stratosphere. It's just kind of, you know, it was basically just like, ah, we had a pay-per-view and that's it. So so th- that's the funny thing too, because as I'm watching this, I, you know, I may note that, well, this is why in a couple of years, the King of the Ring would not be a pay-per-view anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty it's, much. It's not, 
they just didn't do, you know, even even the one that Angle won. It wasn't about Angle that night. It was about Rock winning the title. And I know that because I was there, because it was in Boston, and it was a year from now in this timeline. Adam was there, too. His sign got on TV. It was amazing, and we were all happy that Rock won the title. We all forgot who the fuck the King of the Ring was when we walked out of that building. <laughs> Understandable. So, uh, just not the prestige it used to have. And when I say used to, I mean even when Hunter was wanted in 97, I felt like it still had prestige. Yeah, I would say so, especially because the previous year was when Austin won the King of the Ring and became Stone Cold Steve. I became, you know, the legend, or at least it was like the, the starting off point for him doing that promo and becoming, you know, the Stone Cold that we all know and love. So it did have that credibility to it when, when Triple H won in 97. Uh, I think like two months later, he's in DX anyway. But once, uh, yeah, pretty much last year, once Shamrock won it, it's just kind of, you know, it's just another pay-per-view and they don't really do much with it. Now, also... You know, I had mentioned that Shamrock was never that much of a king of the ring, but lest we forget the whole memorable thing from King of the Ring 1998 was not Shamrock winning the king of the ring. Mm. It was it was a little thing called a Hell in a Cell match between The Undertaker and Mankind that would go down in history. Well, it's actually funny you mention that because I actually have a note about that in my next little section here. Because I was going to say, before we wrap up, just, just to give you some stats on King of the Ring 99. So this show this show did roughly 430,000 buys, which is actually the third most ever for a King of the Ring pay-per-view. And that number is actually an improvement of about 120,000 more buys than King of the Ring 98. So, so suck on that Mick Foley falling off the Hell in a Cell cage at 120,000 more buys than that. But of course, if you want to compare, compare, I should say, King of the Ring 99 to WCW's Great American Bash pay-per-view that aired two weeks prior, that show did 185,000 buys. So yeah, King of the Ring more than doubled the number of buys for Great American Bash. Ouch. And the thing about the buys, it doesn't reflect the card or, or the event itself because, you know, the buys really have to do with the promotion you did going into the event. So... Obviously, you know, Austin versus both McMahons with the company on the line, that's going to generate a lot of interest. Rock versus The Undertaker, it's going to generate a lot of interest. Nobody knew prior to buying the King of the Ring that Mick Foley was going to dive off the top of the cell. Right. Um, I'd be interested to see um, what the all-time sales were, you know, on, on Coliseum Home Video, com you know, comparatively. You know what I mean? They're probably a lot higher for King of the Ring 98. Right, I would think so. Definitely. But Sal, with that being said, are you ready to get into Monday Night Raw? Of course! Fantastic, but before we do that, I'm going to play a rather memorable promo, and when I do that, I'm also going to spoil the 2001 King of the Ring tournament, but don't worry about that because that actually occurs after this podcast timeline, so I think it's fair game. So I'll tell you right now that Edge wins the 2001 King of the Ring, and the next night on Raw, he gets interrupted by Billy Gunn, and Edge then proceeds to completely emasculate Billy, particularly in regard to Mr. Ass's victory here at King of the Ring 1999. Do you know the promo I'm talking about, Sal? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> of course you do. It's a, it's a notorious promo. So take a listen to that one, and when we come back, we'll dive into the June 28th, 1999 episode of Monday Night Raw and... It's a big one, folks. Well, well, well. 
Congratulations, Your Majesty. Welcome to the King of the Ring Winners Club. When I won the 1999 King of the Ring, I was really looking forward to defending my crown the next year, but unfortunately, I had a shoulder injury. Then I wanted to defend it this year and wasn't even entered in the damn tournament. Then I had the indignity of sitting at WWF New York with a bunch of loud, obnoxious New York City morons. But no, no, the topper, the worst of it all, not just sitting through the restaurant, was to watch a talentless joke like you actually win the damn thing. But congratulations, Edge. I really, really mean it. Come out, I don't think so. Bitter Billy. Wow, Billy, you sound like a human vacuum cleaner, managing to both suck and blow at the same time. And Billy, since you're not really doing anything lately, I was wondering if you could do me a favor. If in two years' time at the King of the Ring, I'm not defending a title or even in a match, and my very special assignment is to go to WWF New York and eat a meatball sandwich, then please, just shoot me in the head. 1999 is so two years ago, and it's not my fault if you've done a big pile of nothing since then. Wow. That doesn't give you the right to come out and rain on my parade. And Commissioner, I vow to you that I will not Billy Gunn this King of the Ring title. Because, Billy, I plan on being entertaining. Yeah, you want to be real entertaining? How about if I kick your royal ass right here tonight? Sounds good, Commissioner. I suppose it'll be all right, yes. Great. Then I hereby decree that the first act in the era of awesomeness will be to totally annihilate Billy Bitch Cakes. So, Sal, are you ready to get into Monday Night Raw? Oh, I'm ready. Then let's do it. But before we do, I just want to give some quick background info here. So when I asked Sal to come on this episode and cover King of the Ring and the following night's episode of Raw, I asked him, Hey, Sal, do you know what happens on that episode of Raw? And indeed, you said that you did not. So let's just say I hope this was a welcome surprise for you after the... uh not-so-great ordeal that was King of the Ring. So, with that being said, let's get into it. Let's find out. Let's do it. So it is Monday, June 28th, 1999, and we are live from the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina, in front of a very healthy crowd of 19,553 fans. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include... One episode of Monday Nitro from just about a month and a half ago in May of 1999. Two episodes of SmackDown. Two pay-per-views, the upcoming Unforgiven 1999 and Judgment Day 2003. And surprisingly, only one other episode of Raw, but it was a doozy. The post-Survivor Series 2001 episode where Ric Flair returned to the WWF after almost a nine-year absence. 
So we open the show the way we usually do the night after a pay-per-view, with still photographs from last night's main event, courtesy of WWF Magazine. Nice little blast from the past. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include Stone Cold Drinks Zima, I Shag Deborah at Motel 6, Shane Wears Panties, Forget Puppies, We Want Beaver, I'm a Bellman at the SmackDown Hotel, You're an Asshole with the word You're misspelled, Shane Blows Donkeys, Austin Wastes Beer, I'm Taping Nitro, I Have a Bone for Deborah's Puppies, and X-Pac was a crack baby. So, Sal, were there any you noticed that I happened to miss? Only two. There were only two that I noticed that you hadn't picked up on. Um, I definitely had the I Have a Bone for Deborah's Puppies one. But I also saw very prevalently a sign that said, WCW Sucks, Masterpiece Swallows. Oh, Jesus. And also, and this kind of goes with the whole Masterpiece thing going on in WCW at the time, a sign that said, Huda. Who dis? Question mark. WWF equals 6.0. WCW equals 3.1. Oh, they actually actually put the television ratings on the sign. Yes, yes, they did. Oh, boy. Uh, By the way, more on the television ratings a little bit later on in this episode because, yeah, it's going to be something. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you actually. So you noticed a couple that I completely missed. So you, you even scooped me on that one, Sal. Well done. I. You know what? Everybody at this episode of Raw, Henry's really excited because tonight we're gonna find out exactly what happened with that briefcase last night. That's exactly right. We're gonna get some answers tonight. So we officially kick off the show with the entire corporate ministry heading to the ring. And for the record, by the way, Triple H is wearing a T-shirt that literally says. I'd rather be in China on the back. So there's some officially licensed WWF merchandise I definitely do not remember. But anyway, when the corporate ministry walks to the ring in celebration of the fact that Vince and Shane recaptured control of the company, we see a bunch of confetti and multicolored balloons dropping from the ceiling. And so Vince McMahon grabs a microphone to kick us off, and he says that they are celebrating the sheer dejection that Stone Cold Steve Austin must be feeling after he lost the ladder match at King of the Ring. And Vince then hands the microphone to Shane, who is holding the briefcase he retrieved last night, and Shane then proceeds to officially fire Stone Cold from his CEO position. So Vince then takes the mic back and says that Stone Cold will now have to start all the way over and go to the very bottom rung of the ladder. In fact, tonight he'll be competing in a preliminary match, and then the fans can see him after the show is over, because now he'll also be disassembling the ring as well. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, he got dropped way down. And tonight they're also celebrating the unity of the corporate ministry, because Triple H helped The Undertaker retain his WWF title last night, and so, as a reward for that, Triple H will indeed get a title shot against Taker at the next pay-per-view, Fully Loaded. But then we get an interruption from the big boss man. And holy shit, Sal, on the last episode of this podcast when they teased a boss man face turn, I joked that he should come back in his late 80s, early 90s powdered blue uniform. Well, he doesn't do that here, but he does enter to his early 90s hard times theme music. Pretty fucking awesome. No lie, that's the first time that song's been heard in the WWF for like seven years. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. 
it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was absolutely shocked. Like, why did he come out to that theme instead of his regular, I guess, I guess because we're supposed to think he's a baby face now, right? So about that. So Sal, clearly, I mean, the fact that he's coming out to this new theme song, or his old theme song, I should say, that means that Boss Man is ready for his massive babyface push, right? Right underneath the rock, second best babyface in the company. Uh, I mean, besides Austin, too, but he's down on the card right now. He's much further down the card. Right, but he did help out the rock last week on Raw. That's so what I'm saying. Very, he's ready for a very substantial babyface push. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not, because Boss Man steps into the ring he snatches the microphone away from Vince, and he says, I love you guys. And yes, Bossman then shares a group hug with the corporate ministry. So yes, even though they beat his ass last Monday, and also on Sunday Night Heat last night, and oh, by the way, The Undertaker hung him from the hell in a cell at WrestleMania, apparently Bossman just can't stay mad at those lovable quasi-satanic rascals. Honestly, though, now I just kind of feel bad for the boss man. The poor guy clearly has Stockholm Syndrome. But Sal, on the note of the mystery person who raised the briefcase last night, allegedly the idea was going to be that it would be the big boss man. So remember, the stipulation was that no one in the corporate ministry could interfere. Mm-hmm. But, well, boss man had been kicked out of the group last Monday, right? Mm. So there's your loophole. And, of course, yet again, that would mean Bossman willingly got his ass kicked by the corporate ministry in order to further this angle. But, hey, at this point, I mean, why not? I mean, for God's sake, Vince McMahon was the higher power, and he got his ass kicked about a thousand times in order to fool everyone. So, clearly, taking a beating on a wrestling show means nothing anymore. But, regardless, so they never really tell us that Bossman is the one who raised the briefcase, but I think him rejoining the corporate ministry here could maybe be seen as the underlying implication that he was the one who did it, possibly. Do you think so, Sal? Well, let me, wait a minute. <laughs> they they beat us over the head with everything else, and they're going to be subtle with this one? <laughs> Apparently so. Also, okay, look, if, if it was Bossman, I think you miss an opportunity not showing him, like, behind the scenes, even, like, with a GTV showing him, like, pull up the Mm. case or something. Good call. Good call. But not only that, I hate to say this, because it is 1999, and we see a ton of failing, fledgling acts from the early 90s and late 80s in WCW right now. Just doing nothing. Just doing absolutely nothing. But did you hear the pop when the boss man came out with his original music? Were the people into it? The people were into it, man. Not like earth-shattering but there was a pop and i think i think the boss man you know he's not going to be powder blue Cobb county georgia again but i thought it would have been an interesting change in the character if he returned tonight as a baby face and fought the corporation they were certainly leading us to think that way for about you know 20 seconds 20 seconds yeah exactly i I had i had in my notes for 20 seconds boss man was cool again yes And hey, I would have popped if I heard that music too, and I was in Charlotte on this night. I definitely would have popped. So, as soon as he was like, oh, I love you guys, I was like, well, that just thrusted him back into mediocrity. Yeah, at best. (laughs) At best, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, after that, Shane McMahon then puts the capper on this celebration by saying that McMahon632 says... Payback's a bitch. And Sal, you pointed this out, actually. So Taz actually used 632 as a catchphrase. Is that right? So Taz had a very similar character to the way they portrayed 
uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin probably running parallel because Taz's rise in ECW started in 97. And by the end of 98, he was he was pushed as the biggest baby face in the company, but he was almost like the New York version of Austin. You know, swearing and bucking the authority and all that. He came out, well, to Paul Heyman's credit, you obviously saw that, uh, and he marketed Taz as such, as a, as a no-nonsense badass babyface, and they came out with a shirt, probably late 99, mid-90, I'm sorry, late 98, mid-98, uh, right before Taz would win the world title, that said, Taz 632, and on the back it said, twice as pissed. So obviously oh, it was a reference to the Austin 316 shirt. Right. He's twice as good as Austin 316. He's 632. Well, twice as pissed, not twice as good. Never claim that. He's twice as good in half the size. <laughs> so when I saw that on Shane's shirt, I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> but clearly, Taz's shirt did come first, so Shane is plagiarizing Taz here. 100%. Okay. We have confirmation. But, well, actually, speaking of Stone Cold, by the way, so when Shane puts that 632 capper on the promo, who should appear but Stone Cold Steve Austin emerging from backstage to, of course, a massive pop from the Charlotte Faithful. So Stone Cold stands at the top of the ramp, and he has a microphone, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. There ain't a lot of use in talking about that match last night. Because the pictures showed at the beginning of our show exactly what happened. Stone Cold Steve Austin beats your asses. And when I went to get that briefcase, someone pulled a little string. That's a fact. Sour grapes. Hey, long story short, it was a bunch of BS. But knowing, Vince, knowing you and that little bastard son of yours like I do... Knowing that I might get screwed, old Stone Cold Steve Austin took out a little insurance policy, and I'll tell you what it is. What you talking about? Insurance policy. Vince, last night before that match, old Stone Cold wrote himself up a new contract. So when you look at that contract and you see those extra zeros... When you look at Stone Cold Steve Austin, you will know where that extra cash goes. What? He made himself a new contract? Why not? He's Secondly, and look at me with your little beady eyes when I speak to you. You remember that clause you had a while back? It said, I can never assault you unless you actually physically provoke me. Well, that's all been changed. Changed? From now on, Vince... From now on, it's open season on Vince McMahon. So what that means is, anytime you show up at a Monday Night Raw, as soon as you step out of that car, when you step out of that car, Stone Cold Steve Austin can punch you right in the mouth. What? And the only thing you can do about it, Vince, is reach down Pick up your little teeth, put them in your shirt pocket, and go on about your business. You mean while he was still the CEO, he wrote himself now, a new contract? If you decide not to come to work, that means Stone Cold can drive to Greenwich, Connecticut, knock on your front door. When you answer that front door, I can punch you right in your mouth. And the only thing you can do about it is pick up your little teeth, 
put them in your shirt pocket, and say, Linda, Stone Cold knocked out some more of my teeth. Look at me, you son of a bitch. When I was the CEO, I said, at a time and place determined by me, I would once again be the World Wrestling Federation champion. So... I said, look at me, you bastard, knowing that I might be screwed at King of the Ring on June 27th. I booked on June 28th, 1999, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a World Wrestling Federation title match. A title match tonight. Oh, no, wait. No, no. So, this so what I'm saying is this. What I'm saying is, if you want to see... Stone Cold versus The Undertaker for the WWF title. Give me a hell yeah! Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that was almost it, but not quite. Also, the stipulation tonight, Vince, if any one some bitch from the back gets within 10 feet of that ring, that big dead bastard is disqualified, and Stone Cold Steve Austin is still the World Wrestling Federation champion. And that's the bottom line. So as you heard there, Stone Cold had a hunch that the McMahons would try to screw him last night, and so, while he was still the acting CEO, he gave himself a new contract with a few extra zeros, and he removed that pesky clause in his existing contract which stated that he could only attack Vince McMahon if he was provoked. So now, in theory, I suppose things could go back to the way they were last fall, when Austin was giving Vince stunners, attacking him in the hospital, putting a gun to his head, and so on. But most importantly, before the ladder match last night, Stone Cold booked himself a match for the WWF title against The Undertaker tonight on Raw. And not only that, but he also wisely added the stipulation that if anyone interferes in the match, The Undertaker will be stripped of the belt and Stone Cold will once again be awarded the title. So Sal, it appears that we have us an Austin versus Undertaker title match on free TV. So what did you think of the opening promos here from the corporate ministry and Stone Cold giving himself a title shot? This was so smart. You know, I don't give them a ton of credit when it comes to, to being creative with their writing, but I really like the way they did this because one day after Austin loses at the King of the Ring, they come back, immediately the first thing you hear on Raw is, no, 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 Austin might have got screwed, but he's actually smarter than Vince. And he's, right. he's done all these little things, loopholes behind Vince's back to say, ha, no, I actually have the upper hand, not you, sir. And obviously a title match for the world title in Charlotte, like, fuck yeah, man, I'm all about this now. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's funny because they always do these angles where it seems like, you know, Vince McMahon always thinks he's one step ahead of Stone Cold, but Stone Cold, he always manages to pull something out of his bag of tricks to get the better of, of Vince McMahon. And yeah, if you're in the Charlotte crowd on this night and you just come to the arena like one night after King of the Ring and you're like, ah, oh, shit, well, the McMahons are back in control and you're not expecting to get a title match on free TV and now you're getting a title match live in person, that, that's got to be pretty fucking awesome, I'd imagine. I think it speaks to one of the reasons why Austin was so over, too. Because, like you said, he always ended up getting the one-up on the McMahons. And and people would eat it up. They would be like, yeah, he, yeah, Austin, you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, this is just another example. And then you throw in, like, oh, my God, we're going to get a, a WWF title match. And there was some steps he threw in there, too. Like, nobody from the corporation was, like, allowed to interfere or something like that. Right. Yep. I loved it. Also, um, just a quick side note. As Triple H is in the ring for this, did you happen to see his shirt? Yeah, I mentioned that at the top there. Yeah, yes. the, I'd rather be in China. I'd rather yeah. be in China. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe they let him wear that on TV. Yeah, well, apparently, it's. I looked it up. It is actually a WWF licensed shirt because it had the, the circular nine on the front because she's the ninth wonder of the world. So it actually was WWF merchandise. I wonder, though, what do you think sold more, that one or the Vachina shirt they eventually put out? Um, I think that anything with Sable's face on it probably sh- sold more. Well, that's that's certainly true, I'm sure. But yes, so tonight we have Stone Cold versus The Undertaker for the WWF title. How will that turn out? Well, stay tuned and, and we'll get into it. But so, after a commercial break, we go into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a weapons match, Ken Shamrock versus the lethal weapon, Steve Blackman. Now remember, Shamrock was beaten so badly last night that he was coughing up blood, and the referee had to stop his match against Billy Gunn, so it's certainly fair to assume that he's not 100% tonight going into his match against Blackman. And before the match, Shamrock actually grabs a mic and says that Vince can keep sending his hired guns after him, but sooner or later, he's going to get his hands on the chairman. Mm. Yeah, we'll see. Right. (laughs) And as for tonight's weapons match, he invites Blackman to bring a bunch of weapons because all he needs are his fists. Fair enough. And so Blackman does indeed bring his black bag of weapons to the ring, and even though Shamrock jumps him in the aisle before the bell... Blackman is able to take control quickly due to the fact that Shamrock is still selling, having internal injuries. And the first weapon Blackman busts out is a pair of nunchucks, which he swings into Shamrock's back and stomach. And once he does that, we once again see that Shamrock is coughing up blood, which has happened to him so many times at this point that I think it's almost his goddamn gimmick. Blackman then tears off Shamrock's Lion's Den t-shirt, where we can see that he has taped up ribs. And so Blackman then pulls out, I actually don't even know what you would call them. They kind of look like foot-long sticks, and I'm sure there's like a fancy name for them, but hell if I know what it is. But anyway, Blackman then proceeds to smack Shamrock's injured ribs with those magical sticks. And finally, Blackman concludes this beating by once again nailing Shamrock in the head with a kendo stick. And so then he pins him, right? Well, no, apparently not. Blackman just exits the ring, grabs his black bag of weapons, and heads right back to the locker room. So apparently we have us a no contest, even though Blackman could have probably won the match pretty easily right there just by pinning Shamrock. So interesting strategy there. And after a quick commercial break, we see Shamrock backstage refusing medical attention, and we then get footage from 
during the break where Blackman did his customary routine of calmly walking out the door and exiting the arena. So, Sal, what did you think of our opening weapons match here? So I just gave credit to their creative for what they do with Austin, right? And you're about to take it back right here. I'm going to take it back because there's a fine line between getting sympathy and making someone look like a bitch. (laughs) And in my opinion, Kenny can scream all he wants, but he looks like a bitch. Because Blackman left, left him a beaten, bloody mess and didn't even give him the courtesy of pinning him. He just walked off. And I'm like, wow, who comes out looking better here? Because it's certainly not Shamrock. Right. It also kind of makes Blackman look a little bit stupid, too, that he's like, well, Shamrock is down. I could easily pin him, and eh, I'm just going to leave. I I don't know the rules of wrestling, apparently. I I can agree with that. Um, the only the only thing I'll say on that one is that, well, he's he's hired by Vince to take Shamrock out, so he doesn't care if he wins or loses. Yeah, I guess that's fair. But, um, no, it just the whole thing, first of all, I thought it was going to be a longer match, and I get it. That's kind of the, the calling card in the in this era. But, really? I mean, you know what they should have did is they should have just had the ref stop it. Like, he's coughing, which is what I thought originally happened. But then even the commentators were like, uh, so Blackman left, and I guess we're done. Right. Right. And that's exactly what they did in Shamrock's match against Billy Gunn at King of the Ring the night prior. The referee just stopped the match because Shamrock was coughing up blood. So there is precedent for it going into this match. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I I will say, actually, on the note of Steve Blackman, I don't remember him getting booked quite this strongly when he returned because, I mean, quite frankly, he was a jobber up until he kind of, like, took a break from television in March, and they started, like, airing the vignettes, like the martial art vignettes where he's, you know, he's smashing the cinder blocks and he's twirling his nunchucks around, and now when he comes back, he's basically been booked as, like, you know, this, like you said, this hired gun, and he's taking out Ken Shamrock at every turn, so I don't know how long this lasts for Steve Blackman, this sort of, like, mini push that he's getting upon his return, but... I'm guessing it's not very long, because I do not remember this, you know, I, I don't remember a massive Steve Blackman push happening. You know what's crazy, and I just thought it is? When Bossman was brought in, was brought back to the WWF, and he was part of the corporation, he was Vince's personal bodyguard. Yes. If you turned Bossman face tonight and full turned him face, then Steve Blackman slides very easily into that role. Oh, we could have a Shamrock, or rather a, a Blackman Bossman feud. But you know what I mean? It's like, well, I have a new bodyguard, and it's Steve Blackman, and it would make sense, given what they've been doing with Blackman the past few weeks. Sure. And instead, you know, pretty soon we're we're going to head cheese levels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, that's, that's not that far off at this point, yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, to your point, I don't remember Blackman uh, maintaining this uh, push. Me neither. But stay tuned, folks. Keep watching these episodes of Raw, because maybe, uh, maybe, maybe he does. Maybe uh, Blackman gets it. I mean, well, shit. I mean, he did almost main event last night, so that's, that's pretty big. Fair. That's fair. And so we then go back into the arena where Michael Cole is standing in the ring, where he is ready to interview your new king of the ring, Mr. Ass. And I know this will surprise you, but Billy Gunn is still wearing Bradshaw's tag team title belt around his waist. In fact, Billy claims to be one half of the tag team champions, so, uh, yeah, I guess he really does want to be tag partners with Farouk, so, sure, why not? But anyway, King Ass then says he's tired of carrying people around like he did with Bart Gunn, the Road Dog, and X-Pac, 
And then, well, we get a rather surprising interruption. Oh, just wait, Billy. You got like four more partners to carry around too. <laughs> oh yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's that's sadly not that far off. But yes, take a listen to the rather surprising interruption here. As a matter of fact, there's an open invitation to anybody that wants to step into my yard. This is about your financial future, and you're going to be very interested in this. You see, I got a question for you, Billy. Have you gotten your royalty check lately? Yeah, I know you did, because I got mine and she got hers. And they seem to be a little bit lower than they should be. Well, when I inquired about that, what I found out is that X-Pac and Road Dog are claiming all rights and privileges to DX. What? Why not? What do you mean, why not? They're the ones left. And what that means is all this nifty merchandise, these little DX shirts, Degenerates Gym, all these little foam hands with an X on them these jack-offs are holding up. money goes right in their pocket. That's right. So they might as well be reaching in your pocket and stealing from you and stealing from me and stealing from her. Because let's face it, Billy, we were DX. And when I say me, I mean China, I mean me, and I mean you. We carried those dead asses around and now they're profiting from it. Well, I've talked to the boss, and what he says is, if we want it, go take it. So what I'm going to do, Billy, is, because I've got my hands full right now. You see, i got one goal in mind, that's the WWF title. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to loan you the world's number one bill collector. And you guys can go after what is rightfully ours, Billy. DX is rightfully ours, and we don't want the name, and we don't want anything else. But Billy, what I want you to do with China is I want you to go out, I want you to grab that pot of gold, I want you to grab all that cash, and I want you to bring it home. Are we on? You got it. Now, 
hit that oh-so-wonderful money-making music. So obviously Triple H, Billy got it. Wait a minute, here comes The Rock. There's The Rock. The Rock. What's The Rock doing here? The Rock just now, Billy got it. And now The Rock wants Helsley. This damn personal here for The Rock and Triple H. Triple H calls The Rock the WWE title at the King of the Ring. Get him out of here. Man, this is chaotic. Oh! Somebody get The Rock. The Rock getting his hands right back on Triple H. So yes, Mr. Ass gets interrupted by Triple H and China, and hey, what do you know, Triple H wants to talk business. Sal, we should have seen this coming years ago. Seriously. But in this case, Hunter specifically says that his royalty checks have been getting awfully low lately because X-Pac and Road Dog are raking in all the money from that sweet, sweet DX merchandise. And apparently, Billy hasn't been checking his bank account over the past few months because he reacts as if he had no idea about this. But anywho, Triple H has come up with a plan because he has his sights set on the WWF title. He's going to loan China to Mr. Ass so they can go out and get that DX money back. To which I ask, how? Perhaps they're going to resort to armed robbery or maybe hacking into X-Pac's bank account? Frankly, I'm not sure how they plan on doing this exactly. But after Hunter asks them to cue up the DX theme song, The Rock runs out from backstage and jumps him as payback for Triple H interfering in his title match last night against The Undertaker. So after Rock gets in a few shots on Triple H, I had to laugh because eventually some WWF officials run out from backstage, and mm -hmm. somehow Tony Gurria is able to restrain Triple H, and Sergeant Slaughter is able to restrain The Rock. I just had to chuckle at that notion that each of these guys is probably twice their age, and yet they can hold back two of the top young wrestlers in the company. But so just to recap here, Mr. Ass won King of the Ring, but he's also feuding with Bradshaw, but now Triple H wants to form an alliance with him, but Triple H also wants the WWF title, but The Rock also wants a piece of Triple H because he screwed him last night, and I have to say, I usually enjoy it when guys have multiple overlapping storylines, but I'm starting to think... This might be a little bit much, but I don't know, Sal, what do you think of King Ass's promo, Triple H wanting to be business partners, and The Rock interrupting the festivities? Bro, it's gonna be the greatest thing, bro. <laughs> yes. We're gonna have we're gonna have Billy Gunn fight with like five people. Seriously. So <laughs> first of all, to my recollection, granted Shawn Michaels might have mentioned it a little bit in ninety seven when he was part of DX, but might have went over my head at that age, but to my recollection, this was the first time I can remember hearing about royalties and merch and how all that works. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I, even watching this back for the podcast, you know, I was thinking, was that really how it worked back then? As far as like the DX, like, do, does it just go to Hunter? Did all four or five people get equal share in that merch? Yeah, I would assume so. Or was it just like they got like 10% and Vince got 90? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's probably true, too. I would assume even if, like, you know, in this case, three of the five DX members have turned heel, they probably still, by virtue of being in DX, would still get the, the royalties from the T-shirt money and whatever the hell else they're selling, glow sticks, I don't know. I, I would assume so, but I, uh, I do not know offhand, actually. See, uh, and the other thing, I did like this segment 
It didn't do much for Billy Gunn, because he just won King of the Ring, and now he's back to being a lackey. But... Would would you call him the hired gun? Ooh, there it is. Hey, very nice. But I thought this did wonders for Triple H, because even at such a young age, and so early in his run, I guess you could call it, here he is getting other people to take care of his light work. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so Triple H throughout <laughs> his entire career. Right. And it's so great to see that he was doing it even back in 1999. Uh, I remember this, by the way, and I thought this was going to lead to, like, a huge war between DX members. Oh, so you do remember this? I do remember this segment specifically. Because I remember, like, being in my mind, like, oh, wow, we're going to, this is going to go all the way to SummerSlam, and it's going to, like, like, DX explodes and this whole deal. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. It would have been a cool idea. Yeah. Instead, uh, it's, Kind of just to tread water, for lack of a better term. For something for Billy to do, I guess. And something for X-Pac and uh, Road Dog to do. Right, because really, I mean, once Triple H, you know, hit um, hit X-Pac with the pedigree at WrestleMania and they broke up, Triple H did feud with X-Pac for a bit, and then Road Dog and Billy Gunn feuded with each other. But it was never like uh, like what you're saying, where it was, you know, the former DX members team up to take on the current DX members. We never really got that, so... Yeah, it, it seems like they probably should have done something like that because clearly, I mean, DX is a stable that has been in the company for, by this point, almost, yeah, almost two years at this point because it was right. summer of 97 when they started with Triple H and uh, and Sean. So, yeah, I mean, it, it would make sense to give a bigger blow-off than what we've gotten, but alas. And we talked about it when we had covered Backlash right after WrestleMania. That X-Pac-Triple H storyline, you would have thought would have been a big draw and they would have put a lot of money into it. And by money, I mean TV time. No, not no. really. No, yeah, I think I mentioned that because, like, the night after WrestleMania, the night after, basically, Triple H has turned heel and abandoned, you know, the most popular faction in the company. I think at the end of the show, he's getting beaten up by Steve Austin. He's just, like, one of a series of, like, guys in the corporation who Austin's, like, beating up. So I was like, really, just the night after, that's what you're doing with the guy. Okay, but... but Speaking of that, in terms of that, just wait till you see what happens to Billy Gunn the night after he wins King of the Ring. So we'll we'll touch on that in just a little bit. But mm-hmm. anywho, so once that segment concludes, we cut to an interview which was taped earlier tonight where Michael Cole is with Chaz and Mariana. And in case you're not sure who those two people are, Chaz is the former Beaver Cleavage and Mariana is the former Mrs. Cleavage. Now, is that confirmed... That that was the same lady who played Mrs. Cleavage? Yes, it was. Yep. The only reason I ask is because in this segment, her arms didn't look as buff. Oh, interesting. Okay. Do you know what I mean? But I think it was. I just think that, I don't know, maybe she was hitting the gym like four times a week, like when they would record in the previous segments. Yes, yes. Well, she actually is, I believe, a female bodybuilder. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's where they pulled her from. It's just kind of funny that they pull her from, like, the ranks of female bodybuilding to be like, hey, you want to be in this incest storyline? Great. God almighty. Anyway, yes, Chaz says he's fed up, but he's not going to take it anymore. That's right. Enough is enough, and it's time for a change. But, yes, for those of you listening at home, if you recall last week on Raw, Beaver and Mrs. Cleavage were set to do a backstage promo, but Chaz proceeded to drop the character live on the air, wink, wink. So let's see what he has to say about that. 
Chaz, last week on Raw, we saw something we're not accustomed to here in the WWF. You broke character. Well, Michael Cole, all due respect to you and to the creative team of the World Wrestling Federation. I've been down Gimmick Alley before. I've been a spider. I've been a headbanger. I was a sister of love, and then I was Harry Beaver Cleavage. Through the support of my girlfriend, Mariana, she's convinced me to go out on my own and do what I've always wanted to do, become my own star here in the World Wrestling Federation. I'm Chaz. I'm a kid from New Jersey. I'm here to have fun, and that's what I'm going to do. So yes, you can tell Vince Russo has a hand in the proceedings when Michael Cole flat out says, quote, you broke character, and Chaz responds by saying that he's, quote, been down gimmick alley, and in fairness, he has had some shitty gimmicks in the past, with Beaver Cleavage being the worst of them, but I'm not sure that him being himself is all that great either, because this is where he gives us that infamous line, I'm Chaz, I'm a kid from New Jersey, I'm here to have fun. And boy, that sure smells like money to me. Marketing team, drop everything you're doing and start working on the new line of Chaz t-shirts. But Sal, what do you think of Chaz's promo here? Were you a fan of him breaking character? Oh, man. That says I, it all right there. <laughs> Why is Chaz wearing boxers? Yeah, that's somebody pointed this out to me. And I don't know if this is true, but apparently, so I guess he showed up tonight and he didn't have any gear because I guess he didn't know that he was actually going to be on TV. So he literally goes out there wearing boxer shorts that have like the yellow smiley face on the front, like he's doodle of or something. Wow. Yes. This guy, I'm telling you, he's destined for some things. Yeah. Oh, he sure is. The angle that they do with him and Mariana coming up is, is, uh, it may even be worse. It might even be worse than Beaver Cleavage. Let, let's let's start with this. When the Undertaker drops character and and starts riding the bike and and says, you know, boy, you're in my yard now. Like, okay, that's one thing. And even that's kind of a bit like, uh, but you're you're six ten, you're three twenty, you are a legitimate badass. Okay, I can deal with it. It's fine. But when the guy who's doing, like, the Mama Beaver gimmick in the fucking 1990s from a 1950s show, and you're going to come on TV and be like, I hate gimmicks. Right. Dude, we don't care. Go away. Yeah. Like, unless you're actually going to, like, jump Vince, we really don't care. Well, that'd be a, a, that's a big Chaz push that you're uh, proposing there. Right. That's what I'm saying is, is – other than a giant main event push, which, no, I'm not advocating for Chaz to have that. I'm just saying, other than that, this is completely bottom of the card, setting up the ring, bullshit. <laughs> right. So he should be the one in the preliminary match who's disassembling the ring, not Stone Cold. Oh, I think he's got a long, long career ahead of him on heat, on velocity, on soon-to-be what becomes known as main event. <laughs> Jacked and metal. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so after a commercial break, we get this week's segment of GTV. And interestingly, this time, GTV is not somewhere backstage, as it has been every time up to this point. Instead, GTV is showing us black and white footage from outside the Charlotte Marriott Hotel. And who do we see leave the hotel together? None other than Test and Stephanie McMahon. And sure enough, we see them share a kiss as they exit the hotel, and then they drive off together in a car. Now, remember, 
Test had previously claimed that he and Stephanie had decided to remain just friends. After one date, right. But this GTV footage certainly seems to indicate there's something more there now, doesn't it? So, Sal, what did you think of this week's dose of GTV? So, it's a little bit weird because, yes, Test went on one date with Stephanie, claims they decided to be just friends, and then got beat up for it, if you recall. And he, he might yet again, spoiler. Yes. So now he's he's sneaking around with her coming out of a hotel, which is... Uh, if you're going to sneak around with her, like, at least make it endearing. Like, I almost felt like the segment should have ended with Tess handing her, like, a couple hundred dollar bills. Oh, jeez. Do you know what I mean? Have Tess, like, sneak her out of her house and have them, like, go off to a movie together or something like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like... Mm -hmm. Make it more, like, relatable than, oh, look, he walked out of a hotel room with the boss's daughter. Because that just looks skeezy. Like, I don't right. think it does any favors for Tess as far as, like, babyface goes. Well, I mean, he was able to talk her into getting it on very early on, apparently. So so good for him, I guess. I guess. Tess is a real, he's a real ladies' man, apparently. Well, I mean, okay, he did get Stacey Keyboard in real life, so, you know, he must be, he must be doing okay. See, now that's the other juxtaposition of this, because if this was a storyline written with Val Venus and Stephanie, oh, God. huge pop if Val walks out of that hotel with Steph. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, you get the reaction at that point. Now, now you're just writing it for him right there. <laughs> but I will say, actually, I do like when GTV is used for this purpose, and they did it last night at King of the Ring as well, where it's actually furthering a storyline. It's not like hey, there's Al Snow picking his nose, or there's Billy Gunn getting his ass shaved. It actually is like, you know, they're they're doing something with GTV to further an angle as opposed to just being like, look, this is gross. So I do, I do approve of that. Since you brought it up, about that segment a couple weeks ago with Billy Gunn. <laughs> yes. He, so we are to understand he has a personal assistant who shaves his ass. Yes, an assistant. Yep. And... His million-dollar baby has a pimple, a disgusting, gross pimple that he blames her for. If she's shaving it, it's probably an ingrown hair, to be fair. <laughs> but that's kind of how I remember GTV for, is just disgusting shit like that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and honestly, I don't remember how often they use GTV to further a storyline versus just that gross shit, but... When they do actually use it for a purpose, like last night at King of the Ring and like the thing here with Stephanie and Test, I think it could be an effective little segment as opposed to just, here's a way that we can kill 30 seconds of television time, you know? Right. Seeing things like Mr. Ass get his ass picked. Mm -mm. <laughs> right, yeah. Which also, if Mr. Ass can afford his own assistant, I guess that explains why he hasn't noticed those DX royalties not going into his bank account. He's obscenely wealthy, so, you know, he doesn't, he hasn't noticed that, uh, He's he's not hurting, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, so who was this girl, by the way? Which one? The the assistant? Yes. It was just some random woman. Was she like a worker? I don't think so. I think it was probably. I'm, what my guess would be it was just some random WWF employee that they put on camera. Hey, Susie, Susie, we got a job for you tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you said you've always wanted to be on TV, right? So we have just the segment for you. Right. Oh my God. Yeesh. But from there, we go back into the arena for our next match. That kid from New Jersey who just loves to have fun, Chaz, accompanied by his girlfriend Mariana, versus Meat, who is accompanied by Terry Runnels, Jacqueline, and Ryan Shamrock. Time out. Time out. Am I to get this straight? 
the second match of the night is Chaz versus Meat. Well, actually, what I was what I was just about to say was, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Exhibit A that the WWF has officially won the Monday Night War. They can put Chaz versus Meat on your television, basically daring you to switch to Nitro, but they know you're not going to do it. So you got you have to respect that, Sal. I think. Fair point. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, it's a it's a game of chicken. They're just like you're not going to do it. You're not going to click that remote. And and they know that we have Austin versus Taker coming up for the title. So. That's very true, yeah. So so you'll be sticking around. You'll be sitting through Chaz and Meat. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Chaz, by the way, in my opinion, not off to a good start here because they give him what may be the worst theme song in WWF slash WWE history. It's a generic rock song, but it sounds like they actually have some slide whistles in there too, as though Sideshow Mel was in studio with them. So really bizarre. And one interesting moment during the match I noticed, though, Sal, did you notice that Meat hit Chaz with an F5? Did you notice that? I did. I could not believe my eyes, but we can now officially state that Brock Lesnar has plagiarized Meat. But unlike Brock, though, Meat doesn't even bother trying to pin Chaz after hitting the move, and the match just continues. And the finish comes when Terry gets up on the ring apron and distracts referee Jimmy Corderas. So Mariana then gets up on the apron as well, and she pushes Terry down to the floor. And at that point, I had a flashback to the last time we saw Terry fall down to the floor. You know, back in January when we did that miscarriage angle. Oi. But anyway, that distraction does indeed allow Chaz to sneak up on meat, and he then picks him up into the torture rack position, and holy shit, folks... Chaz hits Meat with a fucking burning hammer. Or yeah. At least a, yeah. But at least it was a safer version where you don't drop the guy on his fucking neck. But if you're not familiar with the move, for those of you at home, essentially picture someone getting put in the torture rack position, and then the guy kind of gives him like an attitude adjustment so he lands on his stomach instead of his back. So very, very interesting. And of course, that's enough for Chaz to pick up the three count. So, Sal, I've got to say, for a guy who's a total jobber, that's actually a really cool-looking finishing move, which I was not expecting from a guy who was wrestling while dressed as a goddamn child just a few weeks ago. But anyway, what did you think of this legendary clash between Chaz and Meat? To be fair, I think there's nothing that Sean Stasiak can claim, because when Brock took the F5... He also murdered Stasiak and buried him somewhere behind WWE Studios. <laughs> Haven't seen him since. Exactly. Um, and so I put in my notes, yay Chaz? Question mark? Yeah. Like I said, to your, to your point, I did like the finisher. I thought that was cool. All right, cool. One good thing. That legitimately did pop me because I was like, what the fuck? Chaz just did a burning hammer? Are you kidding me? Like it was No Mercy 64? You know, you gotta wonder if that's a shoot that he forgot his gear. If he came out there in anything else but Joe Boxer boxers, if he came out there in any type of gear whatsoever, would it have been less goofy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. <laughs> that's a fair point. Yeah, what is the appropriate gear for a guy named Chaz? I wonder. I was to be honest, I would assume like black trunks, black boots, very basic. You know what right. I mean? Maybe some Brad Armstrong stuff in there. And not in the cool Stone Cold Steve Austin way. Yeah, just I'm too poor to afford gear way. Yes. So I, I'm actually kind of interested to see if, if Chaz keeps using the burning hammer as a finisher. But something tells me we're probably not going to get the chance to find out because I can't imagine that he's going to win that many more matches. So 
We shall see. But yeah, like you said, it's probably going to have to be on Velocity and Jacked and Metal and all those other shows. But once that match concludes, JR kicks it backstage to Terry Taylor, who is with Test. But of course, JR has to sneak in a quick shot at Terry Taylor by saying, quote, let's hear it for the rooster. And suddenly, I'm immediately back on Chaz's side because Terry Taylor was also saddled with a shitty gimmick. And here he is, nine years later, still being mocked by Jim Ross for being the Red Rooster. So maybe Chaz was right about not going down gimmick alley. So here's what I don't understand about that real quick. Terry Taylor, I believe at some point, given how many times he switched back and forth, must have worked with Jim Ross in the old WCW. Yeah, I think so. Now, I have no idea if they liked each other, right? I'm sure if you hear anything now, Ross will say, I have the utmost respect for Terry Taylor. I'm sure he does. But at this point in 1999, Jim Ross was the head of talent relations. So what, and I understand Terry Taylor is not an active wrestler at this point, but why take that shot? What, 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 come on, how fucking, what are you, bitter that he left WCW in like 89 or something? Like why? (laughs) Why Why even bring that up? Yeah, very, very fair question. Just to, just to take a shit on Terry Taylor for, for no discernible reason. Like, Terry Taylor, of all people, needs a shit taken on him. Like, he, come on. <laughs> what else can you do to the guy? Maybe he thought Terry Taylor was coming for his spot backstage, so he had to, oh had to take God. him down a peg. <laughs> you never know with Jim Ross. You never fucking know. That's true. But yes, so Terry Taylor says to Tess that, well, after seeing that GTV segment, it's pretty obvious that... But before you can get another word out, Shane McMahon and the Mean Street Posse run in and tackle Tess, causing the chain-link fence set behind them to collapse. The four of them then throw Tess face-first into a Coke machine before a bunch of referees eventually show up to pull them off of him. So yes, I guess we can confirm that Shane is none too pleased that his sister is dating a wrestler. Hashtag foreshadowing. Speaking of wrestlers, kayfabe-wise, are we supposed to believe that four uh, snot-nosed brats from Greenwich, Connecticut can beat up seven-foot Tess? Apparently so. I guess I guess four of them evens things out. <sighs> I guess. But all of these four guys aren't even supposed to be, like, you know, trained wrestlers. They're supposed to be just Shane's buddies. Correct, correct. And, and Tess is like a monster. Yeah, but Joey Abs, in fairness, actually is a trained wrestler. No, I'm sure, yeah, in real life, yeah. I'm just saying, like, you know, character-wise, like, what you've shown us on TV. Like, the like Tess, was, Tess is seven feet tall! Yeah. Although, although that doesn't stop them from, from making Kane and Big Show look like a joke, so. Right. Oh, that's a, that's a perfect lead-in to the next segment, actually. I was going to say, speaking of Kane! Yes. Because we then go back into the arena where Hardcore Holly is headed to the ring. And once again, for some reason, someone has decided that giving a microphone to Bob Holly is a good idea. And Sal, I swear to Christ, if you watch this promo, you can actually see fear in Bob Holly's eyes. Because it looks like he's trying like hell to remember what he has to say, but he has to keep stopping to figure it out. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and play this for you here so you at home can also get to experience this awkwardness. First of all, I've got something to say to you, Big Show. Last week, you threw a car on me. <laughs> Is that the best you've got? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Well, guess what? You missed. <laughs> you didn't miss. Look, Big Show, I'll get back to you later on because right now, I got bigger fish to burn. 
It seems to me you don't know who Hardcore Holly is. You see, I'm the big shot. Big shot. So, if you want some of Hardcore Holly, So yeah, I feel like somebody backstage must really dislike Hardcore Holly because they keep sending him out there to do these promos and they are clearly not his strong suit. But then again, by most accounts, Holly's a bit of a dick, so screw him, I guess. And also, yes, because it's 1999, Holly, of course, has to refer to Kane as the big red retard. So that was lovely. But yes, sure enough, Kane does indeed emerge from backstage. So this match is officially on. And after only about a minute or so, the Big Show proceeds to walk out from backstage. So Holly then distracts referee Teddy Long, and yes, Big Show nails Kane with a choke slam. And somehow Teddy Long doesn't seem to realize that a 500-pound man just choke slammed a 320-pound man right behind him. But you know, wrestling referees ain't exactly the sharpest knives in the drawer, I suppose. And so Big Show then heads right backstage. And Hardcore Holly proceeds to put one foot on Kane. Teddy Long makes the count. And yes, Hardcore Holly has just gotten a pinfall victory over Kane. And again, as a reminder, up until a few weeks ago, no one had scored a pinfall victory over Kane since Survivor Series. But now Kane has taken three pinfall losses in the span of two weeks at the hands of such legends as the Acolytes, Billy Gunn, and now Hardcore Holly. I'm getting the idea that the luster of Kane is about to finally wear off. You say that, but three out of four of those people are Hall of Famers. <laughs> Jesus. Is Billy... Oh yeah, Billy Gunn is a Hall of Famer, that's right. Good he point. is, got inducted with DX. And Hardcore Holly someday, because, you know... <laughs> he's. I feel like Hardcore Holly actually will get in at some point, just because he was with the company for so long. You think they show videos of him being Thurman Sparky Plug, or you think they they don't even bring it up? Oh God, I think he would mandate that they not show those videos. I, I okay, I will say this that I I kind of give Holly a little bit of credit for trying to be a big shot, yeah, as he the called big himself, shot. the big shot. And he he's got jacked up. He looks great. He's in great shape. Should he be pinning Kane? No, no. Unless Big Show's going to hit Kane with a fucking chair to the head, he shouldn't be pinning Kane. Yeah, when Hardcore Holly pinned Kane with literally a one-footed pin, I was like, holy shit, this is uh, this is just not right. Well, with the, with the one foot, I, I pretty much laughed because I was like, wow, how outrageous, this is so outrageous, it's actually slightly entertaining. <laughs> Fair. Well, actually, on that note... We can actually get into what happens after the match ends because I was entertained by this because Holly then stands over Kane and proceeds to taunt him. So Kane grabs Hardcore Holly by the throat, stands up, and nails him with a choke slam, and then he does it again and again and again. So yes, you heard that correctly, folks. Kane hits Hardcore Holly with four consecutive choke slams, and the crowd fucking 
Loved it, by the way. So, Sal, did you enjoy the match as well as Hardcore Holly getting choke-slammed into oblivion? I enjoyed the the after-the-match part much more. I would have tweaked it in one way. I would have had three choke slams, and then I would have done the tombstone, and then I would have had him carted out. Oh, nice. You gotta, you, and then the next week I would have had Holly completely be d- delusional. Not like really delusional, but as far as like, I pinned Kane with one foot. Like just completely forgetting the fact that Kane beat his ass. Right. Oh, I actually, I think I forgot to mention it to you. Well, Hardcore Holly said it in his promo, but at the beginning of the promo, he does say that Big Show tried to push the car on him. And Hardcore Holly then puts that line where he's like, you missed. So again, now now we have Hardcore Holly's official confirmation that the car indeed did not squash him. But so that I guess that basically makes the angle about, you know, 900% less cool. But hey, whatever, that's fine. But yes, Hardcore Holly gets a pinfall victory over Kane. It seems like they must really want to do something with Hardcore Holly if they're letting him pin Kane with ease like that. Granted, I know Big Show interfered. But I mean, having him go over Kane... I'm assuming that means they want to at least do something with Holly. And remember, King of the Ring, he only lost because he basically got himself disqualified. He didn't take a pinfall loss or a submission. So very, very interesting here. Again, I don't think they do anything with him, but I suppose suppose you can keep watching those Raws to find out. I think, I think a relative of his comes in pretty soon. That's all I know. This is a slow burn. This is leading right up to that title match of Brock Lesnar in five years. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or four years, whatever it was. Also, the WWF has a long and storied history of having the Hollies go over super heavyweights. That's true. That's a very fair point. (laughs) Coming soon, coming very soon to the WWF, in fact. The biggest Holly of them all. That's right, the super heavyweight. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where it is now time for our next match, The Rock versus Triple H, who was accompanied by China. And yes, you heard that correctly. As far as I can tell, we were never even told that we'd be getting The Rock versus Triple H on this show, but indeed we are. And what the hell, I've already played one Rock promo on this episode, but screw it, I'm going to go ahead and play The Rock's pre-match promo for you here as well. The Rock beat you not once, but twice. But the people's champ ain't crying because he relishes in the fact that you woke up this morning with a brand new tattoo tatted on the back of your 33-pound head. And the tattoo read this. Last night at King of the Ring, The Rock did sacrifice me fast, for he took my own hand, turned it sideways, and stuck it straight up my candy ass! I don't remember seeing that. No. Triple H, The Rock says, you don't have enough hair on your Rudy To come out here and let the rock serve you up a nice big fat rock burger with some extra cheese. And when you get thirsty, the rock has a nice tall glass of freshly squeezed monkey piss to go along with it. The 
told you he was irate. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Now, I've got to admit something here, Sal. Because The Rock has been referencing The Undertaker's 33-pound head in so many promos over the past few weeks, I had to actually Google the average weight of the human head, and it turns out it's about 10 to 11 pounds, so a 33-pound head would indeed be quite impressive. What's not as impressive, however, is the fact that The Rock has apparently gone back to that failed catchphrase of, A Rock Burger with Extra Cheese! I think it's time to leave that one for dead there, Rock. However, I will allow a nice tall glass of freshly squeezed monkey piss. But I do have to question, I mean, does that mean that The Rock is squeezing the piss out of the monkey himself? Or never mind, let's just get in the match. So unfortunately, it actually doesn't end up being much of a match, sadly, because after only... Oh, yeah, sorry? No, I was going to say, nope, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, it only goes for about two minutes with The Rock working over Triple H in one of the corners. And at that point, Hunter's new business partner, the hired gun, Billy Gunn, that's what I'm just going to call him anyway, runs into the ring and he hits Rock in the head with, honestly, what kind of looks like one of those batons that Steve Blackman was hitting Shamrock with earlier tonight. And of course, that results in a disqualification. And by the way, if Mr. Ass doesn't call that weapon the Billy Club, that's a huge missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned. I was going to say, the fact that it is a police baton, you have you literally lay it out right in front of you. Billy Club, you're right. Absolutely. Oh, so it was a police baton? I believe so, yes. Oh, maybe barred it from uh, the newly healed Big Boss Man. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so it also sounds like when Billy knocks him down, he's yelling something at The Rock like, Don't you ever do that again! But I'm not exactly sure what it is that The Rock did, so your guess is as good as mine. But anyway, Sal, did you enjoy The Rock versus Triple H, or what we got of it anyway? First of all, I wrote down Rockburger. That never, ever got over, and I... Nope. Just stop. Just yeah. stop with the fucking Rockburger. He's so close. But like I said earlier, he's still cutting promos in the corporate rock way. Mm. He's He's like... Three shades away from the This Is Your Life rock. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's so fucking close. And then I'm like, oh my god, Rock versus Triple H. Awesome. Oh, it's already over. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I, I wasn't imagining things, right? Like, they did not say on Raw up to this point that we were getting Rock versus Triple H, right? N not a word, and I'm glad you brought that up because I thought I had missed something. Yeah. Yeah, I know earlier tonight they did, obviously they did the pull-apart brawl where, where Tony Gurria restrained Triple H and Sergeant Slaughter restrained The Rock, but I don't think Jim Ross or, or Jerry Lawler ever said, these two guys are going to go head-to-head -head later on tonight. So, yeah. yeah, really weird. I think they do, I could be wrong, but I think maybe they face each other at Fully Loaded. I honestly don't know. I'm not really sure what the Fully Loaded card is, but I think maybe they face each other on that show? Maybe? Uh, maybe. Or was it... Um... Or did they do Triple H and Billy Gunn versus X-Pac and Road Dog? Oh, maybe, maybe they do. That would make sense. Actually, I happen to have the card right here. Oh, perfect. Okay. First of all, the poster is Triple H in China, back-to-back -back with their arms crossed. Okay. That sounds and... really great. <laughs> and the card shows us to have... 
Let's see here. You can just spoil what The Rock and Triple H do. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the whole card for the listeners because it's going to unfold. Okay, so actually you are correct, and I was partially correct. Road Dog and X Pac take on Billy Gunn in China. Oh, okay, okay. And then Triple H did fight The Rock to determine the number one contender to the WWF Championship at SummerSlam. Ooh, very interesting. Okay. And that was not the main event. The main event was Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker. That well, that makes sense. Yeah, that I makes kind sense. of figured that. <laughs> but okay, so yeah, you're right. Rock does fight Triple H at Fully Loaded. There we go. I guess that makes sense now. Got you got to drag this out. You can't just have Rock versus Triple H on free TV, even though we actually have gotten Rock versus Triple H on free TV several times, I think, over the past couple of months. But but that's okay. So after commercial break, we go backstage where Michael Cole was supposed to give us an update on the Rock's condition, but instead he gets interrupted by some nearby commotion. And the camera then pans over to show that it's Draws and Prince Albert beating the crap out of Val Venus, presumably as further payback for Val tattooing his initials on Albert's ass last week. So yes, as for this epic Val versus Draws and Albert feud, clearly it must continue. And we then go back into the arena for our next match, The Godfather, accompanied by Four Hoes, versus Edge. And I got a random side note for you here, Sal. I don't know if you saw the Dark Side of the Ring episode where they covered the Brawl for All, but they interviewed the Godfather for that show, and he revealed that he smoked weed before pretty much every match he ever wrestled in the WWF, including those Brawl for All bouts. So in case you thought roll a fatty for this pimp daddy was just a catchphrase for him, apparently it was not. It was the real deal. It was like a plea. Like, come on, I need another one. Come on. (laughs) Somebody, please roll me another fucking joint. First of all, similar to your point earlier, I had what the hell is Sergeant Slaughter and Teddy Long going to do against Draws and Albert, because they were the ones that pulled them off of Val. Well, hey, Sergeant Slaughter already restrained The Rock earlier tonight, so there you go. It's true. And the thing... (laughs) So, it doesn't really surprise me that The Godfather did uh, most of his matches high. However, I am surprised to hear that he, he would smoke before the Brawl for All, because... You'd think the last thing you'd want to do is lessen your reactionary skills in a <laughs> real fist fight. But that kind of explains why he didn't go very far in the tournament. Yeah. Although, in fairness, he did beat at least one person in the Brawl for All. So, I mean, it, it worked for at least one of his fights. The, the one against Bart Gunn, not so much. But but one of them, at least one of his fights, it, apparently his his usual strategy was effective. Probably got lucky. Um... The other thing is, too, I have not watched that episode yet. It is on my DVR. But I did see the the synopsis for the episode, and it said, and this popped me, it said, it has been known as the worst idea in the history of wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I go, oh, what are they talking? Oh, the brawl for all. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. I wonder, though, is that is that really the worst idea? I feel like there have to be some worse ideas than that. Although maybe not, because a lot of guys got injured and pretty much ended Dr. Death's career. So, hey, maybe not. Maybe not. It's the worst idea in the sense that somebody could have gotten killed. Fair. <laughs> well, most of all, Bart Gunn when he faced Butterbean. Yes. But, yeah, you're having untrained um, men, large men, mind you, basically underground boxing ring like a fight club you know what i mean yeah that's never a good idea to actually put that on your television when you're supposed to be um 
a simulated product, I guess you could say. Right, right. I will say, though, actually, uh, in terms of that uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode, they do interview Butterbean. He basically says Bart Gunn's downfall in their fight at WrestleMania was the fact that they actually tried to give Bart Gunn boxing lessons, and obviously Butterbean is a boxer. So Butterbean actually says in the documentary, he's like, if they had actually just sent him out there and had him, you know, fight like he did in the Brawl for All, he probably would have had like a 50-50 shot at actually beating Butterbean. But because you had to take... You know, they tried to take Bart Gunn and make him box against a guy who boxes for a living. It was obviously just, it was game over right from the start. So I did think that was pretty interesting, you know, hearing it, hearing Butterbean basically say that he would have given Bart Gunn a shot if they had kind of, you know, gone that route. But as always, big, big recommendation for Dark Side of the Ring. So thumbs up, thumbs up. Is there anybody, and I hate to get off on this tangent, but we will. Is there anybody who got more screwed over than Bart Gunn? The guy goes out there in a fucking real fight tournament. He beats everybody to many people, to pretty much everyone's surprise. They do absolutely nothing with them afterwards. And then now I'm hearing that they tried to train him in boxing before his fight at WrestleMania against a legitimate trained professional boxer. Yep. Could they, I mean... They might as well have made Bart Gunn Tim White. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he. I, I said this before. I think I actually said it uh, way back when I did those Brawl for All episodes, uh, however long ago that was on this podcast. Bart Gunn deserved a lot better. He wasn't, you know, it's not like he had to be pushed to a, you know, world title level. Although, funny enough, they the claim made to people before they entered the Brawl for All tournament was whoever wins the tournament is going to get, you know, a title shot against Steve Austin because I think they just thought Dr. Death was going to win the whole thing. Obviously, Bart Gunn does not fight Steve Austin. Instead, he's off television for about six months. But, I mean, you could have done something with Bart Gunn when you see him. He knocked out three guys legitimately in the tournament. He knocked out Dr. Death. He knocked out Godfather. And he knocked out Bradshaw. So, I mean, you mean to tell me you couldn't have at least done some sort of angle with the guy? You know, it's it's just, it's pretty ridiculous, but... Anyhow, that's a that's a whole other side diversion. I, I kind of this is my fault. I steered us off the track when the Godfather <laughs> came out. But uh, as a reminder, the match here is the Godfather versus Edge, and Godfather is most likely high as fuck. Mm. But another thing I have to note here before the match, since the Austin Powers sequel had just come out two and a half weeks before this episode of Raw, did you notice how Jerry Lawler basically just keeps spouting off Austin Powers catchphrases when Godfather does his intro because it is. Exactly as entertaining as you're thinking it is, folks. You're right. It, it is, quote-unquote, exactly as entertaining as you would think. Yeah. Um, I think even JR says something to him like, oh, you saw Austin Powers this weekend, huh? So, thank you for letting me know that it, it recently had come out, because I thought he was just doing it. So at least there's that little bit of an excuse, like, well, it did just come out in theaters a couple weeks ago. Right, right. So he's, he was being topical, I suppose. Just one of Jerry's strong points, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so, yeah. But it was still pretty fucking annoying. Mm. But as for the Godfather versus Edge, pretty much as soon as the match starts, the aforementioned Draws and Prince Albert emerge from backstage, and Albert is carrying his piercing kit. And sure enough, once the Godfather nails his running hoe train splash, Draws jumps up on the ring apron to distract referee Tim White, which allows Albert to sneak into the ring. And from there, Albert actually presses the Godfather above his head, which I have to say is really fucking impressive because Godfather is a big fucking dude. And from there, Albert then drops him to the ground in that sit-out press slam move he does. 
So Godfather then slowly gets back to his feet. Edge hits him with a running spear. He makes the cover. Tim White makes the count. And yes, that is good enough to give the victory to Edge. Holy shit, a rare victory for a member of the brood. And then, as soon as the match is over, Draws and Prince Albert run into the ring and start beating on the Godfather. And unfortunately, one of the hoes also comes into the ring, which proves to be a mistake. Because Draws then holds her down so that Albert can go into his piercing kit, where he pulls out a clamp and a large piercing needle. And he then proceeds to grab her tongue with the clamp. But thankfully, Edge helps take out Albert and Draws before that can happen. So yes... Edge and the Godfather stand tall, at which point that very grateful hoe apparently takes a liking to Edge, and he then shrugs his shoulder as if to say, hey, might as well. So <laughs> yes, so yes, Edge is indeed gaining the services of one of the Godfather's ladies. But then we get a very bizarre camera shot. So they zoom into what is basically the back row of the loge seats, where we see Gangrel just standing there, shaking his head in disapproval. So why is Gangrel just hanging out in the crowd? Who knows, but apparently he's not a fan of Edge, potentially rogering one of the Godfather's hoes, even though Gangrel himself eventually goes on to direct porn, but that's neither here nor there. True story, though. But anyway, Sal, what do you think of the Godfather versus Edge? Uh, you know, not much of a match. Although, I gotta ask you, Henry, is this the official babyface turn for Edge? And does it just not last long? Because we know what he's doing in just a little bit. Yeah, I think I think they're getting there. I don't know when they actually make the turn, but I know that it is forthcoming. I think maybe by the end of the summer? Because having the girl be like, oh my god, you saved my life, is 100% a babyface thing to do. Right. Um, and also, in this time in 1999 leaving with one of the Godfather's ladies, also a very babyface thing to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With an attitude era crowd, it's like, oh, he's gonna fuck, yeah, woo! <laughs> but what confuses me is very shortly in his future, he's gonna be teaming with Christian, and they're going to be heels. So, I don't remember this particular babyface run. Me neither. It certainly seems like Gangrel is disapproving of them, and obviously last night Gangrel cost them the match, so I feel like that split may be coming sometime very soon. There's nothing worse than disapproving Gangrel face. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> disapproving Gangrel as he sits in the back row of the seats for some reason. And because you're a vampire like him, you can see him. Like, everything just, like, zooms in on him in your vision, and he's just shaking his head. Yeah, if you were, like, if you were seated in front of Gangrel, would you be nervous? Would you be, like, putting your your hand over your neck to be like, uh, maybe I just, you know, maybe I should move to a different seat just in case. I'm just, anybody want to switch seats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, what, this is the attitude area? Every seat is sold? Okay, I guess I can't move. All right, fine. <laughs> and so, after that match concludes, we cut backstage where we see Mr. Ass in his locker room, and he's talking to someone off-camera we can't see. Billy says to this mysterious person, only come if I need you, all right? And that provides a fitting segue because after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is King Ass versus Bradshaw, who is accompanied by Farouk. Yes, we're finally getting the blow-off to this epic week-long feud over Bradshaw's tag team title belt. And strangely, before the match begins, Jim Ross says that this match will determine who gets to keep possession 
of the tag team title that Billy Gunn stole from Bradshaw last week. So apparently, Billy Gunn and Farouk could actually end up being tag team champions. That is very odd. What the actual fuck? <laughs> hey, man, like I said in part one, they can call themselves the Assolites. And early on, Bradshaw knocks Billy out of the ring and distracts referee Mike Kyoto, which allows Farouk to use his title belt to smack Billy in the face. Kind of. of course, yeah, I was going to say, the only problem is when Farouk swung the belt at Billy, it looked like he missed him by about a foot, but Billy had to sell it anyway, so that was a big yikes. But anyway, moving along to the finish, at one point, Mr. Ass lives up to his name by mooning Farouk, so Farouk then jumps up onto the ring apron with his title belt, Bradshaw then tries shoving Billy into the belt, but Mr. Ass ducks, and Bradshaw actually gets hit with the belt instead. So Billy then punches Farouk to knock him down to the floor, and at this point, it looks like Mr. Ass is in full control, but with Mike Kyoto being distracted by Farouk, X-Pac sneaks up on Billy and grabs him by the hair. Billy then turns back around, and Bradshaw nails him with a clothesline from hell, turning Billy inside out in the process. Kyoto turns back around, he makes the count, and yes, your winner and still a WWF Tag Team Champion is Bradshaw. So yes, you heard that correctly, folks. Billy Gunn wins the King of the Ring tournament, and then, literally one night later, he loses a match to a tag team wrestler. I mean, I know it was a screwy finish, but Jesus Christ, why would you have Mr. Ass lose immediately after he just got that huge rub of being crowned King of the Ring. That's just completely nonsensical as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, after the match ends, China runs out from backstage. Presumably, she was the one Billy was talking to backstage there, and she jumps X-Pac from behind. She and Billy then start beating on him until Road Dog runs down to the ring to make the save. He and X-Pac then proceed to clean house. So yes, the two guys in DX who are getting all of the royalties stand tall. So, Sal, what did you think of Mr. Ass versus Bradshaw and these subsequent shenanigans? See, I had this all written down wrong. I said that your new king of the ring was Bradshaw, right? That's how it works, right? No? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> might as well be, because he was getting a bigger push on this night than Billy Gunn was. Yeah, I don't get this. Um, I'm not saying Billy should have won, because God knows a one-person entity calling themselves the tag team champions would be stupid but yeah other than that how about not have this match and just like the acolytes jump them backstage and take back the belt there I'm, you go. I'm fine with that yeah i don't know i'm assuming this is the first time somebody has won king of the ring and then immediately lost one night later i'm, I'm just gonna guess i guarantee you that's correct yeah because you because at this point in 1999 we know all the king of the rings bret hart owen mabel Mabel. Who won in 94, though? Uh, that was Owen. Oh, and Brett was 93. Okay, so Brett, Owen, Mabel, Austin, Hunter. Yeah, nobody's Shamrock. losing. What? Who? Shamrock? Oh, yes, that's right. Even Shamrock! Even Shamrock! I guarantee if you go back in your archives, he did not lose the next night on Raw. No, he didn't. I remember exactly what happened, because the next night on Raw, both Triple H and Owen being former Kings of the Ring, challenged Shamrock to a, a triple threat match, basically, and Shamrock beat them both. So he was, this. I remember this because they called it a King of Kings match. King of Kings match, yep. And Shamrock beat Triple H, so I was like, oh, that's that's fitting. That's right. Nobody loses the King of the Ring. 
the day after they win it. Right. Meaning they have already buried Billy Gunn before he even gets started. Exactly. And I have a guess as to what happened here because we talked a little bit about this in part one. What I think happened was, again, the the plan was supposed to be that Big Show was going to win the King of the Ring. So last Monday on Raw, they were probably just thinking, well, we'll have Billy Gunn do this angle with the Acolytes and blah, 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 pay it off next week. But then in the interim, when the whole thing came out about, you know, Big Show's going to win the tournament and they pivoted to Billy Gunn, I guess they were still thinking like, well, we still have to pay off the angle because he stole the title belt. You know what I mean? Like they, they kept... They changed the plan and made Billy the King of the Ring, but they didn't change the plan with the tag title feud. That's right. just that, that's just my guess. I don't know if that's what was in the cards, but that would be my assumption as to why they had to, for some reason, have this feud between Billy Gunn and the Acolytes. But yeah, it's it makes no sense to have to have Billy Gunn lose immediately after being crowned King of the Ring because right right off the bat you're like, okay, well this guy's not supposed to be taken very seriously now, is he? If he's losing to a tag team wrestler. Now, the one thing I will say in that, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that, yeah, you're absolutely right. They they just wanted to close the door on the angle, and they wanted to get Billy away from the angle because they weren't planning on, on having that finish at King of the Ring. There's got to be a million more creative ways to do that than have your brand new King of the Ring take a fucking pinfall loss. Yeah, to a nobody. You know? To a nobody. Like, all night long, hell, all year long, You've been doing these screwy finishes. So just have, as much as this wouldn't do him that much good either, but at least it would make more sense, have Farouk cause the DQ and have them walk away with the tag belts. There you go. Really not. I mean, you don't have to leave them laying, but you can at least cost them the match and then not cost them the match. You know what I mean? Like, jump them, the match is thrown out, Billy wins by DQ, the Acolytes cheers the belt, and then walk away. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes more sense than this? <laughs> I hope, oh, Yeah. This makes no sense, so pretty much any other option makes more sense than this. Fair. But, anywho, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where your new WWF Women's Champion, Ivory, is headed to the ring, and she's accompanied by Nicole Bass, the woman who helped her win the title from Deborah on Raw two weeks ago. And Ivory says that she's a real champion, unlike the Barbie dolls who have held the belt recently, but her problem is... There's no competition in the WWF, and so she extends an open invitation to any fan in the crowd. And I mean, holy shit, talk about just begging for someone to jump the rail. But as it turns out, a planted fan does indeed take her up on this offer, and fortunately for the Attitude Era crowd, it's an attractive young woman who is wearing a very short skirt, as if you expected anything else. But at first, Jim Dotson, that security guard with the backwards patty cap, tries to hold her back, but Ivory tells him to let the fan go, and Ivory even tries to encourage the fan by saying, quote, It's all fake anyway, honey. <sighs> I did appreciate that, though. So once he lets the fan go, even though she literally just hopped the rail, the fan apparently has second thoughts and doesn't want to fight after all, so Ivory slaps her in the face, and the fan responds by tackling Ivory to the ground. But that proves to be a bad idea, because Nicole Bass then grabs the fan, power bombs her, and starts choking her until Ivory finally tells her to stop. So Ivory then goes to help the fan up, but then she clotheslines her right back down to the ground and starts tearing out her hair until Jim Dotson finally grabs Ivory to separate her from the fan. And folks, let's just say if you enjoyed those segments that involve about a thousand upskirt shots, then this is clearly the highlight of the show for you because that poor young 
fan certainly had her thong exposed about six ways from Sunday. But Sal, I pride myself on my research here, so yes, I did indeed find out who this young quote-unquote fan is, and her name is Malia Hosaka. So she actually previously wrestled on WCW television eight times in 1996 and 97, including five episodes of Nitro, and she picked up a grand total of one win, a pinfall victory over Medusa on Nitro, thanks to Sonny Ono holding down Medusa's foot. Now, interestingly, if Wikipedia is to be believed, the initial idea here for Hosaka in the WWF was to do a quote-unquote Rocky Balboa underdog storyline against Ivory, and in her promo, Ivory actually said she wanted to do her own Rocky movie tonight, so they did actually set that idea up. However, because wrestling fans are diehards, Hosaka was instantly recognized due to her tenure in WCW, and so the WWF completely ends up dropping the idea for this storyline. And eventually, Malia ends up accompanying Taka Michinoku to the ring for one match in the year 2000, and also according to Wikipedia, there were some talks of calling her Aphrodisia and pairing her with S.A. Rios when he, spoiler alert, comes into the WWF next year. However, they end up pairing someone else with S.A. Rios instead, and that ends up working out pretty well for that person. But anyway, Sal, what did you think about Ivory calling out a random fan, and do you wish that we had gotten to see more of Malia Hosaka in the WWF? Well, I got this completely wrong, and that's a shoot. Because watching this segment unfold, first of all, I wrote down, did Ivory just pull a Kurt Angle where she's <laughs> like... challenging anyone to fight her, right? And Daniel Pewter comes out of the crowd. I was going to say, too bad this girl didn't have ruthless aggression. But other than that, as the angle's going on, I'm sitting here going, well, this this is a, a fill-in spot. This is a program that was tailor-made for, for Sable. Hell, they even have Nicole Bass out there. <laughs> right. Yeah, they basically just transitioned Nicole Bass from Sable's bodyguard to Ivory's bodyguard. But I never thought in my mind that this was a program that was going to be for that girl. I thought it was just a way to get heat, not for Ivory. <laughs> right, like this could be like a recurring thing where she just beats up a different fan every week or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, they kind of go like the Tory route where like a fan comes out of the crowd and it's like, hey, now you're a wrestler. Or at least that was apparently the plan. But once people recognized Malia Hosaka, it was like, oh, nope, forget it. And, and now Malia Hosaka does nothing in the WWF instead. Wait a minute. People recognize the fucking Undertaker, too, as Mark Calloway, and nobody was like, oh, that's it. Forget forget the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I think in this case, they were kind of like playing it up as though, you know, this this is a person who is actually a fan, and now she's part of the WWF, but because like... Oh, you mean they were going to try to Santino Morella it? Yes, exactly. Right. But because the fan, fans on the internet apparently were like, oh, that's not a fan. That's Malia Hosaka. She was on WCW. She wrestled on Nitro. Then it was just kind of like, all right, well, fuck it. Just, we'll, just, we'll just scrap the angle, I guess. So full disclosure, I actually really enjoyed the, the Milan miracle when it happened. I thought sure. it was great, especially Vince slowly speaking to Santino, being like, you can't sue me. You can't <laughs> sue the WWE. I thought it was hilarious. I knew the whole time the guy wasn't a fan. Right. But I thought the way they portrayed that was way more believable than this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, anytime they do these angles where it's like, I want a fan to come out of the crowd, I'm just like, well, why doesn't why don't you have like 50 fans just jumping the rail right now when they're flat out saying it, you know? Yeah, me, me, I want to be on TV. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, like, especially in the Attitude Era where you have a bunch of crazy, you know, drunk fans in the crowd. I'm surprised none of them were like, oh, fuck it. You know, she called me out. I'm going to do it. But, you know, honestly, on Nitro, you do get a lot of those moments where the fans jump the rail. So, so it's a good thing, I guess, that uh, that the WWF fans uh, thought better of it. I don't really remember too many incidents involving WWF fans hopping the guardrail, except for that one time where it was uh, the ladder match where Eddie was climbing and the fan knocked him off the ladder. Have you ever seen that one? Yes, that was fucking scary, though. Yeah. Like, like that was fucked up. Yeah, that's like one of the few instances I can remember somebody actually at a WWF show anyway, getting involved. Although I think actually recently on some house shows, I think it's happened. I know there was one where I think Triple H had to tackle a guy, and there was one, I think, um, where somebody came in, like somebody ran up behind Orton when Orton was posing on the turnbuckle and like ball shot at him. <laughs> but oh yeah, um, thankfully those incidents are few and far between. Now they are few and far between because I'm pretty sure the WWE entered a policy where if anybody jumps the guardrail, they will cut that footage completely out. They will not show that person on camera. So right. if your goal is to get a get your YouTube hits up or whatever, you're not going to get it. I forgot the, the best example of all were that, that moment where uh, Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns were supposed to I have the mystery person. I was just about person. to bring that up. <laughs> and the actual fan walks into the ring dressed as the shield to face the Wyatt family, and he gets yes. taken away. But, of course, the best part was Bray Wyatt yelling at uh, at Dean and Roman, being like, is that your guy? So, <laughs> is that your boy? Yeah, exactly. That's one of those moments where a fan running into the ring made the segment about a thousand times better. So, yeah, but that's a bad example. Yeah, that was the thing, right? Was that Dean and um, Roman were going to have a partner. Correct. <laughs> so so when that guy showed up in the S.H.I.E.L.D. outfit, that, that was hilarious when Bray was just like, is that, oh, is that him? Oh, is that who you going <laughs> to Yeah. I think even Ambrose, like, cracked a smile at that one, too, so. No, I was going to bring that up because that's one of the things where I think they, they amended the policy and they said, listen, you know, if anybody – does this whether it's on tv or not aside from doing everything we can to make sure you're not shown on tv uh we're gonna play we're gonna press full charges and you're gonna be banned from the building for life yeah that's which is and, fair. That's, I think and that's since fair. they did that and i think they publicized it if i remember correctly you've seen it a lot less because nobody wants like legit charges <laughs> yeah the only real recent one i can think of is that guy who tackled bret hart at the hall of fame but that's about it. And even that guy got punched in the face by, uh, who was it, Dash or Dawson, one of those guys? Yeah, uh, Dash Wilder punched him in the fucking face. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, don't do not do that. No, if you're do um, that. If you're a wrestling fan, hell, we all are. That's why, we're, that's why we're podcasting right now. Have respect for the people out there putting their bodies on the line. Don't be an idiot and jump the rail because, you know, you're lucky it's not like it was back in the day where they would just beat the shit out of you. But you're also putting people in danger, or at least making them believe they're in danger, and that's that's just a jack, you know, a jerk off thing to do. Like, don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. We don't know if you have a knife or something. You know what I mean? Like, but all of this is to say that Malia Hosaka deserved better. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Circling back, that's true. Yes. But so we then go backstage where Michael Cole has caught up to Vince McMahon. And Cole says that the McMahons won the battle last night, but Stone Cold may win the war tonight by taking the Undertaker's title. And a cocky Vince then responds that he isn't worried at all. So seems like the chairman has quite a bit of confidence in the WWF champion. 
And we then cut elsewhere backstage where a makeup artist is touching up Deborah, but your WWF Intercontinental Champion Jeff Jarrett is getting impatient with her, so he grabs her by the hand and walks away with her. Huh, Double J being disrespectful to women. I wonder if that'll end up becoming a recurring thing. I guess we'll see. And after commercial break, when we come back, we actually get another commercial, and it's The Rock's Chef Boyardee ad. So, Sal, are you a fan of getting chefy with it? Oop. <laughs> and I'm Fair glad enough. that never and I'm glad that never became a catchphrase either. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's actually a good point. I'm surprised he never like incorporated that into one of his promos. Maybe Also, I have best. in my notes the Intercontinental Champion. The Intercontinental Champion. First of all, if there are any smarks out there in 1999 and by the signs we know that there are, everybody automatically thinks that Jeff was given this belt to ease his mind after Owen died. Sure. Okay, so we all know why Jeff's the champion. And then, you know, forgive me because this guy just recently uh, reached an agreement on his release, but the Intercontinental Champion feels more like an afterthought at this point, and it, it reminds me of when it was on Curtis Axel. Oh, yeah. And that's not that's not what I think the Intercontinental Championship should be. Right, right. Yeah, Jarrett's basically, I think ever since he won the belt, I mean, well, a couple weeks ago on Raw, he had the straight jacket match against Ken Shamrock that he still somehow managed to lose, even though Shamrock couldn't use his goddamn arms. So he hasn't been booked all that strongly, I guess you could say. No, not at all. No, but that does actually provide a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental title champion Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Deborah versus X-Pac. And before the match, Deborah tosses her brand new t-shirt to Jerry Lawler, which simply says, Show me your puppies. I wonder which sold more, that one or the I'd rather be in China shirt. I need, I need uh, to find the numbers on that. Gee, I wonder. So early on here, I have to mention a really nice spot. So Jarrett puts X-Pac in the abdominal stretch, but then X-Pac escapes and puts Jarrett in an abdominal stretch of his own. And Double J then broke the hold by grabbing the top rope for momentum and hip-tossing X-Pac over the top rope, a move which I thought only happened in video games. Pretty crazy stuff. Oh, remember when that was a way to get somebody out in the Royal Rumble video game? I do, yes. Instead of actually forcing them out, you could just, if you're close enough to the ropes, you could just hip-toss them out. Just hip-toss them right out, yep. <laughs> was that the, the Sega Genesis game? The Sega and Super Nintendo Royal Rumble game. Yes, yes. The one where you would hit Yokozuna and fish would fly out, right? No, 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 no. That was like the arcade game. Oh, okay. Different one. This was like the classic. Have you ever seen the Twitter account Wrestling Arcade? Yes, I have. Yep. Yeah, it, it's the ones that look like those guys. Okay, gotcha. So, yes, so Jared and Xbox then actually proceed to have a very nice five-minute television match here. Neither guy's a main eventer, but both very good workers. So just want to give them both a shout-out here. You never really watch a match with either of these guys and say... Wow, damn, X-Pac sure was off his game tonight. No, they're always solid. Never really get a lot of television time to show it in the Attitude Era, but they're always solid. But anyway, eventually X-Pac does indeed manage to hit Jarrett with the Bronco Buster, at which point Mr. Ass runs out from backstage and grabs Jarrett's guitar. And yes, for those scoring at home, this is the fourth segment tonight involving Billy Gunn. So if you love Mr. Ass, this is certainly the show for you. But anywho, Billy Gunn swings the guitar at X-Pac, but Pac ducks and nails Billy with a spinning heel kick instead. 
So referee Jimmy Corderas then gets distracted trying to keep Billy out of the ring, at which point X-Pac picks up the guitar, but Deborah attempts to distract X-Pac by unbuttoning her blouse. But as it turns out, however, X-Pac doesn't go for it, and he smacks Jarrett in the head with the guitar. Pac goes for the pin, but Deborah is now distracting Corderas, and that allows Mr. Ass to sneak into the ring and nail X-Pac with a Famasser. Billy leaves, Jarrett covers X-Pac, Corderas turns back around, he makes the count, and yes, your winner and still WWF Intercontinental Champion is Jeff Jarrett. And after the match, Billy starts beating on X-Pac again, so Road Dog runs out to make the save, followed by China, also running out from backstage, and once again, all four of them end up brawling. Eventually, a bunch of referees and WWF officials run out to separate them, but it certainly appears that the past and present DX members are in a war over, uh, merchandise royalties. And really, Sal, shouldn't Billy be getting all of the royalties since he is now technically a royal after last night? Just a thought. Just a thought. But anyway, what did you think of Jarrett versus X-Pac here? Like you said, it was pretty good. The crowd was behind X-Pac. Yeah. And I don't understand what was up with that cameraman because he completely missed the guitar shot. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, he's like a modern-day uh, WWF cameraman <laughs> or WWE cameraman. Uh, I, I will say it was a little bit impressive. And and you know what? Maybe that old adage that it's not what you're doing in the ring, it's the TV time you're getting. So to that credit, Billy was get was on this show a lot. What I, I did love is the the, mystery, or the switch in midair when he hit the Famouser. Oh, yeah. Cause he sp- like he he jumped to get X Pac, but he also like flipped in midair, like turned himself so that he would actually hit him with the Famouser. Right, right. Yeah, that was nice. That was good. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a bad match. There was definitely a point where I thought X Pac was winning. Yeah, yeah. They certainly teased it because it was, you know, uh, he didn't go for the Deborah distraction. When Billy Gunn tried to interfere, he took the guitar from him. So it's like all the all the pieces are set up for you, set up here, I should say, for X Pac to win the belt, but. Alas, doesn't happen. I also I don't think X Pac ever wins the Intercontinental Title. I could be wrong about that, but I think I think he gets shut out in that department. No, you are correct, and I knew that, which is why I knew he wasn't going to win. But I was like, well, maybe I'm wrong. But then I wasn't wrong. Right? Yeah, he definitely wins his fair share of other titles. I think in terms of, uh, I think he gets the light heavyweight at some point. And maybe he was definitely the European champion. We know that. Mm-hmm. And he was the cruiserweight champion in WCW. That's right. And he was, and he was a multiple-time tag champion. A multiple-time tag champion. One of those reigns was for just one day, as we mentioned. But, you know, that still right. counts. And so, after a commercial break, Sal, here we are. It is time for our main event WWF Championship match. Champion, The Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus challenger Stone Cold Steve Austin. And remember... No outside interference from the corporate ministry is allowed, or Taker will be stripped of the title. And so Stone Cold starts off on fire early, getting the better of Taker with a Thez press and an elbow drop, but the momentum shifts when Taker clotheslines him over the top rope, and the action goes to the floor. From there, Undertaker starts to take control, and he continues working over Stone Cold when he rolls him back into the ring. And the action's actually pretty fast-paced early on, but eventually Taker decides to slow things down with a lengthy headlock. Stone Cold tries to escape, but Taker then does his rope walk routine, knocking Austin down to the mat. It only gets a two-count, though, so Taker goes right back to the headlock. This time, however, Stone Cold escapes by hitting Taker with a jawbreaker. 
He then tries to crotch Taker around the turnpost, but Taker kicks him away, sending Stone Cold flying into the barricade. But after that very brief detour outside the ring, they both roll right back in, where Taker goes to a third headlock. This time, though, Stone Cold quickly escapes, and he bounces off the ropes, but Taker and Austin clothesline each other simultaneously, so now they're both down on the mat. Referee Earl Hebner counts for a bit, but both men manage to get back to their feet, and then, well, take a listen to how the match concludes. And the Undertaker sets up, yes, the demonic Undertaker. Come on, Paul, come him up. The personification of evil. Back on his feet, off the pinning in the corner, off the Undertaker coming in, perhaps out of desperation. And again, the rattlesnake, striking with all he's got. What? How much does Austin have left in the tank? Undertaker reverses. There's your answer, baby. Oh, oh no. The tombstone. Austin. So what you heard there was The Undertaker picking up Stone Cold for a tombstone, but Austin escaped and nailed him with a Stone Cold stunner. Referee Earl Hebner went to make the count, but Paul Bearer yanked him out of the ring before he could count to three. Austin then rolled out of the ring and punched Bearer, but when he rolled back in, Taker knocked him down with a clothesline. However, that momentum didn't last too long because Taker whipped him off the ropes and Stone Cold ducked another clothesline attempt, and then it looked like they both kind of fucked up whatever spot they were supposed to do because they just kind of ran into each other. But then, who cares, because Austin kicks Taker in the stomach, and then he hits him with 
another stunner. He makes the cover, Earl Hebner makes the count, and holy shit, your winner and the new World Wrestling Federation champion for the fourth time is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yes, for the second year in a row, Stone Cold wins the WWF title on Monday Night Raw, the night after King of the Ring. And after losing the belt to The Undertaker at Over the Edge, Austin has now regained the title just five short weeks later. And Stone Cold then calls for some celebratory beers, but immediately after he does that, The Undertaker smacks Austin in the face with the WWF title belt, which proceeds to bust Stone Cold open and turn him into a bloody mess. And interestingly, for the first time I can ever really remember, we don't get a real celebration after a world title win. Instead, we go off the air with The Undertaker punching Stone Cold in the face to try and draw some more blood. So yes, Stone Cold is your new champion, but The Undertaker immediately extracts some revenge. But with that being said, Sal, what did you think of our main event WWF title match? I really liked it. I was aware that... Austin was going to win back the title. I didn't know it was going to be this episode. Even as I'm watching this match, I was thinking, um, is he going to get screwed over? Or how are they going to get out of this? And Undertaker's going to leave his champ. And it was a very interesting dynamic. I don't necessarily know how the people in Charlotte felt on this night. Because on the one hand, they exploded when Austin got the pin. But then you don't get the celebration. You Right. You watch him get the crap kicked out of him by by Taker. On the other hand, for me watching at home in 1999, the idea that Austin is once again the champion, uh, everything else is just, you know, an afterthought. You know, Austin will be fine, and who cares if he got beat up? He won the title back. And honestly, in the arena that night, I'm guessing he probably did celebrate a little bit after the show went off the air. That'd be my guess, but right. Now, the other thing, too, is... I knew for a fact at this point, nobody's kicking out of the stunner. Nobody. So when he hit the first stunner, I was like, are they going to do this? And then Paul Bear pulls him out, and I'm like, okay, they used that. That's that's a good way to get out of it. That means Taker's probably going to win. So then when he hit the second stunner, and I was like, oh, nobody around. He's going to do it. Like, I got excited, dude. It was a great moment. Yeah. Although, really, I mean, once Paul Bearer interfered there, I mean, he is a member of the corporate ministry, so shouldn't that have automatically given the belt to Stone Cold anyway? Fair. Just a thought. Just a thought. But, yeah, I mean, I knew, like, when I I, I texted you about this, I, I obviously knew that Stone Cold won the title. I didn't tell you he was going to win the title, but when, like I said at the top here, where I was like, you know, I reached out to you to be like, do you know what happens on the Raw after King of the Rings? So I knew this was coming, but it was still... You know, an awesome moment to go back and revisit because I hadn't watched this match since probably 21 years ago when it actually happened happened, live. Yeah, but obviously this is, you know, this is a huge moment. I mean, Stone Cold Steve Austin winning the title on Raw. Well, I guess guess it did happen one year ago the night after King of the Ring, but Austin winning the title on free TV is not something you get very often. So pretty pretty cool stuff there, and I I imagine – you know, the the Charlotte fans were probably just over the moon being able to see that when, you know, again, going in, you don't even know really what the card's going to be. And then it's like, oh, shit, Stone Cold gets a title shot tonight. So very, very cool. I'm sure just like you, after that first stunner where Paul Barry broke it up, the Charlotte people were probably like, okay, all right, you know, th- this isn't going to happen. But, you know, it was a nice little tease. But then they just go right back to the stunner and boom, one, two, three. And all is right with the world again. Stone Cold Steve Austin is once again the WWF champion. So speaking of all being right with the world, does this make 
the end of King of the Ring a little bit easier to deal with. Because if you're a WWF fan at the time, and you're going, you know, you're watching all this stuff in order, you're you're kind of bitter, but then you're over the moon the next night. It's actually funny you mention that because I was going to ask you, you know, if you purchased King of the Ring and you watched that, you know, pretty shitty pay-per-view, and then one night later Austin wins on free TV, do you think you would have felt like a little bit ripped off, like that you you spent money for such a terrible show and then on free TV he wins the belt? Probably. If we're being honest, I probably. But on the other side of it, if I if I did not purchase it and I just read what happened and I was disappointed because Austin lost, and then I watched Raw and Austin won the belt, I would have been like, well, this is way better. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I know I wouldn't have felt ripped off. Well, I mean, obviously, I wasn't really. It was mostly my parents paying for the shows back then, obviously. But right. I mean, I don't think I would have felt ripped off. I would have just been happy because I was I was so invested in the product this, at this time. I should say. That, you know, as long as Austin had the belt back, I wouldn't have even, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded. You literally just forget all about it 24 hours later. You're just like, who cares? Yeah, exactly. So, yes, the Undertaker's championship run is over after just five short weeks. Sal, would you like to hear a quick recap of how his title reign went? I would love to. Sure. So on the May 31st episode of Raw, he loses to Vince McMahon by DQ. On the June 7th Raw, he gets chokeslammed through the ring in his match with the Big Show, resulting in a no contest. Ugh. On the June 14th Raw, he loses a triple threat match to The Rock because he ended up fighting with his own stablemate, Triple H. On the June 21st Raw, he beats Triple H via disqualification when The Rock runs into the ring. At King of the Ring, obviously, he does indeed defeat The Rock. And then tonight on Raw, he loses the belt cleanly to Stone Cold. So all in all... Not exactly a dominant championship reign for one of the biggest legends in the history of wrestling. And guess what, Sal? Spoiler alert! This little run here is the only WWF title reign for The Undertaker during our timeline. Oh! Yeah. Now, he obviously Fuck. does win. Yeah. He wins the world title many more times, to be fair, in his WWF slash WWE tenure, but his next run with the belt won't be until 2002. So, yes... As big a fixture as Taker is during this time period, he only gets about a one-month title reign during the Attitude Era. I feel like he probably deserved a little bit more than that, wouldn't you say? I have a question for you. Sure. More disappointing title reign. This one for Taker, or his first one? <laughs> the, the one that lasted six days? Yes, the one that lasted from Survivor Series 1991 that we just covered all the way to Tuesday in Texas, six days later, or this one. Because this one seemed really uneventful, and I've been following along with the Raw Attitude podcast, so I feel pretty up-to-date on the events in 1999 at this point, and it just, it never really felt like he was the guy. Yeah, absolutely not. I would say I'd, I'd give this one the nod over the other one just because it's, you know, the other one was only six days, although, I mean, hey, beating beating Hulk Hogan is a pretty a pretty big deal. But I'll give the nod to this one just because, I mean, he does pick up a pay-per-view win over The Rock, so I guess that's something. But everything else is pretty much uneventful. Like, The Rock, beating The Rock at King of the Ring is the only clean win that The Undertaker gets in that entire world title run that he just had. So, yeah, not uh, not ideal. I mean, not to mention, even not thinking about the title wins or the title matches, he's completely, the his entire title run outshined and forced to be in the shadow of the higher power. And then the higher power is Vince fucking McMahon. So 
You might as well just make Vince the champ. <laughs> oh, well, more on that later. Uh, it's true. But yes, so Stone Cold defeats The Undertaker to regain the title. Certainly a hell of a way to end an episode of Raw, but we're not done yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWS stands for women where we fucking. The ratings recap. So, all right, Sal, bear with me here because I'm about to throw some insane numbers at you here. So last week, Raw put up a 6.0 rating, and this week they went all the way up to a 6.8, which is incredibly massive, but that's not the crazy part. On the opposing side, Nitro actually improved pretty substantially from a 3.1 last week to a 3.57 this week. So very good bump for them, but that is also not the crazy part. Here are some numbers that are mind-boggling in retrospect. So, Sal, this Austin-Undertaker match was the most-watched wrestling match in cable television history. It put up a 9.5 rating, which means that 9.5% of all televisions in America were watching this match. So basically, one out of every 10 televisions. And if you need some more concrete numbers, that equates to 105 72 million people watching this match. And for the sake of comparison, these days, Raw usually gets about 2 million viewers, and that was before the pandemic. And perhaps even more impressive, if you only count the televisions that were actually turned on at the time, one out of every six televisions in the country that was turned on at the time was tuned into this match. One out of six, Sal. That is how popular wrestling was in this country in 1999. And needless to say, to this very day, that Austin-Undertaker match still has the record for highest cable wrestling viewership. And I think it's fair to say it will never be broken. Pretty unbelievable. Now, it's interesting that you say cable, because I believe, if I'm correct, when Hogan fought Andre in that I think it was on a Saturday night's main event, maybe, or primetime wrestling, one of them. Yeah, it was the main event, I think, yep. That was the largest rating for wrestling for a wrestling match ever, right? Yes, I believe that's correct. That was something, I think you had something like maybe 20 or 30 million people just watching that. Because, again, that was on, this is back in like 1988, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Yep, 88. Yep, and that's on NBC, where there were a lot fewer channels. NBC, obviously, one of the big four networks at the time. Right, Maybe right, only right. three at the time. I don't even know if Fox was a network at that point. I think they might have been. Um, but yes, that was, that was I think, the most watched wrestling Ever. on television. Yeah. Okay, now, now, not to discredit this achievement, because still, in this boom period, we have got Hogan versus Goldberg mm-hmm. for the title, which drew great numbers. We got, I believe we got on free TV, we got Rock and Austin at one point. Uh, um, yeah, I think we did, yep. And it was when they were main eventers, too. It wasn't just when they were, like, in 97 or anything like that. So we, we've had big matches draw big on cable television in this era, but nothing like this. Yes, and I also should note, too, a lot of people tend to 
say that uh, the upcoming This Is Your Life is what actually gets the highest rating ever. It gets a, a massive rating, but it is not as high as the Austin versus Undertaker match. So just just for the record, I know people cite that one, but this does bigger numbers than This Is Your Life. And if everybody is going to sit there too and say, well, Austin has a chance to win back the title, so of course it's going to blow doors. That's true, but lest we forget, like you mentioned two years ago, or a year ago, the night after King of the Ring, when Austin lost to Kane, he also had the chance the next night to regain the title. He did regain the title, and that match's ratings did not touch this one. Correct, correct. I'm sure those were still massive to you, but they weren't on this level. Exactly. And, and also, just to point this out, uh, I think I made the point you know, a couple uh, a couple shows ago when uh, Raw did its highest rating ever. The, sh- the entire show did something like an 8.1 rating or something like that because Nitro was not on that night. But none of those segments pulled in a 9.5 rating, even when unopposed. Somehow this match, while still up against Nitro, did a 9.5 rating. So that is... That is pretty crazy if you think about it, that there was still Nitro. You know, Nitro was still winding down at this point, and people even still were like, nope, fuck it, I have to watch Austin versus Undertaker. So pretty, pretty friggin' crazy. And just to drive it home just a tiny bit more, this wasn't a match that nobody has seen before. It wasn't like Goldberg and Hogan, where it's like, well, what happens when Goldberg fights Hogan? No, we've seen Taker and Austin a few times, actually, at this point. Yeah, I mean, just at Over the Edge, one month, I mean, you know, granted, that was overshadowed by something else, but they did fight each other at Over the Edge. They fought each other at Over the Edge. They fought each other at SummerSlam 98. Yep, at, don't forget, at, um, what was it, Rock Bottom in December, they did the Buried Alive match. Yep. So we've seen, this, this is this is a rematch, for all, you know, intents and purposes. We've seen this a few times. No gimmicks, no hell in a cell. Just Austin going to regain the title from The Undertaker. 9.5. That's amazing. That is friggin' incredible. Yeah. One out of every 10 televisions in the country, basically, were watching this match. And again, one out of every six that was actually turned on. So pretty fucking nuts. And I, honestly, I don't think it's a coincidence because obviously Austin and The Undertaker are two of the biggest legends in the history of the fucking business. So it's not like an aberration like that one that one show a few, uh, a few weeks ago where it was like the Stooges versus the Mean Street Posse drew that huge rating. Right. So... In this case, I think it makes a lot of sense that this is the you know the highest-rated wrestling match in cable television history. So, and I think it proves what wrestling always is and what it always will be. You can throw a bunch of gimmicks at whatever you want, but the bottom line is what draws money is when somebody connects with the crowd on a level that Austin. Did. That's what really draws money. Yes. Hogan had it. Austin had it. Cena had it. You know, if you can connect on a massive scale, you will draw money doing nothing but brawling matches. That's right, which is pretty much all Austin does at this point. After after he has the neck injury, he reverts to a much more brawl-heavy style, which honestly, in the Attitude Era, makes perfect sense anyway. So. I was going to say, it fits, though. It's, it's main event style. It's not, you know, those... I, I hate to, to put it like this because I love good technical wrestling, but... That's not main event style, especially not in the WWF slash E. Right, right. So with that being said, I mean, you know, obviously Raw put up historic numbers, but for the sake of comparison, Sal, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead, and let me know if any of these matches sound enticing to you. So Perry Saturn and Chris Benoit defeated Fit Finley and a man making his return to Nitro after almost a year and a half, 
Steven Regal. Yes, Regal is now back in WCW after his very brief cup of coffee in the WWF. Eddie Guerrero defeated Lodi. Bam Bam Bigelow defeated Hack. Kurt Hennig, Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, and Bobby Duncan Jr. defeated Brian Adams, Vincent, Horace Hogan, and Stevie Ray. Ernest Miller and Disco Inferno went to a no contest. Diamond Dallas Page and Canyon defeated Dean Malenko and Buff Bagwell. Sid Vicious defeated Scott Putsky. And in your main event, WCW World Champion Kevin Nash defeated David Flair via disqualification in a lumberjack match. So yes, you heard that correctly, a lumberjack match ended in a DQ. So what do you think, Sal? Did any of those matches sound good to you? If we're being honest, the opening match sounded okay. Yeah. And then also DDP and Canyon versus, you said, Bagwell and Scott Norton? Uh, yes, I believe that was what it was. Let me go back. Uh, Bagwell and Dean Malenko, sorry. Bagwell and Dean. I mean, I'd watch it. Yeah. yeah. W- would that pull you away from uh, Austin versus Undertaker? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess actually when you see that the main event was Kevin Nash versus David Flair, that was what was going up against Austin and Taker. I think you could see why people uh, stayed with Raw in that case. No, no disrespect to the great David Flair, of course. Oh, God. And so normally this is the portion of the podcast where I read an excerpt from the book The Death of WCW, which describes what happened on this week's episode of Nitro, but they don't even cover it in the book, so I guess that should let you know how uneventful this show was. Although I will say, Sal, I actually dropped the ball when it came to last week's episode of Nitro, because I meant to include an audio clip on the previous episode of this podcast, and I completely forgot to put it into the show. So I'm going to play it here instead for you, and for your reference, what you're going to hear is Sid Vicious taunting Sting and Lex Luger, and then, apparently, Sting thinks that Nitro is already off the air, so he gives us a bit of a familiar catchphrase. And the sad thing about it, we can't do a damn thing about it! So yes, Sting thought Nitro was off the air, so he told Sid Vicious he had two words for him, and the crowd obliged by yelling, suck it. So yes, last week's episode of Nitro ended with the fans chanting a popular catchphrase from their rival company. Ladies and gentlemen, WCW in 1999. So there you go. But Sal, now that we got that out of the way, let's take it to the raw synopsis, and I have to ask you, what were your overall thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw? Raw was good, man. It was much more enjoyable than than King of the Ring. Um, I did not feel bored. Granted, there were some abrupt finishes and quick finishes to matches, mm-hmm. but it was still a fun watch. It was still entertaining. I never... You know, looked at my my phone while I was watching it. I never thought, oh, how much longer for this segment? No, it was. Everything seems to flow on Raw. So even when some things are are bad shit crazy or some things are just head scratching, it just it doesn't feel like you're watching in this. You know, if you were watching it with commercials and whatnot, like a two hour show, it doesn't feel like it. 
Right. Raw is usually a lot of things, but it's not often boring at this point. Exactly. Because they're, they're always hitting you with something. It's always like, now this is happening, now this is happening. There's, you know, now now Chaz is shooting, and now there's this, and the big show's dropping a car on. So I'm kind of giving examples from last week's episode of Raw, but, but you get my point. It's basically, you know, so much shit happens in one, you know, two-hour episode that... Yeah, you're not you're not bored. There's always there's a little something for everybody when it comes to Monday Night Raw during the Attitude Era. And in this case, we got one of what I would say is maybe one of the greatest moments in Raw history when you get a Stone Cold title victory on free TV. And again, the most watched wrestling match in cable television history. I feel like that has to rank pretty high up there in terms of, you know, some pretty great Monday Night Raw moments. Yeah, and to be honest, the rest of Raw, you got to give it credit. I mean... Think about just some of the things. Even if it's not your cup of tea, Ivory calls a fan into the ring. Okay, that's weird. We've never seen that before. Triple H shooting from the hip about merch and, and uh, royalties and stuff. Or even or even X-Pac almost winning the IC title. Hmm? There was a lot of fun things. Even Edge. Edge all of a sudden is going home with a hoe. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a lot of fun things about tonight's Raw. Yeah, maybe the one downside was a bit too much Billy Gunn, since he was in four segments, and one of those segments was him losing to Bradshaw. But other than that, I was entertained. I think I think I would say you know thumbs thumbs up for this episode. I mean, if you for me, I can't any episode where Stone Cold wins the belt on free TV, I can't give it anything less than a thumbs up. But right. I don't know. Would you Would you agree on that? Thumbs up. Thumbs up for me, definitely. If you uh, if you're feeling nostalgic, go back and watch it because uh, it's fun. It's fun to see. Uh, they're, you know, and I'm not saying that just because it's this era. There have been a couple episodes uh, of the Raw Attitude podcast where we had talked about Raws that were so-so. Right. Uh, this was great. This was fun. Obviously, the big, big deal at the end of Austin winning the title. As long as you can get around Jerry Lawler's Austin Power references, you'll be okay. Yes. And I, I will also say, just on the note, like, this is obviously, in the Attitude era, you get a lot of the shows that start off with, like, the long you know, show opening promos. But I mean, even the show opening promo was pretty fucking entertaining where it's like Stone Cold saying, ah, guess what, Vince? I outsmarted you because I knew you were going to screw me. So just just that very promo that sets up the craziness that's going to occur also is, is a great way to kick off the show too. So, you know, when you have a crowd, and again, this crowd was pretty into it throughout the entire show, especially everything Stone Cold did and everything The Rock did. So yes, I would say big thumbs up. Go watch this episode again. If you're wa- if you're watching these episodes for you know five star matches, you're probably watching the wrong time period of Monday Night Raw. But if you're going in just expecting to be entertained for two hours, then yeah, go, go watch. It. I would say go watch it for sure. Absolutely. So there you have it. That was Monday Night Raw. But before we finish up, here are some notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. So in ECW news, their deal with TNN was finalized this week. Apparently, TNN has decreed that blood will be allowed, but male-on-female violence will not be allowed. So cross that one off the list. And also, in further ECW news, Danny Doring and Roadkill had a new valet debut with them this week. Her name is apparently Amy Dumas, which, eh, that, that doesn't sound familiar to me, Sal. Not familiar with her. But in addition to that, Sal, I believe you were an ECW fan. So do you remember when they moved to TNN, or were they already off your radar by this point? It was, and this has been quoted by Paul Heyman as such, the worst decision the company ever made. (laughs) Yeah. Unbeknownst to them at the time, because they were trying to get on cable, 
And when I watched ECW, I watched it on the Spanish Channel at on Saturday nights at one o'clock in the morning. Oh, on on Sabado Noche, <laughs> uh, on uh, Univision. Now it was not in Spanish; it was in English. But that's the only time slot that ECW came on in my in my Boston area. But I loved that because it felt so underground. It felt like I was I was doing something that like I shouldn't be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously, it was so violent that like this wouldn't. Like, if my parents were ever like, are you watching wrestling? And, like, this was on, I would, like, shut it off. Because <laughs> it was it was just a blood fest. And plus, all the stuff with the girls made it even worse. But everybody was excited when they got a deal with TNN. And the very first episode of ECW on TNN, already I could tell it was not going to really work. <laughs> because it wasn't live. It was three or four up matches from different television tapings they had done. Um, but not, like, the same taping, so that was also weird. Oh. And just, things seemed disjointed, and then it's funny that you brought up that, that issue with the contract and how they would allow blood, but they wouldn't allow male-on-female violence because TNN would go back on their word, and they would start to try to dictate what ECW could and couldn't do on their network, so much so that Paul Heyman decided to come up with a storyline where he took the Jackal, who at this point was called Cyrus the Virus, and made him an executive from the network. Yes. And how much they fucked ECW over. And it was a storyline, but it was also a shoot, because uh, Paul Heyman was getting very, very frustrated with TNN. And to make matters worse, obviously the company was hemorrhaging money. And... It, it's funny because when you if you go back if you have a chance I strong I highly suggest to check out the Hello My Name Is Paul Heyman documentary on the WWE Network because mm-hmm. he talks about this in great detail that they were between a rock and a hard place the pay per view company wouldn't give them their money that they had earned from their pay per views because they owed them money but if they had the pay per view money then they could have. Like, paid back what they owed. It was like this whole vicious circle of no hope, basically. Right, and talent right. not getting paid and everything like that. And that's when it all started to fall apart. It was so red hot going into TNN. And it lost everything in 99 and 2000. Yeah, if you ever watch the Rise and Fall of ECW DVD, or maybe it's on the network now too, I don't know. It is. They delve into that as well. And they also show the promo where it's like a close-up of Heyman's face. I think they actually aired this on TNN, where Heyman is literally like looking into the camera, being like, hey, network, I dare you to throw us off the air because we hate mm-hmm. you, and all this sort of thing. So needless to say, the, it doesn't go very well eventually. I think pretty much the common sort of uh, you know refrain in the industry is that TNN was using ECW as like kind of a springboard to be like, I wonder if this wrestling thing will work on our network. And you know, spoiler alert, they make a they make a pitch for a pretty big fish about a year and a half from now, and they end up luring Raw over to TNN by the time, I think around like September of 2000. So, yeah, pretty crazy times, but ECW is their little test case. And yes, that, that's coming soon. ECW on TNN is, is coming soon, for better or for worse. So that's 100% accurate, and that's been verified by God knows how many people in the business since then. The only reason TNN gave ECW a shot was to use them as a tester to see how the audience would react to wrestling so they could bring over Raw. Yep. Which, obviously, Paul Heyman did not know that when he signed the deal. Sure. And and to make matters worse, 
I don't know if you agree with me, Henry, but but Raw on TNN never felt right. Yeah, it it always. I mean, well, obviously they eventually go back to the USA Network anyway. But yeah, Raw on TNN, which at the time was, I think it was the National Network at the time, but they previously had been the Nashville Network, so it was exactly. more like country music television, that sort of thing. So it did feel like a bit of a strange fit. Yeah, I, I didn't get it because this is even you know without any ties with ECW. I didn't. In fact, in my mind, I thought. Oh well, ECW went under, so they had to go and get Raw like that, you know. But when Raw was on TNN, it just—I don't know—it just didn't feel right. No, there were still great moments like scattered until it went back to USA. But I don't know. USA is the home for Monday Night Raw. It always has been. It always will be, in my opinion. Yeah, we we can just ignore the fact that they ever went to TNN, as far as I'm concerned. Although last year they almost went to Fox, so <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, SmackDown did, so that's close enough. Eh, that's true. So, and in some WCW news, apparently their deal with Master P is already on shaky ground. So last week when Master P showed up for Nitro at the Superdome in his Superdome, I should say, in his hometown of New Orleans, he kept making demands, trying to get limos and perks for his entourage, and allegedly he also showed zero respect to Eric Bischoff and was a pain in the ass to work with the entire time. So, alas, Sal, we may not be hearing hootie who on our televisions very much longer. So, on a side note, and trust me, of all people, I understand that WCW was a Southern-based company. But what I didn't understand is instead of going out getting somebody like Jermaine Dupree, you know, from Atlanta, because that's what the company's based out of anyway, or even Usher, right? They go out and get the No Limit Soldiers and Master P. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with the rap scene in 1999, first of all, rap was red hot. Probably right up there with wrestling. Yeah, And No Limit was red hot, too. No, but they were underground, though. You never heard No Limit or Master P songs being played on the radio. That's fair, yeah. So I don't understand. I never understood this deal, like why they decided, like, hey, we'll bring in the No Limit soldiers. Like, that just made... And (laughs) the decisions by WCW involving music would only get worse and worse. Yeah, I think that was probably part of their thought process was like, well, you know, hip, the kids love the hip-hop these days. If we can bring in that hip-hop audience, you know, and Master P was, I think, I mean, even to this day, Master P, I think, started a wrestling company in October of 2019. So he's apparently always been kind of like receptive to wrestling, but it, it just obviously is not the right fit with WCW, especially when you pit them against the West Texas Rednecks. I mean, when you're asking the you know, the WCW audience to root for either the No Limit Soldiers or the West Texas Rednecks, predominantly Southern audience, they're probably going to side with the West Texas Rednecks. So, you know, it is what it is. It was just the bad fit. It's it's just a bad fit, I would say. It's not to say hip-hop in wrestling can't work, because it clearly can, but it was just wrong place, wrong time, wrong people as far as I'm concerned. So. Well, yeah, r- wrong people to me, like, really jumps up, because this is a, a program at this point that had... Jay Leno on it. It had Carl Malone. It had Dennis Rodman. So what I'm saying is it did find fair to middle in success with some of these uh, mainstream acts, right? Would that be fair to say? In yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, strike a deal with, with Puff Daddy or something. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't come cheap. 
Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't. But you know what? That would have brought a lot more eyes than Master P. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Master P was probably a little too niche. When, when most, I'm guessing most of the WCW fans are probably like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, I don't know who Master P is, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's not a huge name. It's not a huge name. Like, yeah. Like, if you did bring in Puff Daddy or Usher, that would be something. I, again, I don't even know if WCW could afford them. But they're flushing money down the toilet anyway. But, I mean, those are names where, like, most people would probably know Puff Daddy or Usher. But in terms of Master P, it's probably like, what? Like, who the fuck? Why is this guy here? I, so, I don't know. Just to close out the whole rap and wrestling thing, have you ever heard the rumors of, of Eminem and WWE? No. Were they trying to bring him in? For years. All the way back to when John Cena was doing his his rapper gimmick. Oh, yeah. I remember They were this. trying to work out a deal with Slim Shady to bring him in to do a rap battle with John Cena. I remember, I think it was at WrestleMania, maybe 19, on the pre-show, he does a rap battle against, like, a cardboard cutout of Jay-Z or Fabulous or one of those guys. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because the initial mm-hmm. plan was to bring them in, and then they both kind of, like, turned it down, I think, maybe at the last second. So Cena just had to, to rap by himself. Mm-hmm. See, that's that's the crazy thing is uh, Eminem is a huge admitted wrestling fan. Can you imagine how fun that would have been if they were able to bring him in? Even like they did with Machine Gun Kelly, but who cares? It's Machine Gun Kelly, right? <laughs> but somebody like Eminem, like dude, that would be incredible. Like if you had that, even even it's just a one-off at a WrestleMania. Well, if they did bring Eminem in, I feel like it would have been interesting the best thing since wrestling maybe there it is there you go there you go anyhow so in further wcw news by the way chris jericho has been doing jobs to buff bagwell on the house show circuit and he hasn't been used on tv since april because he still hasn't signed a new deal with wcw now internally kevin nash apparently wants to job him out on television until he leaves but eric bischoff doesn't want him to get any television exposure whatsoever hence him only losing on house shows so where will chris jericho end up i just i just can't imagine and also this week jim Cornette will be moving to louisville kentucky where the plans are for him to run a developmental company for the wwf called ohio valley wrestling Spoiler alert, OVW actually proves to be a pretty big success under Cornette's leadership, churning out several wrestlers who ultimately go on to main event WrestleMania. And certainly, the only thing that could possibly ruin this gig for Corny would be if he somehow ended up letting his temper get the better of him. But thankfully, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. And finally, we had a lot of wrestler media appearances this week, Sal. Hulk Hogan went on Larry King Live, where, I know this may shock you, he mixed up a lot of his facts, and he ended up drawing the ire of the Polish National Alliance because he referred to Ivan Putsky as a, quote, Polak on the show. <laughs> no, he didn't. You're not he being did. serious. No, that he oh absolutely did. <laughs> I know, Sal, as hard as it may be to believe. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, Hulk Hogan used an offensive term to describe someone else. Certainly, that is not in character for him. And Sable also appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Now, she wasn't actually promoting anything. She was just kind of doing another media appearance to tell the world how obscene the WWF is while she's currently in the lawsuit with them. And perhaps most notably this week, Vince McMahon appeared on Late Night with Conan O'Brien to promote King of the Ring. You know, uh, let's talk, tell us a little bit about the match that's coming up. This is you and your son versus yeah. Stone Cold, and what's at stake here? 
Uh, really, it's kind of like all the Marvels kind of a thing. It's Vince McMahon and Shane McMahon. Two McMahons can beat one Austin any day of the week, we hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll find out this Sunday. It's, it's a ladder match. You see, you take the stock certificate that we own, and you take Stone Cold's title as CEO, and you sort of put it in a, a briefcase and put it on the skyhook somewhere above the ring. Mm -hmm. And the, it's real simple. Whoever gets the briefcase first uh, wins all the goods and complete control of the World Wrestling Federation. So it's all on the line, is what you're saying. You could lose it's everything. It's all on the line. All right, that was very convincing. Uh, right, right, thank you. <laughs> they didn't believe me, but when you did it. You know, right. Uh, now, why not, since you own the company, right. and it's your company, why not fire Stone Cold and just make yourself champion and then rehire him? Actually, I've tried firing Stone Cold, but that doesn't work. Uh, I, as far as me being a champion, I don't think I'm really cut out to, to carry that kind of responsibility. You don't think you could do it? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I, not even for a day. With just you know, See, we have something in the World Wrestling Federation known as credibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't think that would be too credible. No, I don't think so. So naturally, what stood out for me there, Sal, was Vince saying that he could never be WWF champion, even for a day, because the WWF has credibility, and that just wouldn't be credible. So just just remember that quote for, you know, less than three months from now. That's That's all I'm saying. All I have to say, Henry, is thank God for credibility. Exactly. Which, by the way, you can hear in that clip, when Vince says the WWF has credibility, the audience laughs at him. So, that's... I guess they were kind of... They, they knew what was up. But so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So, as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review because that's helpful too. And Sal, before we wrap up, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude podcast about WrestleMania Salvation and the AEW Rundown one more time? I would love to. I will, however, take a very quick moment to mention that Sheamus at one point was also on Conan O'Brien, where they compared the shades of their stomach. Oh, Jesus. Okay, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there because I wanted to look up the Vince clip and that's one of the things that popped up was nice. Seamus and Conan uh, comparing their paleness. The, so. uh, by the way, you said paleness just for the record there. Yes, yes, exactly. Paleness. Uh, yes. So I am the host of WrestleMania Salvation. That series is complete, but you can go back and listen to all of the episodes on rundownwrestling.com. I myself currently am hosting the AEW Rundown where myself and friend of the show and multiple-time co-host Adam... Uh, give you the week that was in the AEW universe. Don't sue me. <laughs> uh, also, in addition to that, you can you can hear me on various other product projects such as Survivor Series, where I chronologically go through all of the Survivor Series. I'm sorry, Survivor Series episodes. Uh, Henry, you were you were great, gracious enough to join me on my last one covering 1991. Indeed. 
And then in addition to that, also NXT TakeOver Salvation, where I go through all of the takeovers and give you a rundown. (laughs) See what I did there? (laughs) On that particular takeover and who was really good and who became a big shot and a big time player and who we never heard from again. So be on the lookout for that. All of that information, all of my shows, either download the Rundown Wrestling Network podcast where you can find all of our great shows every every day, uh, or new shows covering AEW, NXT, WWE, and also rundownwrestling.com. Excellent. And so before I finish up here, too, since this may be the last episode of the podcast for a little while, I do want to make sure to give a shout-out to all of the people who were involved in the Raw Attitude podcast at some point, starting with anyone who has ever co-hosted the show. For example, you, Sal, since you've come on a whopping four times. Also, your AEW Rundown co-host, Adam, who is still the reigning champion with a bigger six appearances on the show. But, you know, you, you could catch up maybe at some point. And some of the other hosts from the Rundown Network who also appeared on here at some point, specifically Jason and Troy, who have each made appearances. Also, we have to give a big shout-out to William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast, who was a big advocate for the show even in the very early days when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And as you may know, he actually invited me to come on his podcast to do a Perfect 10 episode, which was a ton of fun. Huge tip of the cap to William there. And, of course, his fellow New Blood Rising podcast host, Martin Dixon, who was also nice enough to come on this show several times. So lots of love for Martin. I also need to show some love to Andy and Bill from Tuning Japanese, both of whom appeared on this podcast. And by the way, random side note, that episode where Andy and I discussed the dumpster incident is still one of my most played episodes. So props to Andy for bumping up my numbers. I'll also have to shout out Lee Carlos Cunningham from the Raw is Nitro podcast, who co-hosted this show twice, also does a one-man wrestling podcast. And Sal, I think you can agree, these solo pods are pretty tough to do, so Props to Lee there. Absolutely. And, of course, I'll also conclude by giving a big thank you to the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast. I wish I could give credit to all of you, but I will specifically single out some of the fans who have been the most active in engaging with the podcast, usually via Twitter or SoundCloud. And some of them, I believe, are actually fans of your show, too, as well, Sal. They are. That's correct. So first off, I'll give big props to Philip Goad, who I refer to as the official statistician of this podcast, because he was always tweeting me some useful information like the percentage of Attitude Era Raw matches, which ended via disqualification. Ryan Palmer always seems to be in the mix as well. Always love hearing from him and seeing his Book of Mormon avatar. And I was pleased to see that Richard Query was a fan of the show, too. If you've ever listened to the New Generation podcast, you've almost certainly heard Richard get a shout out on that show. So I'm glad he seemed to enjoy this one as well. And a couple other people who are interacting with me very often, Jeffrey from Massachusetts, who actually emailed me directly several times, Ben Dombeck, Benjamin Emerson, Matt Lewinsky, Chris Sullivan, Burke I am, and I apologize because I don't know your real name, Colin Middleton, Ashley Clements, Leslie Jackson, Gene Cabrera, although I'm not sure if it's pronounced Gene or Jean, so I'll hedge my bets, pronounce it both ways, Carl Bryan, Ollie Galvin-Jones, Bob Smith, and if there is anyone else I didn't mention, I do apologize, but seriously, thank you all for taking the time to even think that any sort of interaction with this show is worthwhile, because there are a million podcasts out there, and probably a billion Twitter accounts, but you took the time to write, review, comment, debate, and all manner of other things with me, and I think that's pretty damn awesome, so thank you to all fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast, and on that note, I, I have nothing further to add about this episode, so Sal, on the lighter side... 
as is the custom whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I will allow you to pick the clip which closes the show. So do you have one in mind? I do, but very quickly, I just wanted to also thank you for being a guest on the AEW Rundown. Thank you for uh, being a guest on Survivor Series. Of course. Also, and I, I'm not speaking for these guys, I never would, but you had a fantastic appearance on the New Blood Rising podcast uh, just a short time ago uh, in their Perfect Ten series talking about uh, The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels from WrestleMania 25. I highly recommend everybody go listen to that if you weren't aware. It's a great episode to go check that out. Uh, Henry and uh, William do a great job talking about that match. Oh, thank you. No problem. And this isn't. I want everybody, uh, the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast, to stay subscribed. This yes. is not goodbye. This is. Uh, see you in a little bit. Uh, at some point. Yeah, I, I've mentioned it on the, a couple episodes prior where. You know, I'm, I'm having my, uh, as we're recording this, it's uh, early May, pulling back the curtain. My son is, I think I've mentioned this before, my son is due in late May, early June, somewhere around there. And I'm probably just not going to have enough time to, to put all the hours and hours into the podcast that it usually requires. So it'll be, you know, a little quiet for a while, but we'll uh, we'll see where it goes from there. I, I don't plan on killing the podcast entirely, but it might it might just be a little while before the next episode comes out, but uh, but stay stay subscribed or even better, as uh, I mentioned Jeffrey from Massachusetts, he emailed me recently to say that he actually is starting back at the very beginning from the Raw Attitude podcast and going back and re-listening to all the episodes, so, you know, I mean there are there are 80 of them, so hey, you know, you know let your friends know, they can go, they can binge it, they can enjoy it in the meantime and if they listen straight on through, it'd probably take them about, you know, four and a half, five days, so there's, there's a lot of content there, you know, so enjoy it while you still can. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I'll be back at some point in some form or fashion. But yes. Now, as far as my clip, I considering, as I mentioned earlier uh, tonight, that Triple H started taking that step of being the master manipulator. I would like to suggest to play any way you slice it up the clip of Triple H presenting the shield with plan B. Oh, I like it. That's a good one to go out on. That's a good note to go out on. I will do that. Why, thank you, sir. So there you have it. So again, thank you very much to Sal for joining the show. And I hope you will join again if I, uh, if and when I restart the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So enjoy Sal's clip. And I hope you all have enjoyed the Raw Attitude podcast up to this point. And again... Tell your friends to binge listen, got 80 episodes. And until next time, until the podcast returns, I will catch you all next time. In case you haven't figured it out yet, what I do better than anybody is adapt. Last night was plan A. Tonight, <laughs> plan B. There's always... A plan B.
top of the world. Why in the world would Seth Rollins do this? My God, Rollins is destroying Ambrose. Chair over. Broke that chair over Ambrose. this. 